Welcome to the Mop Up for May 16th, 2022. Happy birthday to my Uncle Lou. You don't look a day over deceased. I wish you two more birthdays. Uncle Lou, two more birthdays. Then you're staying way too long at the party and we need to clean up. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 73 degrees and sunny. Well, there's some illegal stakes coming into our country and Kimberly Gargoyle wants to warn us about them. Great stakes, they only want to eat good ranchers and I don't blame them. I'm here at these beautiful stakes from goodranchers.com. And this is the way you show your family you love them, by buying this meat that is born and raised here in the United States. Fantastic quality, USDA. I don't know if you know this or not, but 85% of the meat that they sell in stores today is not even from the United States. It's from overseas, from other countries, and you don't even know what's in it or what you're really getting. Every time we cook with good ranchers, it's absolutely fantastic. And that's what you get with this. That's Kimberly, that's Kimberly Gargoyle selling uh, legal steaks. A lot of steaks in America are illegal. Mexico is not sending us their best and their brightest steaks. They're sending their drug dealers, their criminals, their rapists. I'm sure some of their steaks are good cows, but uh, only we should only eat legal steaks from here in the United States. Rough news the past couple of days. And considering recent events over the past weekend, I think it's finally time to have a serious conversation about serious conversations. Naomi Judd, her family says the singer died at the age of 76 from a self-inflicted gunshot. Like I said, we need to have a serious conversation in this country about serious conversations. The Centers for Disease Control says 53% of all suicides involve firearms. America is facing an epidemic of suicide. The right wing will remind us that even though Illinois has some of the strictest gun laws in America, Chicago can't seem to put an end to gun violence. But what the white wing, the white, the white or right wing won't tell you is that Illinois also has one of the lowest suicide rates in America. Why? Because it's hard to get a gun in Illinois. Like I said, we need to have a serious conversation about serious conversations. California, New Jersey, Maryland, Massachusetts, Rhode Island all have some of America's lowest suicide rates. Why? Because it's hard to get a gun. You know where the suicide rates are the highest? In Senator Joe Manchin's West Virginia and Senator Mitch McConnell's Kentucky. Isn't it interesting that the leading Republican and the leading conservative Democrat, Joe Manchin, they both represent states with the highest suicide rates in America. And instead of doing anything to lower suicide rates for their constituents, they are instead making it easier and easier for the rest of the country to catch up with West Virginia and Kentucky. This country, America, is getting dragged into the gutter by Manchin and McConnell, not just because of our permissive gun laws. America is committing slow motion suicide, and our politicians are literally handing us the weapons to do so. This, com this country is committing collective suicide because the senators and congresspeople who 
represent the states with the highest suicide rates want to drag us all down with them. From our for-profit healthcare system to our climate change denial to the proliferation of guns, we are committing collective suicide. After this weekend's racially motivated massacre of, Ameri of African Americans in Buffalo, Republican Liz Cheney said, we need to have a serious talk about white supremacy. No, we need to get rid of guns. Idaho, the state Liz Cheney represents, has one of the highest suicide rates in America because it's easy to get a gun. We need to get rid of the guns, period. We're never going to prevent everyone from identifying as white nationalists. We're never going to get people to have, we're never going to uh, prevent people from having suicidal thoughts. What we do to, what we need to do is make sure they can't act out on any of these thoughts. We need to get rid of the guns. Total war against guns. If you don't like the government, if you fear the government, participate in your government. Don't stock up on guns. But the oligarchs want people who hate the government to buy guns because then they do nothing about the government. The richest 1% use government and guns the same way they use brown people. Government is the enemy, not the oligarchs. So go buy guns to protect yourself from the evil government. Don't try to change the government, just buy guns so you can continue to believe you're safe from your corporate-owned government. The oligarchs demonize government and brown people and then convince Americans that the answer is staying inside, staying home, disengaging from the community while polishing your guns. Now. Mark Esper, Donald Trump's Secretary of Defense, is promoting a new book. One of the tidbits? Donald Trump ordered him to shoot Black Lives Matter protesters. The president said, can't you just shoot them? You know, just shoot them in the legs or something? The media was all over this. But, of course, they ignored the serious question that Donald Trump asked. Quote, can't you just shoot them in the legs or something? When I read that, I thought, yeah, why can't we just shoot them in the legs or something. How many times do we read about police shooting an unarmed black man or a senior citizen brandishing a butter knife? How often do we read of police killing someone with just one shot? How come, as Donald Trump asked, the police never just shoot them in the legs or something? Because American police are trained to shoot, to kill. Studies show that most police officers in America are instructed that when you fire a gun, you shoot to kill. Shoot to kill. Even when the suspect is unarmed, shoot to kill. And most American leaders and citizens accept that. And it's suicide. No other first world country would instruct its police to shoot to kill. Then again, no other rich country is awash in 400 million guns. Shoot to, shoot to kill. It's cleaner. The suspect is dead. It's the officer's word against a dead person. And if the body cam is accidentally turned off, plant evidence. The question should not be, why do I hate the police? The question is, why do the police hate us? Well, it's because we are participating in a slow motion suicide, turning police into judge, jury, and executioners. 70% of Americans in jail never had a trial. They are either waiting for a trial or lack the resources for a real lawyer, so they just end up playing out. The Sixth Amendment guarantees a speedy trial with an attorney provided by the state. 
We no longer have a Sixth Amendment in America when 70% of Americans in trial, in jail, have no, not had a trial. We don't have a Sixth Amendment, but we do have a Second Amendment. Every time a cop pulls over a suspect, that suspect knows he's not getting a trial. 70% of Americans in jail never get a trial. You get arrested, you're going to jail. And if you're poor, if you're a person of color, no trial, no tri you're doing time. And the cop pulling the suspect over because of our Second Amendment, he automatically assumes that suspect has a gun. This is a recipe for suicide. When cops pull someone over, they often run. The suspects run because even if they're innocent, they're gonna plea out because there's no Sixth Amendment. And the cops shoot them in the back because the cops think Every suspect has a gun because way too many cops are ignorant, racist cowards who think everyone, especially black men, are carrying guns. And in a way, you can almost forgive the cops for thinking that because way too many people are carrying guns. The same way you can forgive the suspect for running because if he gets arrested, he's staying in jail, guilty or not guilty and no trial. Maybe we should stop telling cops to shoot to kill. Maybe try shooting the unarmed black men in the legs, you know, as if they were white. There's a term for instructing police to shoot to kill. It's called suicide by cop. As a nation, we are collecting, collectively committing suicide by cop. No other rich nation with a democracy or something resembling a democracy would ever allow this. We are suicidal. This country is suicidal. We have a government that doesn't listen to us. Civically speaking, Americans are despondent. So we either lash out like the imbecilic racist morons on January 6th who stormed the Capitol, or we just give up like the 100 million of us who don't vote or the nearly 200 million of us who think voting is the best you can do. We are powerless. How many people in America see no point to civic participation? participation, practically everyone. So as a nation, we are committing collective suicide. We have allowed the abusive liars, the bullies, and the sociopaths to take charge. The Republicans are bullies, liars, and sociopaths. They love for-profit violence overseas or here at home, and they will say whatever it takes to ensure America is awash in for-profit violence. The Democrats are feckless. Every time there's a mass shooting, a big one, they tell us they're introducing new legislation that will address the constellation of reasons for gun violence. There is no constellation of reasons for gun violence other than guns. Gun violence is caused by a constellation of different types of assault weapons which need to be taken off the street period. This is not about mental health. This is not about income inequality or white supremacy. This is a problem of sick people getting their hands on guns. Guns make us less free. That shooter in Buffalo said some things in school a year ago, so they whisked him away for a day and a half of psychiatric evaluation. They were able to get him to stop saying he was going to kill black people, but they couldn't stop him from thinking about killing black people. They can't stop somebody from thinking about killing black people. So the best thing you can do is make it impossible for these people to go out and buy enough weapons 
to be a mercenary in Ukraine. The guy who sold this 18-year-old kid the gun said it was a perfectly normal transaction. The fact that that transaction was normal indicates just how sick America has become. We need to get rid of the guns. We can get rid of white supremacy. We can get rid of suicidal thoughts. But first and foremost, get rid of the guns so nobody can act out on their white supremacy and suicidal thoughts. But the senators and Congress people who represent the states with the highest suicide rates, Manchin, Cheney and McConnell, have no problem with Americans dying from suicide or gun violence. The deranged are killing us. Guns do not make us safer. We are told that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And that remains unchallenged. It's a bold-faced lie, which is why I say we need to have a serious conversation about serious conversations in America. There was a massacre of African-Americans in Buffalo over the weekend. There was a good guy with a gun. There was an ex-cop working as a security guard inside that supermarket. His name was Aaron Salter Jr. He was with the Buffalo police for decades. He was hired as a security guard to be in that store with a gun. This just... This wasn't just some good guy with a gun who happened to be carrying a gun when the bad guy with a gun started shooting. This was a paid good guy with a gun, a retired police officer with a gun. And when that 18 year old opened fire, former police officer Aaron Salter, the good guy with a gun, shot at him. But the good guy's bullets couldn't pierce the bad guy's armor. The good guy with a gun was then shot to death by the bad guy with a gun. There is no such thing as a good guy with a gun. A good guy with a gun is always outgunned. A good guy with a gun is caught by surprise and unprepared. The bad guy with the gun has been planning his attack for days, if not years. Good guys with guns, no matter how great their marksmanship, miss always miss in the heat of battle. Soldiers, cops, panic in the heat of battle. Good guys with a gun are not psychopaths. They take a shootout personally and they miss their shots. So that was a cop with a gun shot to death in Buffalo. Imagine how an ordinary citizen carrying a gun behaves when he sees a bad guy with a gun. They fail all the time. There is never, and I mean never, a story of a bad guy with a gun getting stopped by a good guy with a gun. Those stories don't exist. It never happens. The police will eventually show up and kill the bad guy with a gun, but not before the bad guy with the gun has killed five, 10, 15, 20 innocent people. Well, there was another shooting over the weekend. One person was killed, five wounded, inside a Laguna Woods, California church on Sunday. The shooter is alive. He was arrested. Parishioners ran towards the guy, knocked him to the ground, hocktied him with an electrical wire, and called the police. Turns out, interestingly enough, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a couple of good guys with some electrical wire. Imagine if instead of hog tying the shooter with electrical wire, a proverbial good guy with a gun shot back at the bad guy with the gun inside the church. How many more dead would there be? Good guy with a gun versus bad guy with a gun. The cops show up, 
They see a good guy with a gun and they see a bad guy with a gun. They also see bodies all over the place. And now our cops need to figure out who's the bad guy with the gun and who's the good guy. Who's the bad guy with the gun and who's the good guy? The fact that cops allow the proliferation of guns in America, guns that end up killing cops, they allow these guns. The fact that cops allow this, it's suicide. As a nation, we are committing collective suicide. I don't know about you. I don't want to commit suicide. I want to live. I want to enjoy nature and people and, you know, take care of others. Maybe walk and take a walk and not worry about getting shot. The way we permit the richest 1% in America to exploit us is nothing short of suicide. Suicide for all of us, including the billionaires who are exploiting us. If you're a billionaire, you need people to work for you. And if the people working for you don't have adequate health care, they will make you sick. They will kill you. If your employees are abused, overworked, and underpaid, they make your company less valuable. It is a rare corporation that mistreats its workers and still remains profitable. One such outlier is Amazon. Amazon sort of has been able to abuse workers and somehow stay profitable, but not really. Amazon abused its workers for nearly two decades before it finally turned a profit. Greed and abuse of workers is not a good business model. And right now, Amazon is not all that profitable. Crapping on your employees for everyone is financial suicide. Amazon is barely profitable. Its, its revenue is expansive, but not its profit. It is an inefficient company. It spends a lot of money to get very little back in return. In 2020, Amazon made a profit in one year of $21 billion. $21 billion, all the pain Amazon has cost, shutting down Main Street, putting thousands of bookstores, record stores, mom and pop retail stores out of business. And all it made in profit was $21 billion. This is suicide that we allow this to happen. All, all Jeff Bezos has to show for his vulture capitalism is $21 billion in profits. Had the Justice Department stepped in, most of those retail, retail stores would still be open. And they lack the economy of scale to warehouse their employees. So these individual stores would still be opening. And unlike Amazon, they would generate close to, you know, what, a trillion dollars in profits? not 21 billion, and they would pay taxes on those profits. How is Amazon good for our economy? How is Amazon good for our GDP? They raised Retail America. Retail America is a trillion, multi-trillion dollar industry. And all Amazon has to show for it in 2020 is $21 billion in profits. This is suicide. This is suicide. What can we do about it? Well, most Americans are catatonic when it comes to economics. We have been trained to believe, well, Jeff Bezos is all part of the free market. 
Listen to me. There is no such thing as a free market. The government controls and creates the marketplace. The government controls how much money is pumped into the economy and how much is taken out. The oligarchs want you to think the government only gets in the way because the oligarchs own our government and they don't want anybody else getting in the way. They don't want you getting any ideas in your head that you can control our government. You Americans, the oligarchs want you Americans to just continue to hate your inefficient, ineffective government, hate brown people, and then your only civic responsibility, buy more guns because the government can't protect you. The, gun the, the government is the enemy. No civic engagement. Don't vote. Just stay home and get guns. Our, our government... Our government, as it is right now, since Reagan, is in the business of transferring your tax dollars to the people who don't pay taxes, people like Jeff Bezos. And because Jeff Bezos doesn't pay taxes, Jeff Bezos has plenty of money sitting around to buy our politicians so he can make sure he, he gives no money to the government, just the politicians, right? He gives no money to the IRS while getting millions Billions and billions of dollars from that very same government he trains the rest of us to demonize. We are subsidizing Jeff Bezos's destruction of our financial lives. It's suicide. It is collective suicide. There is no free market. The government is the market. Anyone who says government doesn't create jobs is either ignorant, a liar, or both. 25% of America's workforce, 84 million Americans work directly or indirectly for the federal government. I'm not talking about state and local. 25% of America's workforce is, uh, is uh, working directly or indirectly for the federal government. The federal budget this year will top $6 trillion. Now, when you factor in state and local government, more than one third of our entire economy is government spending. One third of our entire economy is government spending. Government creates jobs. There is no free market. There is no capitalism. There is no Marxism. There is no anarcho-syndicalism. There is and only is and only has been government. You want to change the country, you take control of government spending, period. You want to change the prisons, the cops, immigration. You want to save the planet, our schools. You want to get rid of student debt, improve working conditions, you name it get control of federal spending. That's it. The oligarchs want you to think it's impossible. All you need to do is demand from our government the same exact thing the oligarchs demand from the government, money. It's that simple. This is a war for money. That's it. The oligarchs have your money. They took it from us by taking over the government and the government runs the economy. We need to take our money back from the oligarchs. It's just that simple. 
money. Forget your Marxist critiques of capitalism and start learning the difference between dynamic scoring versus static scoring of a Medicare for all bill. So far this year, Joe Biden has cut the budget deficit by $1.6 trillion. I talked about this on the last show. Federal spending on Americans, not oligarchs, results in surpluses. And last year, this government spent trillions on ordinary Americans. The problem is it creates a demanding workforce. When people have money in their pockets, they don't want to take any shit from Jeff Bezos. A dynamic scoring of Medicare for All suggests that Medicare for All would, uh, would put a dent, not increase the budget deficit. I explained all of this in our previous show. Medicare for All pays for itself, but for-profit hospitals, for-profit health insurance companies own our government. They can't live without government largesse. So they want you and me to stay out of the conversation. They want us to think it's this fictitious free market that provides you with all this superior health care, which is the worst in the industrialized world while being the most expensive. None of these health care companies would, could exist, would exist without Medicare, Medicaid, federal subsidies, and most importantly, your tax dollars. This is a transfer of wealth, your tax dollars into the pockets of Aetna, every health insurance company, every for-profit and non-profit hospital. There is no free market, it's the government. The oligarchs can only be oligarchs by doing what the Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs did, loot federal, state, and local government spending. Here in America, that accounts for nearly one-third of our entire economy. The oligarchs call this capitalism, but we know, and it's been called by Bernie, socialism for the rich. When they fail, when these banks, when these oil companies and auto companies fail, they get bailed out with even more of your money when they want to build a stadium with their name on it or a headquarters, they are given enough in local tax subsidies that it costs them nothing to hire the people working in those buildings, those headquarters and stadiums. Local governments in America compete for the privilege of paying the salaries of every employee who is given a job on a movie set, a factory, a, an office park or, or a stadium. When Amazon builds a crappy warehouse, the local government showers them with tax subsidies because they're somehow convinced Amazon is creating jobs. So the local government says pretty much through tax subsidies, we'll pay everybody's salary. It's, it's good for the economy. It is the government, local, state and federal, that is paying for those jobs. If you work for Amazon, your salary is paid by local tax subsidies, not Jeff Bezos. When's the last time a bookstore owner got a subsidy from the local government to pay the salaries of their employees? We have it set up now in this country so that the government will only subsidize shitty jobs in fulfillment centers that are anything but fulfilling. This is suicidal. There is no free market. 25% of America's paychecks come from the federal government. And I'm not including state and local. Again, one third of the economy is government spending. 
So let's focus on the federal government. The federal government is good for business because it awards countless contracts to business to work for the federal government. Roads, bridges, the internet, that's your tax dollars being handed over to contractors, right? The government is legally obligated to make sure there are strings attached to these contracts. These jobs go to contractors, businesses that pay their taxes. That's what the law says. You have to, if you want to do business with the government, you can't owe any taxes. You have to obey environmental and most importantly, work and safety law. The government is legally obligated to only grant federal contracts to corporations that obey the law. If they don't obey the law, then they are disbarred. That's what it's called. A corporation gets disbarred, and that means they are disbarred. They're, they're forbidden from getting government contracts. You want to clean up Wall Street? You want to clean up the environment? You want to improve worker safety? You want more unions? You, you make sure the federal government stops funding corporations that break the law. One of the larger beneficiaries of government contracts is Amazon. But Amazon doesn't pay taxes. Amazon is an illegal corporation. It engages in wage theft, union busting, race and gender discrimination, to name just a few of the corporate crimes Amazon commits on a daily basis. Amazon is illegal. Jeff Bezos is an illegal. Monopolies and predatory pricing are crimes. Amazon is illegal. When the federal government awards contracts, it has a statutory responsibility to guarantee that government contracts, government spending does not go to illegals like Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is an illegal. He's an illegal. Chuck Schumer's Harvard Law School graduate of a daughter, Jessica Schumer, is a lobbyist for Amazon. The daughter of the Senate Majority Leader, Jessica Schumer, is a lobbyist from Am for Amazon. Nancy Pelosi owns millions of dollars worth of stock in Amazon. Jeff Bezos violates labor law, creates horrible working conditions, fails to obey the National Relations Board, and punishes union organizers by firing them. And then when Amazon workers finally get one shop that votes to go union, Amazon's lawyers step in and refuse to recognize the union in violation of the law. Amazon is illegal. Jeff Bezos is illegal. This is not a difference of opinion. It's a fact. Jeff Bezos runs a criminal syndicate. So how does Nancy Pelosi deal with that? She scoops up shares of Amazon right at the beginning of the pandemic. And Chuck Schumer, well, his daughter, Jessica, Harvard Law School graduate, lobbies for Amazon. He takes donations from Amazon and spreads those donations to other Democrats so he can remain majority leader. Joe Biden's and Barack Obama's former press secretary is now Jeff Bezos's press secretary, Jay Carney, which is why Amazon, despite paying zero taxes, gets so much of your tax dollars through government contracts. We allow this to happen because we are participating in a collective suicide and nobody reports this. 
because Amazon is one of the biggest advertisers in the world. Colin Jost is never going to make jokes about this because he does commercials for Amazon. And all this, all this, how Amazon is destroying our economy, our government, our lives, for what? For $20 billion a year in profits. All this damage, 1 million employees in America exploited by Amazon, tortured by Amazon, Main Street decimated for $20 billion in profits? That's all Amazon can report? $20 billion in profits in 2020? Are you kidding me? This is suicide. I mean, if you're going to destroy local economies and the lives of 1 million employees, at least make more than $20 billion a year. Well, here's what Bernie recently said about Amazon. Amazon has done everything possible, legal and illegal, to defeat union organizing efforts. The National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, found that Amazon's flagrant disregard of the law infringed on workers' legal rights to a free and fair union election in Bessemer, Alabama, ruling that Amazon's behavior was, quote, dangerous and improper. That is the National Labor Relations Board. To date, there are currently 59 unfair labor cases against Amazon pending at the NLRB. Amazon is currently being sued by the NLRB to reinstate a worker who was illegally fired for organizing a union. Several current and former employees have alleged that Amazon has engaged in illegal harassment and discrimination based on race, gender, and sexual orientation. And that's not all. Amazon has already been penalized more than $75 million for breaking federal discrimination and labor laws. Amazon misclassifies delivery, delivery drivers as independent contractors rather than employees to evade tax, wage, and benefit responsibilities. Amazon's inadequate workplace safety policies also pose grave risks to workers, and I hope we'll be able to discuss that a little bit today. If you can believe it, Amazon has a 150% turnover rate, 150%. Workers come into these warehouses, they are worked as hard as humanly possible, and then they leave, often crushed. And a whole set of new workers then comes in to replace them. Is that really the kind of business model that we should be rewarding with massive federal contracts? Further, in some locations, Amazon's workplace injury rates are more than two and a half times the industry average, and that may be understating the case because not all injuries are reported. Last December, six Amazon workers died after they were required to continue working during unsafe weather conditions in a warehouse that did not have appropriate safety facilities or policies. It is abundantly clear that time and time again, Amazon has engaged in illegal anti-union activity. Further, Amazon cannot even come to grips with the reality that the workers in Staten Island won their union election 
fair and square. In order to stall the process out, their lawyers have appealed that decision, result to the NLRB. Their strategy is obvious. They're going to stall and stall and stall. In every way possible, they are refusing to negotiate a first fair contract with the Amazon labor union. The system is broken. Amazon is exploiting while breaking the system and benefiting from the government. The National Security Agency has secretly awarded a contract worth up to $10 billion to Amazon Web Services. No government, not the federal government, not the state government, and not any city government should be handing out corporate welfare to union busters and labor law violators. Go on, you miracle of democracy, Bernie Sanders, you. Taxpayer dollars should not go to companies like Amazon who repeatedly break the law. And we're talking about billions and billions of dollars in contracts. Continue. We already did debar, we already prevent federal contractors who don't pay their taxes uh, from getting government contracts, right? It, it makes sense that if... Uh, if you're not paying your taxes on time, you shouldn't benefit from a, a contract uh, where the taxpayers are, are funding uh, it. That's Senator Chris Von Holland from Maryland, who had a stroke over the weekend, and we wish him the best. We are talking about billions and billions of dollars going to an illegal Jeff Bezos, who wants the government contract to land on the moon. Uh, now, as uh, Democratic Senator Chris Von Holland get better, we need you, uh, pointed out two weeks ago, the federal government has every right to deny businesses uh, the federal government's business if you're breaking the uh, law. And uh, we deny federal contracts to illegals all the time. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill passed last year adheres to 1931's Davis-Bacon Act, which says any contractors hired by the federal government must pay a livable wage. This goes back to the Hoover administration, strings attached to federal contracts. That's uh, Hoover was a Republican. Last year, Joe Biden issued an executive order that said anyone working for the federal government, anyone working for a contractor paid by the federal government must be vaccinated. In January of this year, the Supreme Court shot down his vaccine mandate but upheld OSHA's or any other regulatory body's right to dictate the terms of contracting with the federal government. The federal government disbars illegal corporations from the federal largesse all the time. Right, Senator Van Hollen? Given that we already have these provisions in place for violating tax laws, service contract laws, and other circumstances, um, why wouldn't we also say that for contractors who are uh, engaged in serious violations uh, of labor law, that they would be uh, prohibited from getting federal contracts, at least for some period of time? Why wouldn't we? Because Nancy Pelosi owns millions of dollars worth of Amazon stock. Chuck Schumer's idiot daughter, Jessica, graduate of Harvard Law School, is a lobbyist for Amazon. Jessica Schumer, Harvard Law, uh, Harvard Law School, uh, or maybe it's Harvard and then Yale Law School. Her father is Senate Majority Leader. She can have him pull whatever spring uh, strings 
she wants, and she chooses to lobby for Amazon. Hey, Chuck Schumer, you're my senator. Your daughter is a waste of a human being. We no longer have a government, a Democratic Party, that sides with unions. We no longer have a government or a Democratic Party that sides with unions. But maybe, just maybe, things are about to change. Here's Bernie on Joe Biden's campaign promise to unions back in 2020. During the presidential campaign, then-candidate Joe Biden promised them to institute a multi-year federal debarment for all employers who illegally oppose unions and to, quote, ensure federal contracts only go to employers who sign neutrality agreements committing not to run anti-union campaigns, end of quote. That was what candidate Joe Biden said. Joe Biden, sucking up to unions in 2020, said he would disbar any corporation from getting federal contracts if they violated the law, labor law. More importantly, they had to show neutrality, neutrality when it came to their workers voting to go union. Neutrality means you can't fire or threaten to fire union uh, organizers. You can't cut union organizers' hours. And most importantly, you can't hold what are called captive meetings with your employees, and you can't spread lies and propaganda about why they should vote against a union. A neutrality pledge means no lawyers get flown into each shop, then meeting privately with each employee to figure out how they're going to vote, and then placing their name in a file enlisting them either as pro or anti-union. It is against the law to do that. President Biden, more than any other president uh, in my lifetime, has talked over and over again about being pro-union. And I appreciate the president's words, and I believe him to be sincere. He is pro-union. In my view, however, the time for talk is over. The time for action is now. The time for action is now. And with the stroke of a pen, an executive order, Joe Biden can make sure the federal government doesn't award federal contracts to companies that violate labor law. Bernie Sanders is chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, and he held a hearing earlier this month to investigate corporations who violate labor law and then look into ways Joe Biden could right now with the stroke of a pen disbar companies like Amazon who routinely violate labor law. This they violate labor law. They should not be receiving federal contracts. There are hundreds of corporations in the United States, including some of the very largest, that receive federal contracts that amount to many billions of dollars. They receive huge subsidies, they receive special tax breaks, and they receive all kinds of corporate welfare, despite the fact that these very same companies are engaged in widespread illegal behavior, including massive violations of labor law. And the question that we're asking today is a very simple one. Should federal taxpayer dollars go to companies that violate labor law and illegally prevent workers from exercising their constitutional rights to join a union? And of course, this was hardly covered by the media because Amazon is one of the biggest advertisers in the world. The ranking member of the Senate Budget Committee is Republican Lindsey Graham, and he didn't like the idea of these hearings. He said the midterms are coming up 
And he told us what kind of hearings he will be holding if Republicans controlled the Senate and he's chairman of the Budget Committee. If we get the committee back, we're not going to do this. Yeah, he told Bernie Sanders these hearings were an embarrassment. This is a heavy-handed approach, the most radical agenda in my lifetime. Graham says holding these hearings to discuss withholding federal funds from illegals makes this the most radical agenda of his lifetime. Prone to hyperbole, are we, Lindsay? Greg Abbott of Texas wants to deny government-funded education and baby formula to what to who he describes as Ill- illegals. But that's not radical. The Hyde Amendment denies federal funding to overseas abortion providers. That's not radical. The Republicans don't want Obamacare to cover abortion or contraception for women. That's not radical. But making sure the federal government stops paying Amazon to abuse one million workers? That's radical. Bernie? Responding briefly to Senator Graham, I think he suggested that a hearing like this is radical. And you know what? I think he's right. In a Congress dominated by corporate lobbyists and wealthy campaign contributors, the idea that we would actually hear from the working class of this country is, in fact, radical. Uh, But I make no apologies uh, for that. To which Miss Lindsay responded. Wow. The uh, hearings were interesting and deserved a lot more coverage than they received. Here's Lindsey Graham explaining why there's no need to have these hearings and why there is no need for the federal government to disbar to withhold contracts to corporations that violate labor law. He says there's already a process in place to enforce labor law. As to the process, there's a process in this country. If you feel like uh, the law has been violated in your efforts to unionize uh, the workforce, you can file a complaint. People will have a hearing. There's a process to debar companies who engage in illegal behavior. There is a process. This is a political process here. This is an effort to get an outcome you want using the United States Senate as your vehicle. This is very dangerous. How dare you use the United States Senate to help Americans get an outcome they want? There's no place in the American Senate for people coming here to get an outcome they want. That's very, very dangerous. If we take this body back, this demonization of individual companies that are subject to the law will cease. Which is why everyone should vote for the GOP They will stop demonizing demons and instead demonize people of color like this guy. Okay. There he is. Let's get to work. Christian Smalls. That's right. Two weeks ago, Christian Smalls, founder of the Amazon Labor Union, had his day in Washington and testified before Bernie's budget committee. He had some choice words for Lindsey Graham. First of all, I want to address Mr. Graham. First off, you know, you're, it sounded like you was talking about more of the companies and the businesses in your speech, but you forgot that the people are the ones who make this 
these companies operate. And if we're not protected, the process for when we hold these companies accountable is not working for us, then that's not what, that's the reason why we're here today. That's the reason why I'm here to represent the workers who make these companies go. And I think that it's in your best interest to realize that it's not a, a left or right thing. It's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's a workers thing. It's a workers issue. And we're the ones that are suffering in the corporations that you're talking about, in the businesses that you're talking about, in the warehouses that you're talking about. So that's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that behalf. And you should listen because we do represent your constituents as well. Um, so just take that into consideration that the people are the ones that make these corporations go. It's not the, it's not the other way around. Well, one would think that Miss Lindsay would then show Christian Smalls a modicum of respect. Instead, Miss Lindsay reprised her role from the Brett Kavanaugh hearings as the rejected suitor. You've determined Amazon is a piece of crap company. That's your political bias. They're subject to the laws of the United States. They shouldn't be subject to this. Yes, an open hearing where Christian Smalls tells Congress and the world how Amazon violates the law. There's there's no reason to do this out in the open. Are we animals? I'm here to say that if you're a business, you can have a say too about your workforce. The idea that you can only get a government contract if you promise to be neutral is ridiculous. That's the law, Miss Lindsay. You have to be neutral. You have to obey the law. The idea that people should be punished for violating the law is ridiculous. You're supposed to be neutral. That's the law of the land. The hearings proceeded to go downhill from there for Lindsay when he tried to lecture Christian Smalls. That's what's radical here is we've taken a single company. You've brought people making accusations. There's a legal system in this country to complain about unfair labor practices. But what you've done here today is you've tried and convicted Amazon. You've taken anecdotal testimony and said, it's, you know, Amazon is the worst uh, offender on the planet uh, of, of, of the workplace. All I can say is that, Mr. Smalls, have you filed a complaint when you thought you were wrong? Have I? Yes. The Attorney General of the State of New York has on my behalf. Okay, but, but you had a process where somebody could advocate for your interest. There is a process that's not working. Exactly. There's a process that, that's not working because Miss Lindsay keeps the process from working by not funding the process. If 70% of people in jail never had a trial, what chance do you think American workers have getting the government to step up and help them stand up to bullies like Jeff Bezos? Okay, Christian Smalls, tell Miss Lindsay how the process is stacked against union organizers. What did Jeff Bezos do? They used the police to intimidate the workers. There was a presence, a large presence in Bessemer. I remember when I went down there for the first campaign, they had police at every entrance. Same thing in Staten Island, they used the police at all our demonstrations. Myself and two other organizers were arrested, not once, but twice. And we're still sitting here as we speak on papers because of that. 
So in America, the police work for management, not labor, which is why police unions are the worst unions in the world. Okay, but Christian Smalls, you just won the union vote at the Amazon Fulfillment Center out on Staten Island. So the process worked, right? So you can have a union shop on Staten Island right now, right? And even though we may have won, we did everything right in Amazon to recognize our victory and comply with our legal obligation to meet us at the bargaining table. But Amazon is refusing to do so. As you mentioned, they're going to stall. They filed in 25 objections and they got the NLRB to move the hearing to a whole nother location. So Miss Lindsay thinks it's insane to deny contracts to a company just because they don't exhibit neutrality in a union vote, even though neutrality is the law. Amazon is legally obligated to be neutral during a union election. Did they obey that law? Were they neutral? Amazon flies in um, hundreds of union busters from all over the country, um, all over, pretty much all over the world. There's some that come from overseas as well. They come into the facility. They isolate workers every single day, question them, pretty much gaslighting them, acting like they are working to improve the conditions. But really, they are just polling to see who's pro-union, who's not. They report that information back to management. But Lindsey Graham says there's a process and all you need to do is go through the process. And it's it's a level playing field. To me, it just sounds like the corporations have the control and they control whatever they want. They break the law, they get away with it. They know that already, that breaking the law during these election campaigns won't be resolved during the election campaigns. So they purposely continue to break the law. All right, Christian, but this is America and workers have their own agency. They can't be intimidated. So imagine being a new hire at Amazon, your second day, you don't even know your job assignment. And the first thing they do is march you into a anti-union propaganda class. That doesn't sound neutral. What else do they do? They post and plaster the building with anti-union propaganda. You walk in, the first thing you see is vote no. Uh, you walk in, the first thing you see is union dues coming out of your check. They calculate union dues without even knowing how a union operates. Um, they pretty much spread rumors and lies about the union members trying to claim that this independent worker-led union that are all Amazon workers are some third party. Um, they lied and said that, um, you know, the union dues, the money is going to go towards um, my financial gain. Um, pretty much they demonized myself as the union representative, um, saying that I have a vendetta because I was fired two years ago wrongfully. That doesn't sound neutral. That sounds like it's against the law. Senator Hollins from Maryland, many of Christian's organizers were fired, including Christian. Do you have any more questions? So, Mr. Smalls, you, you know, Mr. Bryson, uh, why, why do you believe, why did Amazon fire Mr. Bryson? He's black. Number two, he was protesting alongside with myself and others uh, over COVID-19, which was running rampant at the time. New York was the epicenter. So they wanted to once again silence the organizers that were advocating for that. Uh, myself included, you know, I'm still unemployed as we speak. Tell us about Dequan Smith. 
Daquan Smith was fired by the company for organizing. He's still out of a job. He's living in a shelter right now. Uh, we raised money through GoFundMe. And you? Including myself, who's been out of a job for the last two years. Senator? And when, when a company like Amazon takes that kind of action in, in retaliation for uh, a protest, uh, does that make it more difficult for you to organize? Of course it does. It's an intimidation factor. You know, they fire the people that are speaking up. Um, uh, everybody else wouldn't want to come forward because they think it's going to happen to them. So Lindsey Graham is right. There is a process and it's working for everyone except the workers. Let's go back to Senator Chris Von Hollen. So, you know, and, and here's the thing about our system. Um, it took two years or a little longer than two years for this particular case to wind its way uh, through the NLRB and get a decision from an LRB judge, an LRB judge. Um, and, and, you know, by that time, the damage is uh, already done, not just to uh, the person wrongfully fired, but also uh, to the organizing uh, effort. We've just got to dramatically improve uh, this uh, system, and that's why we want to provide additional resources to the NLRB and, and make other reforms. But Lindsey Graham wasn't going to hear any of these hearings. The number of people joining unions in this country is going way down. Is it due to the to the abusive behavior of all the companies or is it maybe people want to make an individual choice? Maybe people want to make an individual individual choice to keep their mouths shut and not get fired. Lindsay, Joe Thompson was on last week's show. They organized for Starbucks. They won two Starbucks elections last week. Joe Thompson did a pretty good job answering Lindsey Graham's question as to why workers will often vote against joining a union. Why do uh, we lose union votes. What, what does corporate America do to stack it against us? It's, it's all about union busting. So Starbucks hired the largest union busting firm in all of, the, all of America, Littler Mendelssohn. And then they come into your store. They tell you if you vote for the union, you're going to lose your benefits. You're going to lose all these additional things. And they really do make it seem that the unions are the devil. You know, it's an outside force attacking us, as Howard Schultz put it. And in the reality, it's 19-year-olds like me who are talking to my coworkers, building a partnership between ourselves to fight for things that we want. And, you know, I, I think when it comes down to it, it's we're losing these votes, not because people aren't pro-union. It's because the union busters are getting their way and the NLRB doesn't have the resources, staffing, and adequate funding to actually stop Starbucks and Amazon and any other union busting company from truly doing the harm that's happening with this union busting across the entire United States. It's about union busting. Tell me about Starbucks intimidation. What happened with you? Tell me about organizing with you and what Starbucks tried to do to you. How did they try to stop you? So they, you know, the first thing they did was cut my hours. You know, I was working about 20 hours a week. That's the, you know, the bare minimum to get benefits. Sometimes I'd work a little bit more up to 25 or 30. Uh, but there was about four or five weeks while I was only working 10 hours a week. And that, that cut my paycheck a lot. Christian Smalls. Thousands of workers across this country who are in the process of organizing, who have to decide to organize in the United States. Um, we want to fill 
that we have protections. <clears throat> we want to feel that the government is allowing us to use our constitutional rights to organize. How dare you? First, we allow you your constitutional rights to organize. Next thing, you'll be demanding your constitutional right to a trial. Lindsey Graham, save us from this anarchy. Tell us you're anything but Christian. Smalls. Boeing is in South Carolina making the 787. There's been efforts to unionize Boeing. They lose. Boeing moved to your state, Miss Lindsay, because it's a so-called right-to-work state. Boeing is a arms contractor. They are in the might-makes-right business. That's why they do business in South Carolina, where might-makes-right. Lindsey Graham would never hold hearings to learn how his constituents in South Carolina, how their lives were destroyed when they attempted to practice their constitutional right to organize Boeing. Time after time, Republicans have proven themselves opposed to democracy, and they have no problem fixing elections, whether they fix elections for government office or whether or not they fix elections on whether or not a shop goes union. For Republicans, elections aren't a popularity contest. Elections are all about serving the corporate powers. Republicans don't want to be liked. They don't care if they win honestly. They hate themselves. They ha Lindsey Graham is a homosexual and he's a Republican because he doesn't come to terms with his own homosexuality. So he hates himself. Lindsey Graham hates who he is. So he's not trying to win a popularity contest. He wants to fix elections so the bullies don't pick at him. Well, also at the hearings was Senator Tim Kaine from Virginia. He was Hillary Clinton's running mate back in 2016. Finally, a Democrat. Let's see how a Democrat treats uh, Christian Smalls. My, my view is coming from the way I come from. I come from a very pro-labor household. He's so folksy, Tim Kaine. You gotta love him, right? He's just rumpled and he comes from a, a pro-labor household. He's an ally. So tell us more about your pro-labor household that you grew up in. My dad ran, was management. He ran an ironworking shop that was organized by the ironworkers. Whoa, 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 whoa. Tim Kaine, your dad owned a shop that was forced to go union so why would you be a pro-union household? And my dad was on the uh, Ironworker Pension Fund as the management representative. Oh, the pension fund. Your dad, let me, let me hear that one more time. This is really important. And my dad was on the uh, Ironworker Pension Fund as the management representative. My dad was on the Ironworkers Pension Fund as management representative. In other words, the only way he would recognize the union is if management allowed him to join the union so that his family could collect all the benefits, like health benefits, for the, the King family. And of course, as a member of the union, he voted inside the union. He attended the meetings. He didn't have to be a spy. He just sat around as a management representative because that's what a union needs, a management representative. And he got to meet all the employees and see what they said at the union meetings. And he was able to spot all the troublemakers so he could fire them because that's exactly how unions are supposed to work. This is a Democrat, by the way.
Harvard Law School graduate, Senator Tim Kaine, author of Stronger Together, Stronger Together. He's so sincere. Stronger Together. So what did your dad teach you? He just taught us growing up, unions and management are not, shouldn't be fighting. It should be a team. And I, I hope that's what we're, I hope we're kind of shooting that we would want to be a team without, without, you know, owners kicking workers around and without employers being demonized. I mean, Democrats, if we, if we want to love jobs, we got to also work with those that, that are building companies that create jobs. First of all, Democrats, real Democrats don't love jobs. We, we, we work for our vacation. That's the first thing. But stronger together, yes, management is stronger when management and labor work as a team, right? That's how, that's, that's how it works, be a team. Even if those jobs are illegal, we still love those jobs. So what about Amazon, Senator Tim? It's illegal. You just heard all the testimony. You went to Harvard Law. You've read everything you need to know about Amazon. You've read about how Amazon breaks union law, tax law, environmental law, workplace safety and discrimination law. How is that labor and management working as that team, your asshole father who took benefits away from some other iron worker who needed it, uh, how is that uh, teamwork? What, what about Amazon? That can't be part of the teamwork that your father trained you to believe in. But I don't think Amazon is a organized criminal syndicate. It definitely is uh, the way they treat their workers, sir, with all yeah, due respect. Yeah, so I mean, I know that that's your opinion and you are as sincere in stating that as I am in saying that I think that's a, a vast overstatement. Tim Kaine, you condescending, patronizing, self-serving piece of shit. Here's something that's not a vast overstatement. You're an asshole. I guess Chuck Schumer's daughter is a better lobbyist for Amazon than we thought. Tim Kaine doing Jeff Bezos's dirty work. Well, in all fairness, Senator, who else loves Amazon besides you? And the customers and the customers and customers that that use Amazon. They use it because they think it's convenient. And during the pandemic, when they were at home and they didn't want to go to some places because they were worried about their health, Amazon usage went up. We can't wave a magic wand and make customers suddenly not like Amazon. So I, I would say um, I, I just don't see it. I hate Tim Kaine more than I hate Lindsey Graham. Tim Kaine's the rumpled, folksy Democrat, the Warren Buffett Democrat who has the nerve to tell Christian Smalls, of all people, that the reason the customers love Amazon is because the workers were the first responders during the pandemic. Customers stayed home, right? And why did they stay home? Because Amazon workers delivered their food and toys. And you know who one of those first responders was? Christian Smalls. And you say that to his face, you piece of shit? Christian Smalls out on Staten Island more than two years ago noticed his first responders weren't uh, fitted with the proper PPE. They weren't getting tested and workers were getting sick and dying. And when he complained, he got fired, Senator. And he's been out of a job for more than two years. You just don't see it. When the Democrats lose in November, Tim Kaine, when America 
loses what's left of this democracy. It's because of Democrats like Senator Tim Kaine, who think it's all about teamwork. Harvard Law School's Chuck Schumer, his Harvard Law School graduate, Jessica Schumer lobbying for Amazon, Harvard Law School's Tim Kaine, Democrats all, they are management. When they go to work for Amazon and they they already are working for Amazon, but when they officially go to work for Amazon, like Jay Carney, they take management leadership positions. A Democratic Party run by management that claims it's working as a team with management, working as a team with the Republican leadership, means the teamwork between the so-called teamwork between labor and management in America is non-existent. It's non-existent. And because Amazon advertises, nobody will dare call Tim Kaine out for what he is for saying that, a bullshit artist. Amazon is in fact an organized criminal organization that owns the White House and the Senate. And with that, Senator Lindsey Graham excused himself from the hearings, but without first admonishing Senator Bernie Sanders. These hearings on the mafia are in no way whatsoever a slur upon the great Italian people. And then, of course, Jeff Bezos stormed into the room and began shouting at Senator Bernie Sanders. This committee owes an apology. This committee owes an apology, apology Senator. Let's talk about democracy. Before I wrap it up, last week I interviewed David DeJong, author of Nazi Billionaires. I believe Karl Marx believed Germany would be the best place to try communism. Not He, he didn't want it for Russia. He wanted it for Germany, right? So is it fair to say instead Germany embraced capitalism? That is very fair to say. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, they did. They did. Absolutely. Okay. At what point did Nazi Germany go from a capitalist state to what? How would you have defined it by 1945? It went from a capitalist state to a capitalist state. It stayed a capitalist state. It stayed a capitalist state. Yeah. So what does that tell us about capitalism? There is no there is no right or wrong with capitalism. It's always money. It's at the bottom line, it's always profit. It's always about money. It can it can turn into capitalist acts can turn into crime, right? As we saw with the Nazi. And even right. then it still had the veneer of a business transaction, right, in Germany. It's still at the veneer of a business transaction, of a, regu of a regular business transaction. So capitalism with no guardrails allows people like Hitler and his supporters to do unconscionable things and sleep at night. It's just transactional. Completely, yes, that is correct. Right. These, these men, the men I write about, the, the, the five patriarchs I write about, had zero qualms about exploiting the system, profiting from it. Christian Smalls? I'm going to let you know right now that on behalf of the Amazon Labor Union and the hundreds of thousands of workers across this country, that we will continue to organize. Anything else? We need to pass the PRO Act. 
so that workers are protected and workers are encouraged to organize. Okay, and anything for Senator Lindsey Graham or Tim Kaine? This is not a left or right thing. This is a working class issue. And the workers at the bottom are the ones who make these corporations go. Senator Graham? Wow. (laughs) We'll be right back. Chairs in the specimen shop. The back and outdated don't ever seem to stop. A man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are coming, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins and said, vote no. But maybe this year union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this decimal floor. I'm hoping the union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. Possible, legal, and illegal. 
to defeat union organizing efforts. The National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, found that Amazon's flagrant disregard of the law infringed on workers' legal rights to a free and fair union election in Bessemer, Alabama, ruling that... Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Greg Barak is the co-founder and North American editor of the Journal of White Collar and Corporate Crime, an emeritus professor of criminology and criminal justice at Eastern Michigan University. He is the author and editor of 20 books on crime justice, media violence, criminal law, homelessness, and human rights. And we have some breaking news. He was originally going to come on to talk about his new book, Criminology on Trump, but something more, well, not more important, but something pretty bad happened that uh, kind of makes sense in light of what I was just talking about. Welcome, Greg uh, Barak. We're going to be talking about corporate. We have to unmute you, Greg. So we're not gonna, we're not going to talk about your your book today. You're going to come back as soon as possible. Let me unmute you. This some more corporates. You're being silenced. No matter you unmute yourself, Greg. See, he's being silenced. We're, we're having the editor in chief of Consortium News on the show with Peter B. Collins later tonight. They're being silenced by PayPal. Can you hear me now? I can, can hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Okay. okay, Professor Barack, tell us the type of corporate censorship that you're now experiencing. Uh, as part of the uh, digital media campaign um, that I launched uh, from the UK on, on Friday, some five days before the publication of Criminology on Trump tomorrow, um, I learned uh, earlier today that um, a podcast, uh, a YouTube video, and some other material were not being um, distributed on Facebook outside the United Kingdom. It seems that there's a, a relationship, an advertising marketing agreement, which prohibits uh, a country from distributing this kind of what they call political and social information um, unless the company has officers registered in the country. So this material was going out on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and other social media, and it's going out or was supposed to be going out on Facebook but it is only being distributed on Facebook in the United Kingdom because the company that is doing this work for me is licensed in the United Kingdom. So let me just so in, in defense, let me play sure. the devil's advocate. Right. And Mark Zuckerberg is the devil. There is a belief that there has been foreign interference in American elections. Russian oligarchs live in London. So is it possible that Facebook is cracking down on Russian oligarchs interfering in our elections? That would be the excuse Sheryl Sandberg would lean into. 
that's my understanding precisely of their explanation. Um, I think they need to be uh, distinguishing between Russian oligarchs and Native American who's, you know, working here in the United States and has written a book um, without leaving the United States. Right, right. Does that speak to more of just how big Facebook is and why it needs to be broken up? Um, you cannot, for example, let me give you an example. Uh, believe it or not, I years ago had a Facebook page, like a fan page that people set up. And I had, I, I'm not, a lot of fans. I know this is hard to believe on the Facebook page. One day it just disappeared. I was the owner of it and it disappeared. And I even put money into it. I bought some advertising. This was like when during Obama's first term or second term. One day it just disappears. I write to Amazon. There's no appeal process. Nobody gets back to me. Could not hear back. It's impossible for them to answer to their two billion customers. They're too big to answer to their two. And so I just ate it. I just took it. The answer is, we need a Justice Department that is going to break Facebook up into 1,000 tinier pieces, right? Well, I, I would not resist the breakup of, of monopolies of, of, of any kind, Facebook in, in, included. Um, it, it's possible that Facebook could be regulated, and I don't mean internally, externally, but that isn't something that I am an, an expert about. But with respect to Facebook, um, there's another issue that it's not what it once was in the sense that um, people under 40 don't really use Facebook. It's for the older uh, generation. I call it the obituaries. So not, right now, that? I call Facebook the obituaries. Okay. When I go to Facebook, I want to. I, I go. Who's sick? Who's dying? Fair, fair enough. I mean, it is a family affair, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So you think it should be regulated? Can something that big ever be regulated? Don't they just capture the regulators? Well, as, as someone who has written a book called Theft of a Nation: Wall Street Looting and Federal Regulatory Colluding, certainly. Wall Street had captured uh, the Department of Justice and the SEC and other regulatory agencies because 10,000 criminals and not one was charged with security fraud. Right. So um, they were captured. Um, I still believe they could be regulated and controlled if you put in the dollars into the regulatory agencies and gave them the amount of money. Let me give you uh, an illustration. Uh, if we look at um, financial crime, we look at corporate crime, we look at white collar crime, that cost us about $3 trillion a year. If we add up all the street and ordinary crime, that comes to about a trillion dollars a year. We have 700,000 agents of law enforcement uh, intervening in that criminality in the street. By contrast, 
with respect to the three trillion, we have less than a thousand persons going after those criminals. And every time it's brought up that we need more money for the IRS, there is resistance and pushback. So, you know, we are under fine, uh, underfunded for uh, regulatory agencies. That's not by chance, of course. Right. We, we are talking with Greg Barak, and he has a new book out. How many of you, this one is called Criminology on Trump. How many, you've written dozens of books, right? Well, I've written 10 and I've edited 10 to okay. be precise, to be precise. Let me ask you a question. I, I agree with everything you stand for. And I, I can't wait for you to come back and talk about Trump and the book. Let me propose a, a new way of thinking for all of us. We fetishize the New Deal as Democrats, don't we? We, we fetishize the New Deal, yes. Yes. Right? Okay. That big government with all its flaws, the administrative state with all its flaws, is still better than states' rights. Like leaving it up, if you leave it up to the rubes uh, in, you know, in smaller states and municipalities, they'll corruption, racism, xenophobia uh, will take charge. We need a big administrative state in Washington, D.C., teaching Americans how to behave. That's a kind of paternalistic view of of government, which I subscribe to. I think people in Washington know better the same way professors and teachers and doctors know better than ordinary Americans for the most part. For the most part, I agree with you, but I think we need to teach that big government how it needs to behave. And we need to rearrange uh, the political and economic arrangements in which they operate. You know, it is much more a structural problem than a problem of agency or individuals doing the right or wrong thing. Uh, individuals are doing what your your guests that I saw from an, a previous show said. It's about money, money, and money. Right. Uh, and, and that's really what's operating our, our social and political and economic policy today. Right. And so we're on the brink of cataclysmic climate change and the end of the republic as we know it. Yes. Maybe the answer is for New Deal Democrats to embrace states' rights, that we break up not just corporations, the big corporations, because we also break up big government and revert back to local we, uh, Chuck Schumer's idiot daughter who, who graduated from Harvard Law School is a Democrat, fancies herself a liberal, and she's a lobbyist for Amazon. OK, she's a waste of a human being, a waste of a well, a Harvard Law School degree is already a waste of an education. And she's There's a, waste a lot of, of wasted Harvard educations that are your members of the United States Senate. Yeah. Right including uh, Chuck Schumer is a waste of a human being and the waste of a of everything. So having it all centralized in Washington, D.C. creates a bubble of mischief 
And maybe we need to fight the same fight that the Republicans fight, and that is locally, states' rights. That would mean Jessica Schumer would have to move to North or South Dakota and deal with, you know, the, the Democrats with their elite degrees would have to go live with all the people they have contempt for. But that's the only way we're going to win this thing. Staying in Washington, New York or Hollywood and dictating our our morals and mores to the flyover people, it doesn't cut it anymore. And I think it's it's a really a matter of doing what Grover Norquist take a wrecking ball to to corporate America so you don't need to these big agencies to regulate these behemoths. That's how you get rid of the the revolving door. Everything has to get smaller. Smaller is better. Um, smaller may be better. I mean, sustainable is better. It yeah. depends if you're large or big is really working to accumulate capital or to, you know, accumulate survival. But to your point of, I agree with you that the struggle that the Democrats need to fight is a local one. We have 26 states that are, you know, under siege at the moment from the Republicans and they're taking charge isn't going to, you know, do us any good, whether those large corporations remain standing or broken up. But I, I do agree with you that the Democrats need to locally fight for every office um, that right. the Republicans are trying to take control of for Donald. Right. Here's what I want to do, Professor. Okay. I would like you to keep coming back because you've written on everything I care about. These are the titles of your books. Give Me Shelter, A Social History of Homelessness in Contemporary America. Theft of a Nation, Wall Street Looting and Federal Regulatory Colluding. Unchecked Corporate Power, Why the Crimes of Multi... I'm laughing because <laughs> like, I need to have you on all the time. Uh, unchecked. Well, I, 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 if I could get comfortable with this setting, I'd like to be a partner. Great. Sure. Uh, unchecked corporate power. Why the crimes of multinational corporations are root, routinized away and what we can do about it. And your newest book is Criminology on Trump. Go to gregbarak.com, G-R-E-G-G-B-A-R-A-K.com to purchase the book. It's published by Rutledge. Is that the right? Right. You, you can go to Rutledge, Taylor and Francis. You can go to Amazon.com. I mean, speaking of Amazon, um, we're, we're trending in the books published tomorrow and books soon to be published. We're trending number one. So Amazon is, you know, a vehicle for me to get out my message at the moment. <laughs> right. We don't trash Amazon on this show. <laughs> Did we say anything bad about Amazon? So, I don't think so. No, I, I, I didn't hear. I didn't hear anything. I didn't, I, I, we, yeah. we all agree that they're a criminal enterprise. So, right. yeah. oh, okay. So we we only have five minutes left. Let's give a preview of the book and your next appearance on the show. Everybody should go by the criminology of Donald Trump. Um, all right. Well, in, in the few minutes that we have, let me. 
tell you, your audience, uh, why my book is different than the thousands of the other books that have been written on Trump. Uh, to begin with, I've written a criminal biography of Donald Trump and the presidency, unlike any other book, uh, whether it's written by critics, analysts, uh, journalists, or family members. Uh, namely, I've examined uh, Donald Trump through the lens of criminology. Uh, what does that mean? It means that I've given Trump his rightful place in the history or uh, in the U.S. political history of lawlessness, crime, and corruption. I mean, so, you know, this is what they look, you can look forward to. Yeah. Um, I presented a case study in law and lawlessness, justice, and the impunity of the powerful white-collar criminals in America. And thirdly, from the perspective of selective enforcement and differential application of the law, I've provided an investigation into a lifetime of fraud and corruption as exhibited by Trump, some of his family members and close associates. Selective. What was the term? Selective. Selective enforcement and differential application of the law. Explain that. That's the framework in which we all should examine everyday crime, whether it's civil, criminal, whether it's in district court, whether we're, we're dealing with the Supreme Court. It's all about selective enforcement and differential application. Wow. Wow. Meaning if. I'm walking through the streets of New York and I'm white and I jaywalk, the cops don't stop me. But if well, I'm a, in part that's but if I'm a person, true. But if I'm a person of color, that you're 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 about to get into trouble. So you might be stopped. But I really wasn't talking so much about the racial um, discrimination uh, and the racism as much as I was talking about rich people don't hold up 7-Elevens and, and poor people don't price fix. For one, you can do 40 years, and for the other, you can get a bonus. Wow, wow. All right, Greg Barak, his new book, and I, I gotta get you back on as soon as possible. Is I, I'm available. Criminology on Trump. It is uh, already trending on Amazon, and Facebook is trying to silence it. So it's indirectly, a, yes, that's yeah. true. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call you tomorrow, and we'll get you back as soon as possible. Uh, it's thank a, you, Greg. Thank you, Greg. Thank Appreciate you. it, David. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Now, let us go to Jason Miles and Pascal Robert. They are co-hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast. Pascal has been away for a while, and I don't see uh, Jason. Are you there, Pascal? Oh, I just muted him. I, I, I see somebody. Okay. Pascal. Are you there? Yes, I am, but I can't. Um, I can't remove my video for some reason. It's not letting me. Hmm. Okay. I'll ask you to start the video now. There you go. Yeah. 
And you're on set, unlike Jason, who's too good to be on set. He has to be out on the porch while the, the wind blows against the microphone and the, the sun makes it Jason impossible. has copious uh, production duties that require him to move around and be more mobile than I do. So right. whatever I do, appearances, I try to be in studio. I was teasing him last week because I was watching This Is Revolution and it looked not only, you know, is the content great, but it looked great. And I, then I look at Jason and I'm going, well, he looks great. He sounds great. And then he comes on my show and it's like, I told him I felt like the, the cheap podcast date in the back seat of a Pinto. Hey, let's talk, go yeah. ahead. Uh, you, did you want to say something? I wanted to talk about white supremacy and capitalism. Absolutely. What I want to say is just thank you very much for inquiring about me in my absence. I had a little down spell in terms of my health, but I'm doing fine right now. And thank you very much for your fans and your audience being concerned about my care and my well-being. But I'm doing fine and I'm up to speed right now. I was just kind of overburdened with a lot of work obligations at the same time. But thank right. you for your care and consideration. Right. Uh, well, we're, we're, you are a... It's a it's an honor to have you on the show and, and you've made it so much better. And uh, we, you were missed in, in the short time that you've been doing this show. The lack of your presence created a hole. And uh, oh, we're I'm very honored that you feel that way. Well, and uh, so uh, let's talk about white supremacy, the, the, the stubbornness of white supremacy. It plays out in buffalo this weekend yes it did your thoughts please well one of the things that i wanted to talk about is that there has been an increase in the prevalence of the term utility of the term white supremacy to explain the day-to-day -day, again a fancy word we use is quotidian which is the normal roundabout way in which black people interface with the ways institutional and social mechanisms affect their lives in american society and my goal here in this conversation is not to deny the fact that there is a racialized aspect to the way in which black brown or even sexualized way in which women or or gendered way in which people of sexual orientation interface with structural mechanisms in our society but what my point i'm trying to say is that what happened in buffalo is clearly a case of white supremacy in that the modus that motivated the actor the killer the assailant in that case was an antagonism towards brown people and that he wished death upon them and that there was a, a sick rather almost evil like hatred and contempt he had for them that motivated his actions there are segments large segments of american society that are motivated by that type of contempt and yes there have even been institutions in american society particularly throughout the 19th century and slavery that have been motivated by that contempt my position is that american society does not have to have that level of racialized contempt to actually implement the harms that it does on otherized communities, racialized or other, because within the system of capitalism, the demand and requirement to have a surplus faction 
of the society rendered to obsolescence requires that that carnage be visited upon those those institutional members of society that are left out and that it does not require something as metaphysical as white supremacy to be as quotidianly oppressive and harmful. And a perfect example that I shared with your producer, producer is gentrification. Oftentimes, people will say that gentrification is a manifestation of white supremacy, as if to mystify it, as if there's some kind of like racialized Klansmen sitting sitting beyond the bank, the bank and mortgage, you know, real estate development industry saying, we're going to move all these black people out of these communities and have urban yuppies come in and take their property. When in reality, when you look at the basic fundamental functions of capitalism within the real estate market, the marketization of value demands that profitization and increase of value is going to always benefit those who have capitalized and have capital. And one of the realities of the systems of colonialism, racism, imperialism over time is that because those, those powers that were the seats of those exploitive enterprises were populated by European descended people, it's logical that European descended people will be the beneficiaries of those actual parasitic mechanisms. What happens in the United States is that the advent of deeming all of those European descended people that traditionally and normally would have been at each other's throats and had been throughout history is that the gloss of whiteness as an operating mechanism to unify them is literally created in the United States in the 1600s, largely because of Bacon's rebellions and other rebellions in which poor whites and blacks and Native Americans are unifying to challenge the ruling class to create this illusion. Whiteness is an American product. It really is. The notion and concept of whiteness is an American product. And I think that part of the problem of conflating whiteness with systems of capitalism, imperialism, and the other vehicles is that it renders the behavior to the pathological abstractions of a diseased people from Europe instead of a, a scientific system that also disadvantages those people from European background who are not of the class that are the beneficiaries and the orchestrators of how that system functions. Are you following what I'm saying, Devin? Yeah. I don't want to feel like yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's so much, as they say, to unpack. Uh, Rodrigo has a question. Rodrigo is our correspondent in Mexico. He comes on at the end of every show. And uh, we we have you on our show because of Rodrigo, and he wants, if we could make a minor detour out of respect for Rodrigo to ask you this question, then come back to what you were talking about, because uh, he wants to know uh, how long it took Haiti to pay the reparations for liberating the slaves, which I think pretty much sums up <laughs> what you just said. So give us a little back. Excuse me for one second, if you if you may. Contextualize this for us. Reparations. So so when we talk, you've mentioned this before and we've talked about this on the show. Slave reparations. Yes. Now. In the Haitian context, would you like me to let me let me just tell you a quick as a comedian, there was a joke that I did briefly and it was I. I believe 
in reparations for slavery. My great-great-great-grandfather was uh, uh, an integral part of the slave trade. And after the Civil War, well, after and he owned a plantation and after the Civil War, he lost all his property and I'd like reparations. I did that, you know, to be as offensive as I possibly could until somebody pointed out the reason it's not funny is because it's true. Mm. I, I was so ignorant about reparations and slavery. I didn't know that slaveholders actually got reparations after they mm -hmm. freed. I mean, the, to me, I, to me, I, I was so ignorant and a product of America's, so, you know, good education. They, that the idea of slaveholders getting reparations w was funny to me because it was so obscene, but this is something that actually happened. That's correct. That's correct. Well, in the context that Rodrigo was talking about into the Haitian Revolution, after Haiti won its independence from France after vanquishing three empires, Spain, France, and Great Britain, in 1804, Haiti became an independent republic. But what happens is in 1825, in order to get recognition and have the capacity to trade with foreign powers, particularly France, Haiti is basically under the threat of you know, return occupation by France, required to pay compensation to France for the vanquishing of France as a colonial empire in Haiti in gold bullion, in solid gold, for what in, in today's compensation would be equivalent of what would be about $23 billion. It takes Haiti from 1825 to 1947, a few years after my father was born, to pay this off. And it is a significant drain on the coffers of the country. And one of the major reasons why Haiti was basically pauperized after its independence to maintain its sovereignty as a country and avoid the possibility of recall a week uh, having to co confront the French as a colonial empire. That's incredible. Up in, so up until 1947. That's correct. The French government was yes. collecting reparations. Yes, from Haiti. From, from Haiti because they could no longer own slaves. Correct. They, they, they were no longer a, the colonial masters of the pre-revolutionary colony of Haiti. But my father was supposed to storm the beaches of Normandy to free these people from the ravages of Hitler. That's that's correct. Yes, because we would hate. And Belgium, free Belgium from Hitler. Well, the thing that's funny is that France went on to use the paradigm that it used in Haiti in many of its post-colonial African uh, quote unquote properties, if you will, and also required them after colonial independence in the 20th century to pay France reparations. Senegal, uh, uh, Benin, Benin Dahomey, Mali, many of those countries still play a paid a, rep a compensatory compensation to France to this day for the benefit of being colonized by the French and all the investment they did while they sucked, raped, and pillaged these African countries. Have they ever figured out who was worse, King Leopold of Belgium or Hitler? Numerically? Well, Leopold killed someone in excess of 10 billion people, I believe. 10 billion or 10 million? 10 million, 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 million. Excuse me. 10 million. 10 million. Yes. King Leopold of Belgium, which yes. if the American people knew that in the lead up to World War II, that would be a hard set. Well, no, actually, 
No, probably not. The American well, I mean, the thing is, though, you know, we're, we're diverting into our subject matter, but one of the things that we realize is that in this particular era where we talk about critical race theory and people don't want to hear things about the ugly past of American history because they're going to, quote, unquote, make white people ashamed, my goal in conveying this history is not to make white people feel evil. I don't want to impute guilt on you, David Feldman, because frankly, from what I know, you might have been a descendant of poor underclass Jewish immigrants who were barely being able to survive in tenement houses in New York City. I'm not saying that's I'm a direct descendant of Judah Benjamin, the Secretary of State uh, for uh, Jefferson Davis uh, in the Confederacy. I'm kidding. Is that a fact? I'm I'm kidding. There was a Jewish. There was a Jewish Secretary of State of, of the Confederacy, and I went really. <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But my, the goal that I'm trying to demonstrate is in, in that that I think is important to share these narratives is to understand that these nation states, all of them, are the products of the collusion of ruling classes of people which are trying to protect their interests in capital and wealth. And as someone who is a socialist or someone who uses Marxism as a tool to criticize capitalism, I I want to share this issue to, to, to institutionalize in people's minds and instrumentalize the ability to criticize how the social hierarchies in our society are basically based on an extraction using violence and oppression to maintain the functionality of our systems and that if we are acknowledging of that truth we have the capacity to re-implement systems that are based on more humane just and equitable means of distribution that don't require so much you know rapacious extraction from individuals and suffering of human life in tackling white supremacy and critical race theory is it necessary for all of us to learn about our own prejudices, our stubborn bigotry, to, to recognize that in all of us, these bigotry? That's a very good question, because I'm a little concerned about what I call the HRization of racial discourse. In other words, re- reducing racial conflict to how I feel about people, how I treat individually, because what happens is that you end up becoming an enterprise rooted in talking about how white people feel about other people and how black people feel about other people. And we don't spend time talking about institutional mechanisms and structures and societies that are rooted in hierarchical means of extraction that are causing the requirements of these surplus members of society to be denied access to redistributive access of policy, wealth, and economic equity. So what I'm saying is that I do believe it's going to be difficult to try to base a society on a more equitable distribution of resources and goods and services. If everyone's saying, I don't like Mexicans because those people are X, Y, Z. I don't like Haitians because those people are X, Y, Z. I don't like Italians. I don't like Germans. I don't like Jews. Obviously, at a basic level, we're going to have to dismantle the types of stereotypes, harms, and mechanisms that create those types of antagonisms within those individual groups. And we're going to have to deprogram away 
people away from that type of horrific type of you know those stereotyping that causes that but on a more lead larger or metal level i think what's more important is to start at the top and talk about how the structures of our society whether they be banking finance real estate healthcare, education higher education universities schools institutions marriage divorce child care are rooted in institutional mechanisms that promote a certain hierarchical system that's traditionally been not only so much about benefiting white men, because it wasn't just white men, it was white men of means who were property owners who were of a certain class. Returning to gentrification uh, and how you're saying it's not a part of white supremacy. It's a function. I don't want to say, I don't want to necessarily say it's not a part of white supremacy. I'm saying it reducing it to white supremacy obscures the understanding of how capitalism is a mechanism that facilitates its operation. So I grew up in the New York metropolitan area. When I was a kid, Harlem was, had its, you know, you wanted to go to Harlem, but not certain parts of Harlem. And the more I went back to Harlem and continue to go back there, it's been gentrified, but by African-Americans. Correct. That's a very salient, salient observation. People fail to realize that one of the reasons why I don't like the racialization of these kind of mechanisms of economic extraction, extraction that also have racialized harm is that it's very oftentimes that you can have black people who are elites or a better economic or socioeconomic pedigree who are avid participants in the systems that disproportionately adversely affect poor and working class black people. And that's actually one of the functions of what we talk about often on this is revolution podcast that we discuss on your show, the black political class, how we actually have a cadre of black elites who are pedigreed, educational, professional, professional managerial class blacks who go along and get along with the system because the way in which American capitalism has worked is that they have been able to be quote unquote integrated into will, if you will, into a functionality in the system. But yet because American capitalism with the rise of the fancy word of neoliberalism that we use, which is a fancy word for a form of privatization, if you will, is requiring larger numbers, not larger numbers, but numbers of poor and black working class, larger numbers now to be marginalized even more. They become beneficiaries of a system that people who are their racial kins in so if you believe in such a thing as racial kinship are suffering from but at the same time use the charade of racial kinship to say we are uplifting the race by being here in our gentrified harlem that just kicked six thousand people out of subsidized housing that's forcing them into some tenement housing you know homelessness or maybe having to move down south to all kinds of horrible housing when bill clinton left the presidency he put his office in Manhattan, in Harlem, I think either next door or across the street from the Apollo. And this was, you know, 22 years ago. Everybody said, wow, isn't that great? You yep. know, he hasn't forgotten his roots. He, he was America's first black president and he's propping up business in Harlem, not Midtown Manhattan. What does that say? The fact that Bill Clinton, I, where's the Clinton Foundation? Isn't that? I don't, I don't know if the Clinton Foundation is headquartered in Harlem, but what I'm saying, what it says is that Bill Clinton is a very shrewd understand, understander and realizing that you can get 
a pretty good discount in real estate by investing in Harlem on the brink of it actually being able to skyrocket upward while being a facilitator of the same gentrification that you can profit from. Because one of the poss- one of the realizations people don't have is that people ask, well, what is the money that's in poor communities? Because if it's expensive to invest in a rich neighborhood, i.e. you need $500,000 to get a return on an investment of 25%, if you can invest a dollar in a bad neighborhood but get a return on an investment of 75%, it's a better investment. So sometimes in poor, disheveled communities, the investment is cheaper, but the ROI is higher. The return on investment. Exactly. The return on investment. The return on investment. What could New York do? Uh, th- what they what it could do is do what I think France does. Pardon the, I don't think France is a role model in any way. Maybe in some ways it is. I was told that in France you can't build luxury apartments without those apartments also having low income. Mixed use, mixed use housing. And do you believe that done properly could work? I think mixed use housing can work. I think that these, I think that we should stop believing that there are silver bullet solutions for these problems. And I think that we should address what it's a fancy Marxist term. It's called ideological superstructure. We use it here a lot. What does that basically mean? The actual social mechanisms in our society, our social system, our healthcare system, our educational system, the value system that we permeate in terms of our lack of or fracturing family structures, the thing, the, 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 the video games that kids play, the things that cause antisocial behavior, the things that cause people in urban environments to think that acting, behaving in antisocial ways and engaging in antisocial behavior that perpetuates crime, that helps facilitate capitalism's relegating them to surplus should be removed from being internal mechanisms in our society or else we're just going to be pouring money into things that change nothing because we have to find ways to change the structural means by which human beings interact in American society to disincentivize the behaviors that allow antisocial behavior that is oftentimes rendered criminal that disproportionately affects communities that are being harmed by this type of gentrification. Well, I've been uh, attacking complexity on this show since the beginning. I call it the uh, the complexity industrial complex. Hyper-educated people like yourself, you're a lawyer. It's yeah. in your best interest for things to be more complex than they they have to be. The shooting in Buffalo, I'm a reductionist. That was guns in my estimation. When all is said and done, uh, had I maintain, I'd like you to respond to this, that white supremacy is, is stubborn in this country. As you say, we invented race to justify slavery. And, uh, but it's going to be hard to stop people from being white supremacists or hating Muslims or hating gays or hating Jews or hating women. We should work at that, but we should first and foremost make sure that nobody who thinks that way has ready access to an assault weapon. 
That's the first. Oh. That's the priority in my estimate. First and foremost is before we police people's thoughts, which I believe in, we first make sure they don't have access to guns. I agree with that. I, I believe that there needs to be a qualitative form of gun control in American society. And I think that part of the thing that is talking about ideological superstructure right. is that we, we have a gun culture, if you will. I don't like to use the word gun culture. We have a gun fetishization in our society that is unhealthy. What's going to happen? What would happen? Uh, we have to wrap it up. So pl please, I, I love I love you and I love having you on the show. And, I've often said that if more and more Muslims dressed as Muslims and more and more black people showed up at gun shows, we would have gun, sh gun law in America. That if we could get more black people dressing up like Black Panthers and walking around at gun shows and joining the NRA, suddenly the police chiefs would be saying, you know what? Maybe there should be an assault weapons ban. I'm now discovering uh, Black Panthers are coming back. More and more African-Americans, at least the press is covering their open care, their concealed carry. What do you think about that? <laughs> is, is there any? Well, I mean, the thing is funny. Historically, though, what is actually the first time the NRA supported gun uh, gun legislation was actually around the Black Panther Party in the 1960s in California. I forget, I'm sure you probably remember the name of the legislation. I forget the name. I think it starts with an H, but there was actually a legislation that was promoted in California to limit uh, public open carry laws. And it was supported by the NRA directly as a consequence of the Black Panther Party. And Reagan. So they, and Reagan. Yes, and Reagan. That's correct. So times. There is historical precedent to demonstrate the, 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 the example that you put forth that if African-Americans were to open carry any kind of militant, radical, radical political posturing in opposition to, say, police, police homicide or things of that nature, that there would be very likely some type of blowback that the NRA might support in terms of gun regulation. So there is precedent for that. There is. We have to wrap it up. But there is video on YouTube of Black Panthers patrolling Oakland and Berkeley, when the, they would drive around, they would wait for the police to pull somebody over. And then the Black Panthers would get out of the car, brandishing weapons, perfectly legal, and monitor the police, not with iPhones, with right. guns. Right. By the way, there was the Mulford Act. Someone just put up the Mulford Act in 1967, which had banned carrying loaded weapons. That was the law. That was passed. What, what was is, before you go, what is the law? regarding uh, Afri African-Americans or any Americans showing up to a police stop, uh, open carry, concealed carry? I mean, can you, can you carry an assault weapon like uh, Rittenhouse did? When the That's a state-by-state -state jurisdictional matter. And it depends on what the laws of the state are. I would guarantee you that in states in like New York, that's almost impossible because they are not open carry states. But in southern states, some certain states like maybe Texas or otherwise, it may be possible. But they may have municipal regulations that definitely adhere to determining whether or not those open carry laws allow you to carry a weapon so much in terms of proximity to a police stop or interrogation. Yeah. Well, uh, fascinating. I'm glad you're back. Pascal Robert. 
is co-host of the This Is Revolution podcast. Follow them wherever fine podcasts are. And I'm glad no, you I'm glad you're back. It's it's really great to see you. I appreciate being here. Thank with you. you. Thank you. Well, you're listening to the David Feldman Show, DavidFeldmanShow.com. I'm gonna put my call into Howie Klein the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive candidates around America. And we're going to talk about the upcoming elections, assuming my phone is going to work. Howie, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, let's do your sound, if you don't mind, because... Are you there? I'm here. Okay. Good. Okay. Wait, I mean, you call you call me on my cell phone, so a different a different number than usual. You want me to call you on the other number? Well, you know what? Uh, maybe not, because you you've told me that after a certain amount of time, the other number uh, goes out. <clears throat> I don't have that with anybody else, but maybe let's try it on the cell, and maybe it won't go out, and then we know what the problem was. Okay. Good. Howie Klein, founder, treasurer, Blue America Pack. They raise money for left wing and a lot more socialist candidates and read them over it down with tyranny. One of the by the way, thank you for David DeJong and Nazi billionaires. I kind of hogged the the conversation. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. He'll, he'll he'll do it with us again e easily. I mean, OK, in fact, you, you might want to just have him on yourself now that you've met him. Why don't you just have him come on your show? for an hour or something, and you could talk with him to your heart's content. He, he was great. He so, is great, and his book is great, too. I'm reading it now. Okay, so uh, ha having guests on the show instead of you as the guest, we have not been able to go over He's the so midterm. Now, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. We're getting, we have not been able to go over the midterms. A lot has been going on. Tomorrow, we have midterms in Pennsylvania. Where else do we have Oregon? Uh, yes. Well, you know, we, we I have a post that I, I put up, uh, in fact, today about it so people can read about it. But I, we'll talk about it now as well. So, you know, there are a lot of um, what I would call entertaining uh, uh, primaries tomorrow. Well, I mean, we're going to talk about Tuesday as though it were tomorrow, right? Because I know yeah. in some cases they hear the show uh, today in some places they hear it tomorrow right so i don't want to confuse people but I, well, whenever i say anything about it it's it's, it's tuesday right uh, that's the, uh, yes so you know like just take idaho for example so there's no there's nothing going on with democrats there but there's an extremely entertaining uh primary going on between a hardcore conservative governor brad little and a hardcore fascist lieutenant governor, and and Trump, of course, um, endorsed the hardcore uh, fascist uh, McKeegan. I don't know exactly how you pronounce her name. She's a crackpot out of her mind. So there's nothing there for progressives except to laugh. And there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, races like that tomorrow all around the country. However. What I'd like to talk about, if you don't mind, are not those races, not those like funny, insane, crazy races, except maybe one of them, uh, and instead just talk about where progressives are running. And that's what's really important to us, that progressives beat blue dogs and other conservative Democrats and be in position 
to then beat uh, Republicans in November. So, um, but let me go to the exception first. And there's, and, and there's a reason for going to the exception. So that's North Carolina's 11th district. In fact, we're talking about North Carolina in general now. So, but I'll start not with a Democratic primary, but I'll start with the Republican primary because that is um, uh, Madison Cawthorn's seat. And Trump did come out today and he said, oh, poor, you know, Matt has made some mistakes. He won't do it again. Let's give him a second chance. So that was Trump's second endorsement of, uh, of Madison Cawthorn. And uh, although he's refused to make a TV ad for Cawthorn, Cawthorn knows that he, he's in danger of losing. Now, we don't have to go over all the reasons, right? I mean, everyone yeah, knows. We, yeah, it's, everyone knows, right? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but Cawthorn is in trouble of, uh, of losing his seat. He went to Trump, begged Trump for an ad. Trump wouldn't do it. Uh, can I use a dirty word here? I would prefer it if you didn't, but go ahead. Well, I don't want to if I if I'm going to embarrass you, but um, uh, let me get my pearl, let me put my okay, well, let me okay, put my pearls on first, so I have something to clutch. No, no, I'm going to say it without using the dirty word. Okay, Trump has been questioning because everyone in the media knows this, and Trump found out if Madison Cawthorn has been having sex with his male third cousin once removed. And um, and he has, but Trump decided to reendorse him anyway. But the reason that this has more than just cousin, daughter, value, what's the difference? Right. The reason that this has uh, more value than just entertainment value is because if Cawthorn wins, that makes it possible for a Democrat to beat him. If another the the guy who the the uh, you know McCarthy and the whole Republican establishment has gotten behind is just as con when it comes to votes, it's just as conservative as Cawthorn. There's not, there's never going to be a single vote where, where Cawthorn is more conservative than this, uh, this state legislator who's, who's running this guy, uh, Edwards, who's running he's just as conservative. He's just not insane. But the fact that Cawthorn is so insane to let him stay in, in that seat. That's what I say. Now, Democrats in the district hate me when I say this, but let him stay there He's not going to lose to a Democrat this time because it's a Republican wave uh, cycle. But next time or the time after, there will be a Democratic wave. A blue wave will come again sometime. And that is when you can take out Cawthorn. Cawthorn. But the district is too red to take out just a normal conservative Republican. You need someone who's completely out of their mind like Cawthorn is out of his mind. So that's why I brought up that 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 one. You know, it's interesting. There's a dilemma here. I find going into tomorrow, there are candidates Trump endorses. I'm terrified of Trump and his wing of the Republican Party taking power. But there's this other part of me that thinks, well, maybe if he his candidates all get the nomination, then the Republicans will go down in flames. It's so. What do we it want? It depends on the it depends on the district or the state. So, just as an example, uh, in Pennsylvania, this is what I didn't want to do is talk about these entertaining races, but I will. Uh, in Pennsylvania, the guy who's running for governor, Mastriano, Mastriano, there's no possibility that Mastriano can win uh, a general election. Mastriano is certifiably insane. Mastri Ma I have, uh, any day now, I expect when he's on stage talking that men with, with big necks are going to come and take him away to a mental 
Constitution. Guy is completely sick, out of his mind, participated in in the insurrection at at the Capitol. It it, it will eventually probably be like, uh, go to jail for it. But he's a dangerous, crazy person. Can he win a Republican primary? Oh, yes, he's going to win. And Trump endorsed him. He can win the Republican primary because they're all insane. This guy's a state senator, and he and he wins re-election because he's in a really crazy red district where they haven't had a Democrat win anything in that district since FDR took it in 1932. FDR didn't win it when he ran again, but in 1932 he won it. The last time any Democrat won any anything in that district, they that's Mastriano's district. So yes, he can win, and he will win the Republican nomination. Can he win the governorship? No. In fact, the, the, the Democrat who's, who's running um, in Pennsylvania for governor, Josh, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Josh Shapiro, I think is his name. He's the attorney general now. He's so excited the way you are about crazy people like Mastriano getting, uh, getting the nomination that he was actually running ads to encourage Republicans to vote for Mastriano because he's thinking about it the same way that you were thinking about it. Mastriano is too crazy to win it, uh, the general election in November. Let him be the Republican candidate. I see. So, yeah. So, what? It, but it, but again, it depends on the constituency. In Pennsylvania, you're pretty safe having someone as, as extreme as Mastriano. But there are other places where Trump endorsed people, where you know Democrats are having an easier time against a different Republican. Back to Pennsylvania again. There's a Senate. Uh, a Senate race going on there, too. And Trump endorsed Dr. Oz. Now, Dr. Oz is not fit to be, uh, I don't think he's even fit to be a doctor, let alone fit to be a, a, a senator. But there's someone worse than him that, and more extreme and more out of her mind than Oz. And Democrats would rather run against her. Uh, this woman, uh, Kathy, um, Kathy uh, Barnett. Now, this is a crackpot. And Trump, is, Trump realized that. He was told that she's insane. So he has come out and said, don't, uh, don't vote for her. You know, she's, a, she's uh, you know, it, he didn't say what she was, but what he was referring to is the fact that she has just smeared uh, uh, both um, Muslims and um, gays for, you know, all through her career. She has just gratuitously had, had horrible things to say about gay people horrible things to say about Muslims. So, and Trump said because of that, she can't win uh, an election, uh, she can't win a general. But because of that, Democrats would like her to be the candidate rather than the one that Trump endorsed, um, Dr. Oz. So, th- 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 so there's a lot of like, you know, that kind of thing all around the country. Uh, what about, now, Sum- let me ask get- you about Summer Lee in Pennsylvania. Yes, I was going to, good, let's, let's, let's do that. Let's talk about the, the races that are important. Uh, and okay, you and and who is up, and who is Lee. worse? Who is which endorsement is more of a danger for America, Trump or APEC? <laughs> yeah, APEC. Uh, APEC so, is endorsing candidates who refuse to certify the 2020 election. Yeah, that's a different thing. APEC. That's not their thing. They 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 they, they don't. That's not part of what they they are. When they consider who to endorse, that's not one of the criteria they use. It just happens to be that in some cases, the people, some endorsed 
the election. Some didn't endorse the election. That that that's that's really a, just a democratic talking point. It, pretty much ignore it. It's not. It's pretty meaningless. What what APAC is doing is that most of their money is coming from uh, Republicans, and they're taking large sums of Republican money and laundering it into Democratic campaigns against progressives. So APAC, you know, yes, they're about they're they're about Israel. But that isn't what the, their um, their ads are about. They never mention Israel. They right. never say, "Well, this candidate's bad on Israel. This candidate's bit good for Israel." No, never. What they're doing is they're attacking progressives on anything that they think they can uh, uh, they can hurt them with. And th- and in no cases are they backing progressives. In every case, they're backing conservatives, and they never discuss Israel. Now, when we talk about APAC, we're really talking about two separate organizations. APAC has started their own PAC, uh, and and they're putting millions and millions of dollars into these races against people like Summer Lee and against people who we'll get to in a minute. Um, Nina Turner. Erica Smith. Well, Nina, Nina is too late. That's they destroyed happened. Nina Turner. They, again, yes. And so it's two organizations. Mark Melman's organization, which is called uh, Democratic Majority for Israel, and then APAC. And between them... They are always backing the same people. They never di- diverge. They, they go in and they attack, attack, attack. And they, do, they did it the last minute. And they, like I said, they're using Republican money, mostly in very, very Democratic districts. So they'll go into a district like in, in Pittsburgh, um, the 12th district of, uh, of Pennsylvania. No Republican is going to win there. A, a serious Republican wouldn't even run there. It's such a, it's such a blue, blue district. So instead, the Republicans would rather get someone who's who's very, very conservative. Uh, they feel it's the best they can do. So that's what they're doing. They're putting millions of dollars into these campaigns. It's very, very serious money. And they, they and it's a sneak attack. And it, it's it's too late for a candidate like Summer Lee to be able to effectively combat it. She doesn't have the money to go up on the air with two million dollars to say this is this ad is a lie. But on the other hand, She's extremely popular. She's a, she's a state legislator. She's very well known. She's she's has a very strong gra- ground game. The uh, uh, the uh, conservative Jewish guy who's running against her is not well known, uh, and he's uh, you know he's got APAC and uh, and Mark Melman's organization uh, spending money for him. And I, I don't think he really has a, a strong chance. I mean, if, if he wins, it's really catastrophic. But I, I don't I don't see it happening tomorrow. I think that Summer is going to take this. Oh, that she's, would be great. Yeah. No, I, it will be great. I think I think she's got it. And and we have a similar well, since we're in Pennsylvania, let's let's doing Pennsylvania. We'll do Pennsylvania, and then we'll go to North Carolina after that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The right next door to. Um, uh, Pennsylvania 12 is Pennsylvania 17, and that's the district that Connell Lamb uh, left to, for his uh, ill-fated run for the uh, U.S. Senate nomination. So he's a conservative. The district got bluer, so it was like a, a I think it was an R plus two, so slightly Republican, but Connell Lamb wanted anyway because he's slightly Republican himself. And this time, a guy, very very serious guy former military guy, he's a professor, very, very progressive as well, you know, Medicare for all, of course, all that stuff. He's running, a guy named Christopher Deluzio, 
and it looks like he's going to win. There's also an, uh, there's also another Democrat running who's kind of just like a moderate, a mushy moderate, uh, who's got one thing going for him, which is I'm gay, I'm gay, I'm gay, I'm gay. And for some people, that's enough. Gay organizations all endorse him, but that's what they're doing. They're just endorsing him for the identity thing. But I don't think he's going to win the nomination. I think Chris Luzio is going to win the nomination and then win, win the election as well. So that's good news. Uh, let's go to North Carolina. Well, before now. you go, it, who, who Strickland? Who had a stroke? The the, the very very very. He had he, it was a, it was like he didn't even know it was a stroke. Right. It was a very very slight stroke. There were a couple of a couple of strokes today among Democrats. Van Hollen. Yeah, Van Hollen had one too. But again, they're like walking around, and it's not like they're like stricken or anything. It, it was like you know, it's just something that happens that. It happens to everybody. No, not everybody. It happens very commonly, and people don't even know that they had a stroke. But these guys, uh, you know, he, he, uh, Fetterman said his wife noticed he was, like, flushed or something and made him go to the doctor. And he wouldn't have even gone otherwise. And the doctor said, yeah, you had a stroke. And that was it. You know, he's, he rested for a day. He's fine. He's campaigning again. Uh, but anyway, he's he's going to win the uh, the Democratic nomination by a, by a very, very wide margin. He's a, you know, he's a weird guy. I don't know what to make out of him. I've known him for a while, uh, um, and he's running in a few races. And I don't know. I, I'm, I, you know, he's definitely better than anyone else running, no question. And I hope he wins. But but not enough to say to Blue America donors give him money. That that I that I didn't want to do. I, I I there are things about him I don't completely trust. So. Okay. That's Pennsylvania. So now, Erica now Smith, we go to North Carolina. Yeah, I love, Smith is, I love I know, her. We all love Erica. And she's, she's running in the first congressional district, a nice, uh, a nice blue district. She wins the primary. She'll win the, uh, the general election as well. It's very, very, um, very, very progressive. The guy she's running against, I can't tell you how bad this guy is. It's like she's the best. He's the worst. He's so bad. His name is Don Davis. He's a state senator, so he has a nice, solid record to look at. His solid record includes being utterly, absolutely anti-choice, being utterly, absolutely against health care, being the worst Democrat in the state legislature, voting even to, with Republicans to override the, the Democratic governor's veto of their crazy bills. I mean, this guy is, you don't like Manchin? You don't like cinema? He's worse. This guy is worse. Uh, and, and, and that's the person that tons of Republican money is coming into the district, being, again, being um, laundered into the district by APAC and by uh, Democratic majority for Israel. None of them mention Israel. They have nothing to say about Israel in this race. It's just, they're just attacking uh, Erica. It, it just unconscionably about nothing. I mean, they're just attacking her, making her sound like she's some sort of like a, a, a streetwalker or something. It's incredible what they're doing to this woman. Uh, but I, I think she's going to win anyway. It's going to be much closer than it should be, considering who she's running against. But they're putting millions of dollars just in the last week, millions of dollars in the last week of the campaign against her. Horrible what these people How's are the cryptocurrency money now that cryptocurrency is worth half of what it used to be. Yeah. So these, the, 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 
what they're trying to do is, although they're running people in various places, they're trying to literally take over the whole state of Oregon. They're putting money into every race they could possibly uh, influence, from governor uh, and certainly all of the congressional races. They're, they're, these are really bad people. And they are putting the money into Democratic races. You know, they're putting money into Republican races, too. But in Oregon, they're putting money into uh, mostly Democratic races. And the governor's race, I think the person who's running is, you know, officially was a Democrat. Now she's running as an independent. But in reality, she's a conservative Republican. It's a, a mess. And they're, they're financing her. So there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of cryptocurrency money. But, but I'm not done with... Um, uh, with North Carolina yet, if you, okay. if you don't mind. No. No. I want to go back. There's another very important race as well. Uh, David Price has had the, the bluest district in the state. And it's a little tiny bit less blue now, but it's still the bluest district in the state. And it's the fourth district. And, um, and there's a woman named uh, 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 Nida Alam. And she's been endorsed by all the progressive organizations and by Bernie. And the uh, the woman running against her is kind of again a mushy moderate. I don't. She's not a conservative really, but she's not. Some Nita is going to be there fighting for our values, fighting for the things that we talk about all the time, like Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. Whereas this other one is just going to, if she gets in, Valerie Fauci. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her last name right. Uh, if she gets in, she will just be. Uh, just a garden variety Democrat. She'll, she'll, she'll do whatever the leadership tells her to do and be on the phone uh, calling people for contributions for the rest of her life. So, so, that, so that's a very important race as well, especially because it's the bluest district in the state. So the only thing that matters in a district like that is the primary. That's the election. The primary, Republicans don't run in districts like that. Or if they run, it's a, you know, a vanity campaign. So that brings us to the next state, that's urgent to, for tomorrow, and that's Oregon. And we have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, activity there. Probably the most important one is the, is the the new fifth district. When I say new, is because it's a, it's a completely redrawn district, which has half of Kurt Schrader's old district, and then a part of the state that Kurt Schrader is completely unknown in. Uh, and his opponent is very well known there, and her name is um you know her name no her, her name is jamie mcleod skinner the reason i'm i'm not playing i wasn't playing a game with you the reason i was asking you is because i'm not anywhere near my computer and i'm doing this off the top of my head i'm just walking okay. getting my exercise by walking around so uh so i forgot you know i've got her now i'll see your moment there for a second but anyway uh jamie jamie is a wonderful uh, progressive. She's well known in the other half of the district where she's run before, and um, she ran for Secretary of State. She won that part of it. She won the, that whole district in her race. She didn't win the state, but she did win that district when she ran for Secretary of State a couple of years ago. In any case, uh, Schrader, an argument can be made that Schrader is the single worst Democrat in the House. He was the, he's the only Democrat left in the House who voted against raising the minimum wage. He also led the fight against lowering the cost of drugs. He's, his fortune comes from Pfizer, and uh, he takes immense, immense amounts of bribe 
bribes from uh, the pharmaceutical industry and and sticks up for them in all cases, including f- fighting and successfully fighting to prevent the Democrats from passing a bill to lower the cost of drugs. Can you imagine that anyone, any Democrat would vote for this guy? But they don't know because so many millions of dollars are going into ads that just flat out lie, saying things like, uh, Kurt Schrader is trying to protect uh, your right to buy inexpensive pharmaceuticals. And then, you know, voters hear that and they get mixed up and they don't know what it means, even though his voting record shows exactly the opposite. So it's a, so that's a problem. But we'll, I, I feel like Jamie has a very good shot to pull it off. <clears throat> She's being outspent four to one. So, of course, that is a big problem. But she's out-organizing him, and we'll see if, if that works or not. In all of these races, the good guys are, spent, are being outspent by the bad guys, but they're out-organizing the bad guys. And we'll see what that, what that means when it comes to uh, the results tomorrow. The, unfortunately, we may not know the results in, uh, in that Oregon race tomorrow because one of the counties, Clackamas, which is a very important county in that district, have, something went wrong with their ballot, and they can't be counted by machine, so they have to all be counted by, uh, by hand. So we probably won't know who won tomorrow because uh, the county has so many people in it that uh, unless, it's, unless one of the candidates has a landslide, we're going to have to wait a few days before we find out who won. The other really urgent county in, um, uh, in Oregon is the 4th District, and that is one where Pete DeFazio, who's been there forever, is retiring from. So that's, uh, that's Eugene and, and almost the whole coast of the state, uh, not the very northern part, but the rest of the state uh, coast. And it was a swing district, in fact, it was leaning Republican, but DeFazio had been there so long that they would vote for him anyway, although never by a, by a big margin. But when they re- redistricted that district, the fourth, now is much more Democrat. So it went from an R plus two to a, uh, D, a D plus nine. So it's a much, a much easier district for a Democrat to win in. So it's an open seat. The entire Democratic establishment got be- behind some hack named Val Hoyle. She doesn't stand for anything. Is she good? Is she bad? No, she just is. Just a careerist hack. Doesn't mean a thing. She'll do whatever she's told. She has no opinion. She has no reason to be in politics, except that's her career. And that's what a careerist is. Someone who's, you know, there fighting for her career, not fighting for any ideals or, or for any constituents. She's just as just awful. Just awful. And, uh, and there's a great candidate in that race as well, uh, named Doyle Canning. And Blue America has endorsed Doyle Canning. I can't believe we didn't have her on, uh, yet. And she's, uh, you know, she's an environmentalist. That's what she, that is her career. And she's running for Congress. And that's going to be very, very tough. That's going to be a very, very tough race for her because, again, the money, this crypto, uh, I think less, I, I don't know the exact figure, but it was around a half million dollars in crypto money in, in favor of, uh, of Val Hoyle. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that's going to be, that, that, that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for her. Again, depending, she's depending on organizing, a get out the vote effort. And, you know, they, they have spent the last few months, her and her volunteers going door to door. If that if that's going to do it, that could do it for them. Tough race, but it's possible. 
today, Tuesday or tomorrow, Tuesday, Idaho, Kentucky, North Carolina, Oregon, Pennsylvania, they uh, pick candidates. It's primary right. season. Right. Before you go, be fun. before you go, and we'll try to get a clip of this show, this segment up on YouTube before the night is over. So uh, this is time sensitive. So I'll try to clip this. We'll have Invisible Ninja clip this first. What did you learn from last week before you go? About the billionaires? No, 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 not the Nazis, the, the primaries. How, how influ speaking of Nazis, how influential is Trump going to be? How influential was he last week? And how influential is he going to be moving forward? Like in Georgia next week? Well, yeah, well. Never thought no. Kemp would be the good guy. He's not the good guy. I mean, if you want to say something positive about Kemp, you can say the less bad guy. But he's, you can never call Kemp the good guy. Well, Stacey Abrams is the good person, but... That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's no good guy in, in the right. Republican primary. They're both really bad, really bad. But Kemp is, you know, a tiny bit less horrible than Purdue. But but not even really. I mean, I would say they're equal. We, we, we're just saying that Purdue is worse because of Trump endorsing him. But when you think about Purdue's record in the Senate and... Um, uh, Kemp's record uh, as Secretary of State, which is really horrific, and then as governor. Yeah, I think I would say that Kemp is worse. Kemp is a, is a worse is, is worse. As bad as that, as, as odd as that sounds, I, and it doesn't yeah. matter. Uh, so yes, so last week Trump had one win and one loss in in terms of you know, you know he also endorses candidates who have no opposition. So you know that that, that right. doesn't count. But uh, but the two that really counted, one was in West Virginia and one was in Nebraska. He put all of his energy into the Nebraska race. He went there twice to campaign for this uh, guy named uh, Charles um, Herbster. Now, Herbster is like Trump in a, in a lot of ways. He's a um, uh, he's very, very rich. He's not a billionaire, but he's a multimillionaire. Wasn't and Herbster he, your he, wasn't Herbster your nickname back when you were using Herb? No, a pot he's dealer. A, no. He's, he's, uh, he, 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 don't push me. We're already over time. All right. Hey, it's the Herbster. Uh, what do you got for us, Howie? The Herbster. This Herbster, uh, is a, uh, sells, uh, uh, cattle sperm, as a matter of fact, right. not herb. But anyway, he, he. Which you can get of high food. off of, I found out by accident, but go ahead. He, oh, it I don't want to get into it, but Good. it's not a bad thing. Uh, Herbster was in uh, Trump's hotel with Trump's two sons and all the major uh, coup plotters the night before the, the uh, insurrection. He was one of the plotters of the insurrection, and Trump really supported him, and he lost, and it wasn't that close. Good. So, so in terms of Trump's uh, um, influence, that was a very negative one for him. Where he didn't do much was in West Virginia, where two... Uh, conservative Republicans were pitted against each other in a congressional district. So they lost a congressional district, so two incumbents were pushed together, and and one of the horrible incumbents beat the other horrible incumbent. And the one, the horrible incumbent that won was the one that Trump had backed. Trump didn't go there, didn't campaign for him, just let him use, you know, the Trump name, 
Trump endorsed me, Trump endorsed me, Trump endorsed me. So, but that, you know, Trump was crowing about that one instead of crying about Herbster. Right. Well, Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive candidates like Erica Smith, who's running. Right. It's too, it's too late now for people to donate to her. Uh, what I'd like them to do is pray, pray for her if they, if they believe in prayer. Uh, pray for Erica, uh, which would be a really, really great thing to do. I certainly plan to do it. She's yeah. also a reverend, by the way. The other, the, the other thing, though, is the week after, we have some very, very important races. And if, if anyone wants to donate, I would suggest uh, uh, Jessica Cisneros has her primary uh, runoff with um, Henry Cuellar. I mean, they, you know, neither of them got to 50 percent. So there's a runoff a week from Tuesday in Texas. And, that's and he's pro-life. He, he is anti-choice. He's anti-abortion. I mean, Pro-life pro is the wrong word to use. I know. Pro-life would be someone who celebrates life, right. where he just celebrates uh, authoritarianism. And, uh, you know, he, he, don't give him that, that kind of a, a moniker. It's, it's uh, sick. So we're going to abort Henry Cuellar to, uh, next week. Howie Klein, thank, we're, we're, we're running over time. Great job. This was... We need, and we need to... And all right off the top of my head... We need to talk with. Do we have Melanie Durago on here? We did, right? Yeah, but whoever we you need want. To have, we need to have her come back soon. It's not her, her primary is until August. She got pushed back in June. She's running in, in a, a new district on Long Island. The district was just uh, unveiled today, and it's nothing like the old district. It's like so changed, it's incredible. So I spent a lot of time with her on the phone, and she was explaining it to me. I think we should have her on so we can talk about the new parameters of the races in New York State, because some of these districts, you wouldn't recognize them anymore. Okay. Her district was, her district was known as the North Shore of Long Island District. It now goes to the South Shore of Long Island as well. Okay. It was a horizontal district. It's now a vertical district. Anyway, we can talk about that when we have her on uh, probably next month. Great. I love you. Thank you so much. Great job. This, this was we, we, I, perfect. Perfect. Thank you, Howie you Klein. Put half the audience to sleep, but I'll see you next. No, week. no. Are you kidding, Howie Klein, founder, treasurer, and and your phone connection was great. It worked. It worked. I knew that. Good. Uh, David Cobb is about to join us. Thank you so much, Howie Klein. Bye. Have a good time with David. Bye. Great. Read Howie over Down with Tyranny. It's must reading, and he introduced us to Erica Smith, who's running for Congress. T tomorrow or Tuesday, depending on when you're listening to this, in uh, North Carolina. And some candidates get you in a certain way, David Cobb. And Erica Smith got me just in every way. Before I bring on David Cobb, I want to issue an apology. I said something wrong at the top of the show. I said Liz Cheney represents the mediocre state of Idaho. And I was incorrect. She represents the mediocre state of Wyoming. So my apologies to the mediocrities who live in Wyoming and Idaho. Uh, like Don Rickles would say, she represents Wyoming. Like that's any better? <laughs> like, I, like I can tell the difference? Uh, my apologies for getting that wrong. David Cobb joins us. By the way, 
Uh, I won't say it. I, I was going to embarrass you and tell you how great you are. David Cobb ran for president on the Green Party ticket. He also managed Ralph Nader's presidential campaign in Texas in the year 2000. He comes to us from Northern California, where he is working for uh, local banking, state banking, government banking, as opposed to uh, for-profit corporate banking and restoring agriculture uh, the way our indigenous people uh, know how to do. What would you like to talk about, David Cobb? Welcome. Well, thank you so much. First, thanks for the uh, the great introduction, as always. And it's funny, whenever you said that uh, Erica was one of those candidates that hit you in a certain kind of way, honestly, that's how Ralph Nader was for me, right? I, I do want to just say it out loud. You know, I am a lawyer because of Atticus Finch and Ralph Nader. And of course, Atticus Finch is a fictional character in To Kill a Mockingbird. Ralph Nader is a living, breathing human being. Uh, honestly, Ralph Nader probably did more to influence me and my politics than anybody who I'm not related to. Uh, it's, it's a cross between Ralph Nader and Gene Roddenberry, to tell you the truth, <laughs> in terms of really my worldview and how the world ought to work. So uh, uh, thanks for that. And I'll, I'm going to check out Erica. Uh, and, so let me just uh, say something about Ralph Nader, because uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, he has a radio show and you can subscribe to it as a podcast. It's on YouTube. You can watch it on YouTube or listen to it as a podcast. It's it's called the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. He also has a newsletter. Google Ralph Nader, get his newsletter sent to your inbox and buy all his books. It's the Bible of democracy. Listen, it, 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 nobody has done more to try to make this political, economic, electoral system work the way we were taught it was supposed to work than Ralph Nader, period, full stop. Agree with him, disagree with him, but but nobody can, uh, can, can challenge Ralph Nader's integrity, uh, his commitment to the, his, to the belief in actually trying to make the system work. Yeah, so, uh, let me just, and just so people, uh, Occupational Safety Hazard Administration, uh, EPA, Clean Water Act, seatbelts, airbags, the list of federal agencies that he's personally responsible, the administrative state that was set up in the 60s and 70s comes from Ralph Nader. Nader. Oh, there's, it's a direct function of reacting to Ralph Nader. I mean, Ralph had d demonstrated the most citizen power that you can ever imagine in this system. And I guess that's part of the thing. So I definitely want to lift up Ralph's history and, and continue to applaud what he does. And to say, David Feldman, what I would argue is, and the failing uh, uh, ability to use the system uh, the way Ralph did is actually a testament to the fact that these systems are failing. It's not that citizens are failing. It's not that we're not working hard enough. It's literally that these systems are failing. And they're failing because of a social, political, and economic system and a legal system that is literally, I mean, literally 
uh, incentivizing and rewarding horrific abuse, exploitation, oppression, uh, extraction, and and even if occasionally we're able to work our butts off as citizens activists and, and get a good law passed, then corporate lawyers can go into court and overturn those laws on the basis that we're uh, uh, we are violating a corporation's constitutional rights. What I'm getting at is, uh, yes, we should use elections. Yes, we should use lobbying. Yes, we use all the tools in the toolbox, but we should make no mistake about it, that the system is rigged. And the, the fact that Cruz just, Ted Cruz in Texas, just literally got yet another campaign finance law overturned is just more example of it. You tell me about that. Oh, uh, well, it, like we can talk about it. Uh, uh, I want to circle back because uh, I do have only uh, 17 minutes with you because this is my uh, this is my week of the month where I uh, facilitate the California Public Banking Alliance. Because what I want to talk about is uh, uh, the these primaries uh, that are going on. And I do want to uh, really acknowledge I thought your question to Howie about Trump's influence was the right question. And I think that how he answered it in terms of like wins and losses, and and I don't disagree with with that the answer that he gave according to that. But I want to reframe the answer and and sound the alarm bell to say yes, some of Trump's endorsed people didn't win, but Donald Trump has completely transformed the Republican Party. It is not the Republican Party that you and I grew up. Like, this, like, look, you know, I fought against the Republican Party, right, my entire uh, adult life. But this current Republican Party under Trump is a fascist political oriented party. Uh, it is it openly, openly, openly. This is the point I'm trying to make. So, yeah, some of Trump's endorsed people lost, but Trump has completely remade and reshaped what the Republican Party is. And I think that that's the answer uh, to the question, really, David, you, you know, that, that when you asked how did Trump do, he already won. He literally has completely recast the Republican Party to the extent that like not only are there no more Eisenhower Republicans, no more no no no, no uh, Rockefeller Republicans, but the reality is even people that ten years ago you and I would have called dangerous right wingers are literally not running again because they can't win a Republican primary. Yeah, it's interesting. So the, yeah, things in motion stay in motion, as Newton Isaac Newton said, unless a, a, a force. Can an stop. equal and opposite right. reaction, right? When, and, I, and this is when I was a kid, my father said, if Ronald Reagan becomes president, we will become a fascist state. He's a complete and utter crackpot. He's worse than Goldwater. This is what my father told me. Right? I'm listening. Now, Reagan is a moderate. Th that's where I come from. I come from an America where... Most people saw Ronald Reagan as part of the lunatic fringe. Well, wait a minute. Not like most liberals and progressives did. But remember, Reagan won not one but two elections. So, right. But before you know, 1980, before 1980, like when he challenged Gerald Ford in 76, he did well. But most Americans dismissed Ronald Reagan as a I'm glad. as a fascist 
an authoritarian and a racist. And a buffoon. And a right? buffoon. Like, don't forget that one. And it was all so, of the so, above. So this is why I think it's important. And now we that, miss that. We miss <laughs> that. Listen, uh, part of it, part of that is actually true, right? Like, because as much as I found, because I came of age during Reagan, right? Like my student activism was uh, opposing the apartheid movement and uh, forcing the University of Houston to divest of its holdings of corporations doing business with the apartheid regime in South Africa, et cetera, et cetera. Ronald Reagan's policies were abhorrent, but one thing I do believe, and that is that Ronald Reagan believed his rhetoric. He believed the morning in America stuff. He believed that. Trump is dangerous because he is a megalomaniac uh, uh, a carnival barker, right? Like he, he, he doesn't actually believe what he says. But what's dangerous is just as Reagan set a certain tone, Trump has set a certain tone and to me, I'm way more afraid of what DeSantos uh, would do as president, because I, at the very least, uh, you know, people, I think, uh, could could fight more effectively uh, uh, against uh, Donald Trump. But the point is about Reagan that I think I'm glad you brought up is in 76, when he he ran for the Republican Party nomination and lost, people dismissed him but he created a cultural context that fought on. That's why I think what Bernie did in 2016 and 2020 uh, was so important. The difference is that Bernie's movement uh, was what really came up against the buzzsaw of the neoliberal uh, leadership of the Democratic Party. Cause I'm gonna, I'm gonna land the plane here and tell you this, Valdo. I think that the neoliberal Democrats and those who actually control the Democratic Party apparatus, they would rather have Trump and Republicans in office than they would a Bernie Sanders or an AOC or any of the other myriad of good inspired progressives that are fighting the good fight and winning and often getting elected. Mark my words, the neoliberal Democrats who control that operation are literally going to torpedo the Democratic Party before they ever let people like you, me, and Howie Klein actually become sort of leaders within the Democratic Party apparatus. Wait, are you saying that Charles Schumer, Chuck Schumer, my senator, majority leader of the Senate, are you saying his daughter, Jessica Schumer, graduate of Harvard Law, is a lobbyist for Amazon? Is that what you're saying, David Cobb, that Jessica Schumer, Chuck Schumer's daughter, I, I is a lobbyist it, for Amazon? I'm sorry, what? I wasn't saying it, but I happen to know it's true. <laughs> of all the jobs Chuck Schumer could get his idiot daughter, she chooses to use her Harvard Law School degree to be a lobbyist for Amazon. What a piece of shit. I think that's the definition of a piece of shit. Listen, and this is the thing, right? Like, I, I, I really think that it's important to understand that there, like my and, and Dr. Fraud, who I know is going to be coming up next, or I hope she will, but, you know, our constant uh, harping on the class dimension of this country, the class dimension of, uh, electoral politics again like we should engage in electoral politics but we should be very clear that the democratic party like the democratic party operation 
the Democratic Party apparatus is actually controlled by the ruling class. And the ruling class is the owning class. They're not the laboring class. That's why we're constantly fighting and struggling to even just get a toehold. Now, I don't I understand that many people stay within the Democratic Party because of the first past the post winner take all election system where they feel like they're forced to vote against the candidates that they hate rather than for the ones that they want because of the spoiler effect and so forth and so on. So structurally, I understand that argument. And what I say, Feldo, is but folks, if you're having to hold your nose to cast a ballot, at least acknowledge the stench. <laughs> and the stench is a, a voting system that's forcing us to vote against what we hate rather than for what we want. And that's part of what's driving this polarization, both on the left and the right. And then the last thing I'll say is this. It's a hell of a thing that Trump and Republicans are using better populist rhetoric than most Democrats. That's a hell of a thing, man. It just angers me to no end. Like, I hope you can see if you're if you're just listening. I hope you can hear it in my voice, folks. But I am spitting mad. I I am infuriated that I am listening and watching and hearing and experiencing right wing populism do a better job of talking about things that ordinary workaday Americans are having to experience than the neoliberal elites of the Democratic Party. That's why they're getting their clocks cleaned at election time. The the uh, exit polls, I believe, show that if you're white and working class, for whatever reason, you're going to vote Republican. Correct. Yeah, that's 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 what the polling data shows. So the, the Democratic Party lost the white working class vote, not because white working class people in America hate blacks, Muslims, Hispanics and the LGBTQ more than they like their their job and their financial benefits. They vote for the Republicans because they believe they're going to be financially better off than under the Democratic. We always say, well, they're voting their hate. No, they, they know that the Democrats aren't going to deliver for them. So they might as well elect somebody who's going to help them hate. Right. Listen, like the uh, the uh, look, the, you're bringing up an incredibly important point, and it's 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 uh, it's a book that's now what 15 years old. But if you really want to get to the heart of what you're describing, uh, the book is called "What's the Matter with Kansas." It was written by Thomas Frank. I don't know, like it was the mid 2000s, right? Yeah. But but the 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 that book is actually a deep dive at, to explore how the rise of populist anti-elitism happened centering on his home state of Kansas and it's worth reminding uh, listeners viewers and you Feldo Kansas was a hotbed of leftist radical extremism historically right like there was a like Kansas like, how did that happen? And the short answer is the the the, the takeover by the, the the conservative ideology was actually not driven by hate. It was actually driven by a lie 
but a lie that actually spoke directly to the issues that actually Kansas folks felt were important to them. And then because of the power of narrative or what Antonio Gramsci called the war of position, cultural hegemony, right? You take over a narrative. This is the thing, progressives, stop fighting the uh, and telling the story of the battle and understand we're in a battle for the story. We have a winning narrative on genuine progressive populism, a, a, a world based on ecologically sustainability, regenerative economic development, taking care of the world for ourselves and our children, uh, you know, genuine concern for uh, the, the civil liberties uh, uh, of ordinary folks and by the way, in the hero's journey, there is always a hero and there is always a villain and the villain is Wall Street. Make no mistake about it. We've got actually the winning narrative. We've got the winning story, but progressives don't tell it. Right. We got we get hung up in policy this. We get, and look, facts. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm let, me, uh, let me play I'm you. Say. I played this earlier. Tim Kaine ran for vice president under Hillary. And Ooh, Christian wow. Smalls testified before Bernie's budget committee. And you know what? I don't have it. I'm sorry. I, uh, oh, here it is. Uh, this is a, a Democrat uh, being asked whether or not Amazon is evil. Oh, I know. And the Play the clip. And the customers. And customers that, that use Amazon, they use it because they think it's convenient. And during the pandemic, when they were at home and they didn't want to go to some places because they were worried about their health, Amazon usage went up. We can't wave a magic wand and make customers suddenly not like Amazon. So I, I would say um, I, I just don't see it. He's telling Christian Smalls that the customers love Amazon because during the pandemic, Amazon workers were the first responders. So he's saying Amazon isn't a bad company. He's saying this to Christian Smalls, who was a first responder on Staten Island. He was in a supervisory, supervisory, super, he was a supervisor. <laughs> and his workers were dying from COVID. So he went to Amazon to complain and they fired him. And Tim Kaine is so out of touch. This is a Democrat that he's telling Christian Smalls that you this is a good company. This is this is what the Democrats are saying. Yeah, again, so I got to jump because, again, this is my California Public Banking Alliance monthly okay. meeting. So once a month on my uh, uh, on this segment, I, I have a short out. But I do see Dr. Fraud. Hello, uh, Dr. Fraud. So glad you're here. And I feel like. We're in great uh, hands to to segue and let Dr. Fraud sort of talk about the class dimension of electoral politics, because I know that she and I share the clarity that the problem with the Tim Kaines of the world is they have clarity on whose class they represent. Right. And Chris Smalls and myself and Harriet and you, Feldo, and the rest of the non-owning class, Tim Kaine, just because he has a D next to his main, does not represent our interests. Tim Kaine represents the ruling class and the owning class interest. And that's why Chris Smalls and others like him who are revitalizing the labor movement is inspirational to me. Yes. 
We're going to be back with Dr. Harriet Fraud. Thank you, David Cobb. We're glad you're back. You're listening Thank to you. the, you're listening to the David Feldman Show, DavidFeldmanShow.com. Sign up for my newsletter by going to DavidFeldmanShow.com. It's uh, the newsletter is a great way to navigate each episode. We have time stamps and time codes, and it's a quick rundown of every show. All you have to do is click on the hyperlinks. It'll take you to every guest. It's almost like Netflix, the newsletter. You can pick and choose the order of guests you want to watch and listen to. So go to my website, sign up for office hours, and we would love to see you in our virtual studio audience here on Zoom. So go to my website. We'll be right back with Dr. Harriet Fraud. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. We wake every morning like the Rolling Stones, cause we just can't get no satisfaction. Democracy's in change, we could bury its remains, but infotainment culture has infected our brains. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The pathological pursuit of power and profit Drives everything in sight Not sure we can stop it Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top We've lost the power to think So we shop until we drop We're surveilled and monitored While they keep us all distracted So we never notice that our data has been extracted We're living every day We're living every night In the USA of distraction All right Oh, 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 oh,
The Reagan agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation, has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, gone, gone. Slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night. USA of distraction. The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, the media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. Now we can't seem to get out of this neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. Diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. Yeah. We're living every night in the USA. A distraction. That is Professor Mike Steinel. The stock market, I'm going to start giving updates on the stock market, Dr. Harriet Fraud. We, we should cover the stock market, even though we might not understand it. If you invested in energy, fossil fuels, you would have had a good day today. The top gainers of the S&P 500, Occidental Petroleum, NRG Energy, Halliburton, Marathon Oil, Constellation Energy, Schlumberger, and Devon Energy. These are all up 3 to 6% today. Good investment. Investing in fossil fuels, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Is that wrong to invest in fossil fuels? 
Well, we know why you might not want to, because they are destroying the planet. Also, if you invested in military stocks, you'd be doing great, thanks to Ukraine and elsewhere, yeah. and the United States sending military into Somalia. So you would be doing wonderfully on those. Even if you invested in things like Tyson Food, all these companies that are responsible for inflation, they doubled their billions in profit since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, they're making money hand over fist and they can count on our president not to do what even Nixon did, make a freeze on profit. And if you add, if you added, I'm sorry, not on profit, on price, price, price freeze across the board. And if you increased your price, you could go to jail. Even Nixon did that. So it's, you know, the crowded at the trough as they all raise prices. All right. Gregory J. Hayes is the CEO of Raytheon. And I mean, why shouldn't I trust him when he said, where's the clip? Here he is. Here, here's the CEO of Raytheon. We are there to defend democracy. <laughs> That's why he's sending those stinger missiles or whatever they call them to Ukraine. And paid so well for them. Only 40 million a year. He's defending. Oh. Dem- so you're Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home. It's not just in your head. She's a founding mother of women's liberation. And we're going to talk about women and misogyny. You're a, a hypnotherapist, a psychotherapist. You filter our neuroses, our mental illness through the prism of the economic system we're forced to live under. This guy Raytheon, Raytheon, whatever his name is, the guy who runs Raytheon. My father used to tell me he didn't think evil people could ever be happy. My father was wrong, wasn't he? Well, it depends on how you define happiness. If happiness is connection, deep connection with other people, he's out of luck. But he's, he feels he's winning because he's making more money. He's making $40 million, and he wouldn't be making that if he weren't making Raytheon billions. And right. so if that's your definition of happiness, he's as happy as a pig in shit. If, you're, if it's emotional happiness, which comes from connection, he's out of luck. Right. But he's feeling successful because he's got more. Right. When I was a full-time comic before you were born, <laughs> I was not happy, but I would be out every night getting that jolt, like an electric shock from yeah. the audience. And I took that in lieu of happiness. It was adrenaline. What, what was I experiencing? Because it wasn't happiness. It, it was, was success. And it was the high. And also you were reaching people and they were reaching back with their laughter. And you felt the high of connection well, with all sorts of people you didn't even know. It was an intimate connection, but it was some connection. And it was it was also protected connection because you right. weren't making yourself truly, personally vulnerable and taking risks. And somebody like Jeff Bezos or uh, Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, who, you know, I... I like to think to some degree I know who Schultz is. He's from Brooklyn. He comes from a poor family. His father 
not that my father was a failure, but Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, had a failure of a father, and he decided he was going to make something of himself. I guess he's Jewish, Schultz, and mm-hmm. huh? And mm-hmm. was a Democrat. Thinks he's liberal. He's all about equity, and he has declared war on the union organizers. He's fired them, cut their hours. Right. And there are 450 Starbucks that are organizing in spite of that. Does he know he's a, does he know he's a piece of shit? Does, has anybody told him he's a piece of shit? Would it help if we called him and told him he's a piece of shit? Yes, but he says to himself, I'm making money. I'm steering the Starbucks ship into greater profits. These people are trying to whittle down their profits. These people are stealing. They're stealing time on their jobs where they're not being paid because they're talking to other people. So in his little universe, which is probably not a really happy one, he feels successful. But he's failing, luckily, because 450 Starbucks are in the midst of unionizing. And so he's failing. He's failing. And he'll rewrite history. If the union yes. organizers succeed, he will rewrite history and say, we're what? All we, we always supported them. Right. We always did. Just as, uh, you know, the people. John Stewart. Had- John Stewart fought the unions uh, and then kind of. I don't think he's even said he uh, supported the Writers Guild. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, and it's just like Trader Joe has changed their policies. But they gathered their workers together and they said, if you can get 30% of the workers at your site to sign cards, we will let you have an election. That's federal law, but they tried to pass it off. That's the liberal showing how good he is. Right, right. We'll let you. Noblesse oblige. Exactly. It's the law they had to. Right. It's incredible, the arrogance. And the sneakiness. You know, and they've been emboldened because the U.S. labor movement has lost vitality. It's just regaining the vitality it had in the 30s. when it, And because of all the socialists, communists, leftists that they kicked out in the 50s. And then they went down like a deflated balloon. And now independent unions like Amazon Labor Union and feisty unions like the nurses and the flight attendants and the Starbucks unions are organizing like crazy. Right. Well, let's talk. I, I, Tim Kane, the, the senator from Virginia, I, I could show clips of him talking to Christian Smalls. I did at the top of the show. I hate Tim Kaine more than I hate Lindsey Graham because Lindsey Graham is only hiding one thing from us, his predilection for men. The other stuff, he's open, he's out in the open, you know, anti-union, pro-war. He's the only thing he lies about is that he likes to have sex with men. I can, you know, that's okay. Tim Kaine, the senator, from Virginia with his rumpled look and his breezy corn poke mm-hmm. style from Harvard Law telling Christian Smalls that Amazon isn't evil. 
that it's it's a, a net plus for the economy. You know, Amazon only makes $20 billion in 2020. They have all the damage that they've caused, all the money they spend, all their revenues, they only net $20 billion in profits in 2020. Seems to me, if you're going to destroy those many that many lives and businesses and get away with that many crimes, you should be doing better than $20 billion a year in profits. Well, Bezos is the second richest man in the world, so he's and he can spend his $500 million flying into outer space. So he's got, you know, he's right up there in his own estimation. I think, though, he's living on a totally, you know, he has nothing but his own sensations. So he can leave a woman who seems like a fine woman, has given away more than any other person in the world in philanthropy once they settled their divorce so that he could follow the odds for someone that he doesn't understand at all what life is about or how to struggle through and be kind and be close. He's an idiot. He had a good idea of synthesizing everything, which worked out during the pandemic. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't really merit that kind of money. And somewhere he knows it. Does he? Somewhere, sure. But we don't know where. And Well, let's talk about women. Melinda Gates deserves every penny she got in that divorce settlement. Jeff Bezos's wife deserves nobody worked harder those those are two those two women are billionaires and there are no two billionaires who deserve those billions more than the ex-wives of Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos because they actually had to get into bed with those two homunculi um, the wife of Bezos has given away 39 million dollars more billion, than any billion billion 39 billion more than any other philanthropist. He's given away 39 million. He's given away 39 million. She's given away 39 billion. Yes, that's right. Yes. So she is amazing. I was I I was out in the in the woods over the weekend and I remember thinking you know I live in Manhattan there's no nature and I, they, they train you in Manhattan to think, well, the only way to experience nature is you, you have to be a billionaire to, to actually enjoy peace and quiet. You have to have a fancy. And I thought, I don't, who wants to own a farm or who own? I just want some peace and quiet, like a park that I could go to that that I can share with others. The idea that you think you could own a, a, a hundred acres and it's yours, it doesn't belong to you. Eventually. No, but it's the idea of ownership is exciting to them, as is the idea of investment. So they could buy it, they could enjoy it, and they could watch it appreciate in value because that's their those are their values. That is their life. That as uh, Marx said when he was talking to some capitalists, accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. That is Moses and your prophets. And that's the truth. So when when our heroes like Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, and David Letterman have these airport uh, hangars filled cars. with Porsches <laughs> and cars, and they they go, "I'm a collector." These are no, you're sick. You're limited. Yes. 
right? That's right. You're accumulating an empty, empty substitute for depth. However, I don't care about them. I care about the vast masses of Americans who are hurting really badly, right. and particularly about the women who are hurting terribly. Let's talk about the women. Yeah, and it's not only this abortion thing where they want to cancel our rights to abortion and make us four-fifths of a person the way they made the slaves three-fifths of a human being because there are um, five systems in our bodies. We have the muscular skeletal system. We have the respiratory system. We have the circulation system. We have the digestive system. And we have the reproductive system. They want to take over one of those systems. One out of five. So we'll be four-fifths of a person while they control our reproduction. And that is a colonization of more than half the population and is quite amazing. But that, that hatred of women, and particularly our reproductive capacity, goes straight down the line. There's a big daycare shortage now, because you know what daycares on average salary is? $11 an hour. And they're very much in danger of COVID because kids can transmit it. And they have long hours. And so they make about $25,000, $26,000 a year a poverty wage. And park, parking lot attendants get more for watching cars than these women wow. get because it's an all-female field for watching and trying to nurture children. Those are our values. Wow. And only, wow. anything, anything. Well, I'm sorry, what, what did you say? I'm sorry. That's, that's just mind-boggling. That's mind-boggling what you just said. You can that's make more money watching an inanimate object Exactly. Like a car, than 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 our babies trying to interact and develop a child, and that is the devaluation of women's labor. It's all women that are in the daycare field, just like it's all women who are home health care providers. Those who care are penalized, and I feel like okay, mothers are penalized. There's this saccharine country in Western. Oh, mom, for all the things you gave me, no charge, right? Well, mothers make 69% of what fathers make. And if they're Puerto Rican, 51%, 51 cents on the dollar. And why? Our nation does not, unlike the French or the Germans, they don't subsidize childcare. A French daycare teacher is in the public education system of France with all the benefits. And their children have them too. In Germany, there's universal childcare one can get. All over the Scandinavia, there's childcare because women don't have a chance without childcare. And 10%, between 9 and 10% of daycare workers have quit in the pandemic. Isn't the problem that it's primarily a for-profit sector of our economy. Daycare is for-profit? No, it's not only for-profit. Sometimes it's non-profit. It's that because it's women's work, it's utterly devalued. So that, and women can't go to work without daycare because since we're paid so much less, we're the ones to stay home. And because women, look, there's a different kind of thinking 
which is of course undeveloped, which is instead of the economy being commodities, the economy is based on the maternal gift that you give for the joy of giving and the joy of seeing something flourish. Very different kind of economy from a commodity economy and a profit economy, and they have no use for that. And so they attack it every chance they get by trying to take over our reproductive capacity, by starving out the people who would have cared for children, by forcing women back into the home, and a zillion other methods of not testing any, the you know, what is it? I think it's 1 20th of the rape kits they've collected. Do they ever test? 6% of the cases where they have proof they don't go after the person. There's a kind of punishment across the board for women because we are women. Right. And there is a way that's very crucial. That's part of every fascist thrust. Because if you divide half the working class from the other, giving males that little bit of privilege to look down and force the other half to work for them, you've destroyed the, the unity of the masses. Right. And then if in addition you divide the, the races from each other, you got it. Right. And capitalism can go unchallenged. And so that, and there is a particular Republican fascistic war on women that is taking place. And that's why I think the leak of the abortion ruling has had demonstrations all across this country. There are three that I know of just in New York City, and they were big. The one across Brooklyn took up the whole bridge. And the one in Union Square and the one in Foley Square, middle schools, students are walking out, high school students, college students. It's a movement again because it's they're robbing us of one of the basic systems that make us human, that keep us alive. And, you know, they don't argue that an acorn is actually an oak tree, that an egg happens to be a chicken. It's so bizarre, or that it's not in the Constitution. We should stick to the Constitution. Great idea, Clarence Thomas, you're a slave. Great idea for you, Coney Barrett. You don't even have a vote, no less be a Supreme Court justice. Let's be consistent about this. Right. It's so contradictory, but behind it is this huge thrust to divide men from women and divide the mass of working people. Because I agree with David Cobb. I mean, there's two classes in the United States, basically, the employer class and the employee class. And those who directly serve the employer class and those who serve as the employee class. And in order to disrupt the unity of all of us employees together, they need to create hierarchies, and they're busy at it. And women are, are being thrust into the mud. Right. They blur the lines between the managerial class and the working class. We're a team. We're, we're a family. We're all working together. This is more about money. This is oh, about yes. personal growth. Well, you know, personal growth... Uh, needs apparently manure because you're full of shit. Exactly. And they say that at Amazon, too. We're all part of the team. But some of the team is making in less than a minute what the other people with their aching bodies and their vending machines with free pain meds are making in a year. 
What right. are we talking about? Right. It's not a good business model. No, and that's why the United States is failing. We are failing against countries like China, that at least they have a capitalist class too, but they tightly control them. They're growing and they're spreading their word. We're not. And even with this Ukraine operation, most of the world does not support us, even though in the United States we're treated to a propaganda deluge that they probably are in uh, Russia too. But that, you know, most of the world doesn't support us, even Bolsonaro in South America. South America doesn't support us, and not just Cuba, none of South America. And Asia doesn't support us. Africa doesn't support us. India and China, who have the most people in the world, don't support us. But we don't even hear about that. You know, it's it's such a deluge of propaganda. And that's what they're trying to do around men and women, too. This right. propaganda that they are actually able, these this group is able to decide to rob us of our personhood a basic system that makes us human. You know, it's amazing that it's so out in the open now and that the senator from Nebraska said that women, of course, shouldn't have uh, an abortion, even in the case of rape and incest. So what if our bodies go into labor? So what if we have to endure a distortion of our bodies for nine months? So what if we have a painful birth? So what if we risk dying a lot more than we would from an abortion? So what? The idea is we are incubators for male sperm. So what if I have to form an emotional connection with the spawn of a rape? Exactly. Or that I can't and that child will grow up despised. There was a big drop in crime 20 years after the Roe versus Wade and people figured, of course, fewer despised children in the world. It's so you're saying that the, there is a rise in crime right now that correlates to how harder the Republicans have been making it to get, get an abortion. abortion. That's right. That's right. And their last time when Roe versus Wade, 20 years later, crime dropped everywhere in the United States as Roe versus Wade applied to everywhere in the United States. And as it's being eroded, those things are changing. It's a long time since they've been eroding Roe versus Wade, but they don't care. The idea is to get half of the population to serve the other. They don't have any, they never had any problem with condoms, but birth control wasn't even allowed to marry women until the 19, early 1970s. Right. And Viagra, nobody, insurers don't often cover birth control or abortion, but they always cover Viagra because the idea is to use women's bodies to create them as servers of male and incubators for male sperm. It's so grossly, it's like saying that someone's skin color makes them a slave for you. Right. No. Someone's sex organs don't make them an incubator for you. There is a lot of resentment that heterosexual men, whatever that means, have for women because mm -hmm. men 
not all men, but they want to have sex. And so when they're denied sex, uh, they get a little angry. They go to now they're encouraged to go to strip joints, which is many ways a form of some kind of prostitution. Yeah. We, uh, we we we. The men objectify women. That that, that porn right. does that. Toxic. I'm sorry. And they're going to repress their needs for connection, their needs for cuddling, their needs for hugs, and put it all into sex. And then women are taught to deny it because and, they'll just be used and bragged about later. The whole thing is sick. And our sex education system in those 17 states out of 50 that have correct biological information don't say anything about relationships, which is the whole model over Scandinavia, the Netherlands, and Germany and France to go to their classes in in high school to talk about what they want in an orgasm, what they want in a relationship, what they might owe to the next generation if they create it. Relationships with another person. Right. That's this, is, this is this is interesting. The war against women is getting worse because, again, I'm not boulderizing. I don't want to boulderize our society, but the normalization of strip joints. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with strip joints. I might have a problem with the normalization of it. When I was younger, it there was something. It was oh, an outlet. Oh. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was off color. It was yeah. a bad place. The the normalization of porn. I'm not saying porn is a bad thing, but men are watching a lot of porn and they're as you say not getting the proper sex education. They're getting an idea of sex that may not be as domination. And, and so that's what rape is about so when they in real and then that can that can breed in some a republican mind that is misogynistic you're you're right. i'm an incel i can't have sex with women it's their fault it's their fault and so i want to punish them and they maybe don't articulate that maybe they don't know they want to punish well, women they but do articulate that they do yes absolutely that um, Elliot guy who shot up the women at um, UCLA, there was a man who Oh, you see Santa, in Santa Barbara. He was in Santa Barbara, the oh, hero, the incel hero who took from the- Elliot Rogers. Right, right, right. Then there was the fellow from the gym who last year, I mean, he couldn't get a woman to go out with him at, from the gym. They must have picked up some kind of savage vibe. And so mm-hmm. when- so he went in and shot nine of them. And then when they asked him, he complained. He said, what's wrong with me? I'm clean. Well, they must have picked up the murder vibe, maybe. Right. At any rate, so he killed them. There is this sense, if you're not there for me and my sexual needs, I have a right to destroy you. That's what rape is about, too. Right. And rape hasn't abated. It's violent crime. The violent crime of rape has continued. There's a rape in the United States every four seconds. And when women report it, they're often pilloried or the evidence is taken and left on the shelf. Right. There's, you know, there's a shocking humiliation of women through their sex. 
and degradation of women through their sex that gives men who are sick a sense of superiority, that they have mastered this, that they can get half the population serving the other half. Right. Which is sick, but it is part of every fascism. Mussolini had that, Hitler had that, Hirohito in Japan, and it's part of the sickness. Right. And we, who are the mass of people, need to unite and befriend one another, like they're doing in France. That's a very good news thing, that Mélenchon, the leftist, has combined with the Green Party and the Communist Party, and together, they if they'd been together last time, they would have won more than Macron, and Mélenchon would be the prime minister. But what they're doing is they're voting in all the parliamentary um, elections as a bloc, and so they will control parliament and be able to veto anything they don't like from Macron and put their own agenda on the table because they united. That's what the American left has to do. Right. Dr. Harriet Fraud, host of It's Not Just In Your Head, Capitalism Hits Home. You can listen to her radio show on Pacifica Radio here in New York City on WBAI 230s, 2.30 every Wednesday. And I'm not the only one who's on, it's not just in your head, Liam Tate from England and Ikoi Hiro um, is also part of our, it's not just in your head. Fantastic. We love having you. Thank you so much. We'll see you we next week. You. It's an inspiration. Oh my Thank God, you. you're an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Joining us from a superior country is Professor Adnan Hussein. He is the co-host of Guerrilla History, host of the Mudgeless podcast. He is also a brilliant professor and chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. I thought we would plow through a couple of topics and try to get to all of them. The secret is my keeping my my mouth shut. So we'll talk about DM25's new manifesto for Europe, Athens declaration by Corbyn and Varoufakis on Ukraine, uh, the non-aligned movement, China and Russia's joint statement and the Friends of the UN Charter. Let's get right to it. DM25's new manifesto for Europe. What is DM25? Uh, well, thanks uh, for having me again, uh, David. It's always great to be with you. DM25 is Democracy in Europe Movement, 25 meaning for 2025. So it was a project to, uh, you know, ambitiously, perhaps they're a little bit behind schedule, but uh, we hope that uh, events will accelerate, but they're, uh, project is a transnational European progressive movement uh, to democratize the European Union. In other words, um, their view is that uh, without it being democratized, it will just simply disintegrate. And we see that, of course, there was there's been Brexit. There are other pressures. Uh, even last week, I talked a little bit about some of the consequences of the French election that uh, Dr. Fraud was just mentioning, um, that uh, uh, Mélenchon's uh, party has created a coalition with the other left parties. But one of the key planks 
is a kind of economic nationalism and a withdrawal from aspects of the European project, according to his agenda. Um, and, uh, you know, concern about NATO and, and other kinds of transnational frameworks that violate the sovereignty of French working class people and, you know, are designed in many ways to exploit, exploit them. So there's, a, you know, both on the left and on the right, there are increasing suspicions about transnational and often very unaccountable and undemocratic institutions, which, of course, the European Union par excellence is an example of that um you know if you think about it it's an absolute oligarch or you know and its class of pmc servants you might say it's their dream you know it's the rule of experts uh unaccountable policy proposals that trample on uh individual you know nation sovereignties to the extent that as yanis varoufakis is fond of quoting uh a statement by a, a german uh eu official um during uh his attempt to renegotiate the relationship between greece and uh the european union when they were suffering a financial crisis um uh that that elections should not be allowed to uh, overturn uh, economic policy. You know, in other words, democracy has no place in, you know, the European Union. You have to have a certain percentage of your GDP, uh, a a debt. There's there's a debt ratio set by the 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 EU. Uh, well, exactly. To be part of the monetary union in the single currency, uh, you know, there are all kinds of consequences of that that take fiscal policy out of the hands of a national central bank and puts it at the level of a European, you know, architecture, monetary and financial architecture. And the point here was, is that you can't renegotiate that whether or not you've had an election um, where a new government uh, running on a completely different uh, set of proposals and policy agendas has a mandate from its people to pursue a different policy, that's not going to be tolerated in the European Union because you have an unaccountable system um, that's in the hands of oligarchs rather than in the hands of, of people. So the purpose of this DM 25 movement is not to withdraw from a European scope of political, social, cultural action in the way that perhaps certain kinds of left movements might. Uh, even, you know, even Jeremy Corbyn, for example, saw the European Union as uh, adverse to the kind of economic agenda he wanted. So, in some ways, he was supportive of the Brexit uh, process. It's just he wanted a left. Brexit. He wanted a, you know, a Lexit. Uh, and this was something that divided, you know, people who were on the center or, or, or left because there are these kinds of divisions. So what's at stake for DM25 is offering a left version of a European project that is democratic, that the real problem with the European Union is that it is in the hands of the oligarchs and not the people. So 
what needs to happen is to democratize the European Union and democratize Europe and have a kind of, you know, democratic political uh, revolution. And to do so is going to require forging a kind of transnational European political movement and where appropriate political parties that are affiliated or aligned with DM 25. And so they have recently put out a new when they were founded in 2016, they put out a manifesto. Um, they've updated their manifesto and they released it just um, a, a week or so ago on Victory Europe Day that, you know, as we recall, the, you know, truce and the armistice agreement that ended World War II in Europe, in the European theater, <clears throat> to revision, you know, what is the kind of Europe that they want uh, to have. And I think it's a very interesting um, and um, ambitious, uh, uh, you know, manifesto that covers a lot of interesting issues that we would consider, you know, important on uh, the left about decommodifying, you know, fying, you know, the necessities of life, protecting um, internet freedom and data uh, so that that isn't commodified as well. And, you know, a tool of our own uh, kind of oppression and many other kinds of, you know, very important planks. But what I think was is so interesting about it is this idea of a Europe-wide affiliation. And what's interesting is that um, positions that they would take, even if it's of a local concern in a particular country or a particular region within a country, are still nonetheless democratically um, debated and uh, voted on and determined by the movement as a whole in its kind of various councils. So they are promoting an idea that you don't divide uh, sovereignty, but the sovereignty of peoples is something that we all have a stake in together. So that's a very interesting, different kind of model. So as an American, I'm not that familiar with the EU, but as I understand it, there's a parliament, there are elections. If you belong to the EU, if you're a member state, you go to the polls and elect your representative to Brussels. Right. And so is DM25 working within that system to transform it or do they want to dissolve the EU, come up with a new system? What kind of revolution well, are we talking about? I mean, about? I, I think what they don't want to dissolve various democratic or, you know, kind of political bodies that exist. They, however, have a view, it seems, that these have to be enhanced by democratic people's councils as mediators between these things and that policy, you know, should be uh, developed in a different mode or mechanism. But the point with the European Parliament is that it doesn't actually have great scope um, in most of the areas that we would consider significant or important for, um, you know, sovereign decisions. It's not a European government in quite the same way that a national government is. In fact, actually, Margaret Thatcher was quite concerned that, oh, if we enter a monetary union, in fact, this is why the British pound was kept separate from the euro, um, that what would follow is a kind of federal federalized system of government. In fact, Europe doesn't have a federalized system of government because it doesn't want any level of genuine accountability from democratic sources. So instead, you have these treaties and, you know, these uh, negotiations that have taken place. And um, none of that is really subject to 
review. They're negotiated between countries, but they're but it's not like um, you are electing people to establish those policies. So. I think, you know, what's, you know, important is that they have a a concept or a sense that it's going to take kind of social movements as well as some electoral uh, developments uh, in order to transform, but that they have, I think, an interesting attitude of um, disobedience. It's kind of interesting is that the the actual political parties, there's one or two affiliates in Germany and in Greece, they've created political parties that go under Mira 25 that are affiliated with DM 25. And um, what it translates to, it's it's Greek, and that's the kind of acronym for it, but is European Realistic Disobedience Front. And that is that we should not cooperate with the aspects of our oppression and um, offer alternatives. And I think that's one thing that they are very good at is developing kind of policy alternatives, not because they think that, you know, under this oligarchic system that these would be adopted or that you could persuade, you know, these officials to adopt them, but that this is necessary to show that there are alternatives that would be human centered uh, policy, uh, you know, changes. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this um, and whether there is a space for some kind of actual uh, tangible forms of, international or transnational left solidarity how that works and is working so that's what i found kind of interesting about it as opposed to um and in contrast with uh kind of nationalist uh you know using the nation state as uh the sphere in which uh if we pull out of gat and nafta and the wto and so on then at least we can protect sovereignty and actually have a say in the policies economic and social policies of our government that's one approach uh, but this is a kind of ambitious and interesting approach that tries to preserve some sense of the international and collaborative space and uh, that will be interesting it's to me to see whether it takes off um, yeah. and you know, and can change things. Yeah. Uh, I don't know enough about this. The European Commission, though, the, the EU has done a pretty good job uh, slowing down American hegemony over at least Europe. I, I know that they've been active in preventing genetically modified food from mm-hmm. coming to Europe. They've, they were the first ones to crack down on big tech and the monopolistic practices of Google, Facebook, and Apple. So I would hate to lose. Well, yes, yes. I mean, that is exactly the point, is that in many respects, if you compare, well, this is what the argument of of genuine leftists against uh, Brexit might have been. Of course, there's the neoliberals, you know, forget about that, their arguments for it. But one of them was that without the kind of overall architecture of a European Union negotiating for terms of trade, uh, you know, England, UK, little England on its own will be kind right. of overwhelmed by American capitalism, which is a much more, you know, vicious and and uh, without any of the sort of safeties and supports and, you know, labor protections and environmental protections that at least within the context of continental Europe, 
they are not uh, you know the kinds of protections that anybody who's genuinely on the left really wants but they're much better than what you might be exposed to if you have to negotiate agreements directly with the united states on your own so yes that was one of the key arguments and i think that's part of the reason why dm25 doesn't want to abandon the european project it wants a, a kind of cosmopolitan you know, where you can still have your national, linguistic, cultural identity, but to have a political uh, expression for common values, common ideals of, you know, a basic, you know, uh, living standard of cultural rights, of, uh, you know, technological pr uh, protections against technology and AI, uh, of uh, respect for, you know, a welcoming of refugees, uh, you know, an, an environmentally sustainable relationship relationship uh, and so on and transformation of the economy. So one of the major policy agendas of them is a European uh, Green New Deal. And they, they right. spend some time looking into that. Um, so you're you're right about that. Um, I think one of the other things, if we want to move to this. Oh, I, I just have one question oh, go I, ahead. about Great Britain. I was for so I was reading about the who last night and Peter Townsend is anti Brexit. Roger Daltrey is a Brexiteer. Hmm. And I went, this is like the the rockers versus the mods in Quadrophenia. Yeah. And, and well, which would be which in your I <laughs> well, I would assume the mods would I be the know. European pro pro Europe. I uh, wouldn't faction. I don't know, but maybe it there it's I've been trained since Trump rose that he rose simultaneously with Brexit and that Brexit is a bad thing. Because if you're mm -hmm. pro-Brexit, mm -hmm. you're a nationalist, you're like Orban, you have authoritarian instincts, you're a nationalist. Uh, we were also warned that Brexit would be an apocalypse if it went through. Right, yeah. yeah. So have we seen the apocalypse in Great Britain? Well, maybe it's too early to tell how um, destructive the effects longer term might be if uh, they change a lot of laws and liberalize aspects of the economy, roll back uh, workers' rights and environmental, you know, and under this government, that's certainly a goal. And there are threats in this direction. I think, you know, given the pandemic, it's been very difficult for them to put through a more ambitious uh, kind of Thatcherite-like uh, agenda. Right. Um, but yes, it hasn't obviously been a case where immediately on the day of Brexit, it meant that like life-saving medicines would suddenly not be able to come across the channel. Clearly they found ways to organize, you know, trade and, um, and so on. So you're right that some of the apocalyptic imagery about how all order in society and economy would collapse has obviously been exaggerated. Right. But I think, you know, what's interesting, DM25's view is that it is, in fact, actually the oligarchic control over Europe and the bureaucratic, uh, you know, unaccountable, remote uh, rule of uh, the experts uh, and, and so on. Um, to impose austerity upon uh, European working classes is what has fueled right-wing, ultra-right nationalism, um, and that the two are both sides of the same kind of right. coin. 
And so what we need to do is not sort of adopt the uh, withdrawal from the kind of common international uh, and collective uh, condition, but to democratize it. That's right. their sort of take on it. Yeah. The new yeah. non-aligned movements. Let's talk about Ukraine and yes. peace and security frameworks for Europe. Mm hmm. Well, I mean, this is also an outgrowth, I would say, of DM25. So if we look at what their actual uh, sort of foreign policy kind of take is, uh, there was this uh, uh, just on Friday, a declaration made in Athens at this Mera 25 uh, party meeting uh, that where uh, Jeremy Corbyn um, and uh, Eche Temelkuran, a Turkish uh, dissident and activist, uh, and an intellectual uh, joined Yanis Varoufakis, the former, you know, uh, finance minister for the Syriza government in Greece, um, in promulgating um, this declaration that um, was quite interesting, I thought, because it really harkened back to some issues of geopolitics and of block politics um, that, uh, you know, I'm interested in and have talked a little bit about in the post-World War II era. But what they said basically is they've taken the, the position of, you know, standing in solidarity with Ukrainian people, with what they're suffering, welcoming of refugees, condemning, um, you know, the invasion as a violation of international law, um, but proposing that, you know, uh, uh, this is not the authorization for continued uh, unending uh, proxy war, but rather that they called for uh, an immediate ceasefire, uh, withdrawal of Russian forces and negotiation uh, in good faith of a peace treaty, a comprehensive peace treaty on all the various issues that are relevant and that have uh, you know, engendered the conflict to be guaranteed by the European, U.S. and Russia in the contents, the context of the United Nations. And then going further than that, of course, you know, talking about respect for international law and refugees. But also, I think this was the interesting part is opposing division of the world in competing blocks, whether that's economic blocks or military blocks that invest, as they say, in rampant militarism, hypermodern weapons of mass destruction and a new Cold War. So this is what they're identifying as the outcome and the legacy of continuing, you know, war here in, in, in Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia and the larger global framework is this rules-based order that the U.S. is putting forward, this new Russia-China axis. These are, you know, potentially destabilizing. Uh, even if we're talking about a move to a multipolar world, it's nonetheless, what are the terms uh, and conditions of such a multipolar, what kind of a multipolar world should we on the left be insisting upon and working toward? And so one thing that they're, uh, finally they, they, they suggest is that, you know, lasting peace, as they say, can be achieved only by replacing all military blocks with an inclusive international security framework that deescalates tensions, expands freedoms, fights poverty, limits exploitation, pursues social and environmental justice, and terminates the domination of one country by another. So taking it out of just the geostrategic element, you know, of realist uh, and neorealist conceptions of realpolitik between states, but saying that there is a common human investment 
in a security framework whose goals are not national interest, though it may respect national sovereignties, but actually is committed to expanding freedom, fighting poverty, and pursuing environmental uh, and social justice. And so they call upon forces in a kind of people's call for a new non-aligned movement that non-aligned democratic and sovereign nations working together is the route to lasting peace and a world that can avert climate catastrophe and bequeath the next generation a decent chance at creating conditions for globally shared prosperity so that's their document their declaration this idea however of the non-aligned movement very interesting hearkening back to uh the third way the third world uh, what emerged in 1955 or began in 1955, the Bandung Conference that I've occasionally referenced in our discussions uh, as a signal turning point in geopolitics, um, in um, trying to uh, uh, militate against the block politics of first world or second world military alliance and alignments during the Cold War. And in particular, the U.S. sponsored these military alliances modeled on the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, like the Manila Pact, uh, Seattle, Southeast Asian, you know, Treaty Alliance, the Baghdad Pact or the Central treaty organization uh these kinds of attempts to force countries into uh, military and political alliance with the united states were things that really um undermined you know stability in uh the global south as was emerging out of the ravages of world war ii and as newly liberated post-colonial countries facing huge and enormous challenges and also worried in this era of the new nuclear calculus that war could lead to you know kind of holocaust and this is what of course what we're thinking about today is we're at the closest point just as in 1955 they were worried about the war that had been just had been taking place in the korean peninsula um very concerned about the possibility of you know nuclear conflict between you know great states in which the rest of the world you know will pay you know, well, all of humanity will pay, you know, an, in, an incredible uh, price. So I think it's interesting that they were referring to this new aligned movement. But what's different about it this time and what I'm I, I think is noteworthy here is that not just talking about a non-aligned movement at the prerogative of states, that's essentially what it was, was statist kind of views. And that's why there wasn't much of an ideological component of it. You had, you know, uh, kind of very fairly conservative very pro-capitalist states uh, that emerged in, like, say, the Philippines that still wanted to be aligned in many ways with the U.S., but did want to participate in this kind of non-aligned block, or at least uh, some aspects of the Bandung Conference to militant nationalists, uh, right. you know, countries like Egypt and, uh, and um, uh, you know, anti-imperialist countries to actually communist countries, you know, that were that were part of it. So it was a sort of grab bag. What was common to them was that they were states and they wanted to protect the rights of states. And that was seen as the um, 
context or the framework in which you could guarantee people's rights, you know, against racism, uh, for peace, for uh, cooperation, um, you know, uh, maintain, uh, you know, uh, uh, sovereignty against neo-colonialism or the reimposition uh, of, of colonial control. What they're imagining here in this Athens Declaration is much more of a people's uh, kind of sovereignty, that the peoples of the world, the state may be an expression of it, but that the peoples of the world have to uh, kind of see their investment together uh, in a non-aligned movement and to demand instead, um, you know, a, a, a security architecture that reflects these other uh, values, both of peace, but of social and uh, economic and uh, uh, and environmental justice. And that always seemed to me what was, you know, powerful about the Bandung Conference, that even though it was something dreamed up by these 29 nations, what it did was it had it inspired actually solidarities globally uh, that connected the anti-colonial struggle with anti-racism struggles in the first world. Uh, that's what was a powerful legacy of it, uh, quite apart from the non-aligned block of states. And so this is really picking up, I think, on that history and on that legacy. And if people are interested in guerrilla history, did two episodes. That's right. I just. That's yes. right. I, we just released um, an intelligence briefing, which is one of our shorter kind of episodes where we don't always have a guest. It's really a conversation between the co-hosts, Brett and Henry and myself. And we did one on the Bandung conference a little over a year ago. At the time, it was a Patreon exclusive. But we're now that a year has passed, we're unlocking episodes uh, as we go on every month, one of the other intelligence briefings that we do. So hopefully people will find it interesting and valuable and connect with that history that I see being rethought through um, great. and used. I, I, in Great. I, uh, fantastic. We have uh, Joe Loria here. He's editor-in-chief of Consortium News. Speaking of unlocking Patreon content, Consortium News has been uh, locked by PayPal, and we want to get to that because Peter B. Collins has a hard out. Uh, feel free, I, I don't, no pressure. Uh, if you want to stick around and ask uh, Joe Loria some questions, I'd be more than happy. But uh, Peter has- Well, a, I'll let Peter go ahead, but I'm uh, an avid listener. Thanks great. so much. Th thank you, uh, uh, Professor Adnan Hussein, Chairman of the Religion Department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. What a gift you are to the universe. Go listen to the Mudgeless podcast, as well as Guerrilla History. Joe Loria is about to join us. He's editor-in-chief of Consortium News. He's covered foreign policy at the United Nations for newspapers ranging from the Boston Globe, the Montreal Gazette, and Johannesburg Star. Well, I would be honored to talk to him about what's going on in Ukraine. But today, Peter B. Collins is going to talk about, with Joe, PayPal, which said it mistakenly told Joe over Consortium News that its account could be restored, saying instead it was shut forever without ever giving any reasons for it. I believe at one time PayPal was keeping about $10,000. I think they've released the $10,000, the New York Post 
A right-wing rag wrote an editorial on Wednesday condemning PayPal's actions against Consortium News and Mint Press. Uh, Peter B. Collins uh, brought the uh, editor-in-chief of Mint Press on about two weeks ago. So this is uh, pretty serious stuff. And many listeners, many people around the world are canceling their PayPal accounts because PayPal is cracking down, making it harder for Consortium News to practice their First Amendment rights. Take it away, Peter B. Collins, Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. David, thank you very much. This has been three weeks in the making. It was three weeks ago that we spoke to Manar Adley, the founder and editor-in-chief at Mint Press News. Uh, they were notified by PayPal in a similar manner. And just before uh, Joe Laurier got the notification from PayPal, uh, and the treatment was similar, that uh, PayPal just arbitrarily announced that uh, their accounts were essentially frozen, uh, that money that was on deposit was in a kind of suspense. And uh, this comes after both Mint Press and Consortium News have done excellent work providing Americans with uh, important alternative views and information regarding the war in Ukraine. I've known Joe Laria for more than 15 years. I first learned of his work when Robert Perry, the founder of Consortium News, published him during the war in Iraq. And uh, uh, Joe Laria was not embedded with the mainstream media organizations. He spent years as an independent reporter, even lived in Iraq for several years. And uh, Joe, I want to apologize for waking you up three weeks ago. You're in London tonight, and it's the middle of the night there. We really appreciate you making time to share this important story. May I with just, the I, I hate to be. Podcast. I, Go I, ahead, David. I, just, it's your I, show. No, no, it, it's your it's your show. Your microphone is scraping. It, you sound great, but there's, there's scraping. And, that, and now, okay, thank you. Thank you. All right. Joe, welcome. And uh, again, thank you. Thank you. But take us through the this kind of whirlwind and whiplash episode with PayPal, where you're given no explanation for their behavior, and the power that they hold is uh, quite remarkable. Well, it is. Uh, you, you really got to see this in the context of what Bob Perry founded in 1995. Uh, he, he set up Consortium. It was a consortium of journalists who were from the mainstream who had experienced similarly to him, their stories being spiked by their editors. If they were too critical of foreign policy, if they undermine the uh, national interests, etc. For example, Bob's most famous story probably was that he identified Oliver North and his role in Iran Contra. Nobody had heard of him before that. And AP wouldn't run the story. Uh, they just kept telling him to get more information. At one point, why doesn't, Oliver North just confess. Uh, it went out inadvertently on the Spanish warrior of the AP, and that was the end of that, so they had to publish it. But this, So Bob got fed up with that. Started in 1995, Consortium News, probably the oldest independent uh, news site in the, in the country because uh, the New York Times and the LA Times, they all started weeks, months. Salon started five days after Consortium News went online. So this is the background. Now, what did Bob really, what is his aim, Robert Perry's aim for Consortium News, which I've been endeavoring to carry on, is to 
publish information that is purposely and often deceptively left out of corporate media accounts that changes the entire story. And there's no better example than Ukraine. Uh, David, you said you wanted to talk about Ukraine. Well, this PayPal story is very much related to Ukraine by the corporate media leaving out important parts of that story. Uh, what is resulting is a completely fantastic idea of what, uh, what happened in Ukraine. And that's what the Consortium News is all about, to publish what the corporate media is suppressing, like they suppress pop stories. So what comes along is uh, this crisis, and they're really getting serious now about cracking down on anybody who's providing that missing information. And let me just say this. You could disagree. And that's they're working. It seems to take that away from us. And, and uh, Joe, ways now. Joe, you froze up yes. for a second. So you were starting to say you could disagree and then it cut out. Yes. Um, what what we see here is PayPal, as they did with men press news and uh, what they try to do. Uh, well, that's another story. Gray zone. Uh, antiwar.com is another one. Um, I'm going to get to that part of the story later, but they essentially are trying to defund us because PayPal was, of course, a very important source of income from our donors, and we only get money from readers uh, and a family foundation and a guy called Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. I mean, other than that, you know, we're getting hundred dollars, fifty dollars, twenty-five. It adds up. We're very grateful to those people. That's who funds us, and uh, they, a lot of them donate through PayPal. We pay our writers through PayPal. Well, we did because PayPal shut us down. They gave no reasons for it. They did seize our money, and um, I think because I wrote those stories, made a stink, did a lot of interviews. Matt Taibbi did a story about it. That's what led to the New York Post's editorial. Uh, so all of that combined that uh, I think they decided that uh, that $10,000 was uh, not worth holding on to if we were going to possibly join a class action suit in Northern California over where you are, Peter, against PayPal for the same things they did to us. They have shut down people and never explained why and kept the money. And there was a story of the world champion poker player who put out a tweet and anybody wanted join our our class action stamp if it happened to you and they gave him the money back the next day so they gave us the money back i think so that we had really no legal course against them and joe they, the precedent the precedent yes. for this is what they did to wikileaks because at a crucial point uh in the saga of uh, julian Assange, assange's efforts to continue publishing and to remain uh, at least unincarcerated. He was at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. But uh, the, the cutoff of funding to WikiLeaks is really the precedent for what has recently been visited on Mint Press and Consortium News. And Joe's feed is frozen right now. Joe, if you can hear me, see if you can just nudge your computer a little bit. Or, yeah, go ahead and turn. Oh, we lost Joe altogether. So hopefully when he comes back, maybe uh, he can uh, turn off his video, and that will help uh, with the audio. And while we're waiting for Joe to rejoin, I just want to direct you to consortiumnews.com. 
recently publishing a brilliant piece by John Kiriakou, the CIA whistleblower, uh, about uh, the new disinformation governance board, which is aimed at, uh, it's not going to be called censorship, but that's what it is. They claim that we have to clamp, clamp down on disinformation. I like to think this is irony. Misinformation. Uh, go ahead, David. I, I, I want to, I'm hoping this is irony that we can't hear Joe. Well, and let's note that uh, following our interview with Menar Adley about the Mint Press cutoff, the David Feldman Show website uh, no, mysteriously no, went no, down. No, that's not true. I forgot to renew. Oh, <laughs> I forgot. Okay. I, I was hoping that was the case, but no. Can you hold right. hold the fort for one second? Uh, sure. I think Joe is coming here, back. Here comes Joe. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I will also mention that uh, my website at peterbcollins.com is mysteriously down. I went there today because I was going to look up how many times I'm, I'm in the past I've interviewed Joe Lauriette, but I wasn't able to do that. Joe, I'm glad you could reconnect. Let me suggest you turn off your video because uh, I can see that four-star uh, okay. hotel room that you're staying in in London. Uh, uh, three, three, three stars anyway. <laughs> may not have the best. Don't exaggerate. Off. Don't exaggerate. But I, yeah, I can shut I, it off if you, you want. Know, mm-hmm. Yeah, let's. I, let's I don't do think that. the video is an issue. Our experience is the video is compressed. Okay. So keep the video right, on. Then. Let's continue, please. No, no my That'll... my computer died. It had nothing to do with you. It's my what happened here. Oh, okay. Well, I was. I'd like to finish answering that theory. question. Yes, yeah, yeah. Forget the that. Press the precedent of uh, the PayPal cutoff of Assange. Yeah. Yes. Before I wanted to finish my answer about what PayPal, why did they shut us down? They wouldn't tell us no matter what. Uh, They said that Robert Perry is the only one who could uh, uh, be told that. And of course, I explained to them that he was been deceased for four years. And they said, well, they could only speak to him. So uh, they didn't tell uh, uh, Menar as well. What in their user agreement, there are restricted activities. One of them is providing disinformation, misinformation, fake information. So, the only thing we trade in is information. You know, we don't sell anything. We actually don't even sell it. We offer it and take donations for it. So it had to be that. They don't like our coverage of the Ukraine war because, as I said before we got cut off, the corporate media is purposely suppressing parts of this story to change the overall understanding of it. And we are the ones we are providing that. So they're trying to stop us from doing that. And we now have this organization, NewsGuard, that is reviewing us to try to give us one of maybe their red symbol uh, that shows the public that we are not reliable because we are giving information that they don't want. And I'll give you one short example. NewsGuard has a uh, a page about myths about Ukraine, and they say there was no U.S. back coup in 2014, even though it's very clear that Yanukovych was unconstitutionally overthrown. And what they leave out of their argument is the smoking gun the victoria newland tape which she discusses with the american ambassador at the time who was going to be in the government for yanukovych who was democratically elected and certified by the osce before he was violently overthrown and they're talking about who's going to be in the government they left that out that's a perfect example of what corporate media does they leave out very crucial things and all we're trying to do at consortium news peter is not support any sign in this war uh but to just give the context the geopolitical context text to talk about the causes of the war historians talk about versailles and the onerous 
uh, the onerous uh, terms put on Germany that that was a reason for the rise of Nazism in World War II. But nobody says that German that they're excusing what the Nazis did. So we're not excusing any side here. We're trying to explain the facts that are being left out. And I think that we're getting um, we're getting um, attacked for this. And this is very dangerous, obviously, for the larger issues, not just for consortium news, but about whether the press can be controlled to enforce a single narrative. And before the government did it by pressuring social media companies to deplatform people, to kick them off Twitter, whatever. And now that was by proxy, some kind of censorship. Now with this disinformation uh, and governance board, Woodrow Wilson has his dream. He lost by one vote in the Senate in 1917 to get the official government censorship in the Espionage Act. He lost by one vote. Of course, he brought the Sedition Act the next year and more or less did what he wanted to do. And that only lasted a few years. And well, they threw many people in jail for speeches that they made. Uh, and it's, so it's not new in America, but we have got this coming back again right now. And Joe, part of what you just said is uh, a part of a speech that you gave in Slovenia just a few days ago to the international journalism group, uh, PEN, P-E-N. And uh, I recommend that people go to Consortium News. Uh, they can read your text and also uh, watch a video that includes some uh, unscripted remarks. But I- I'd like you to explain the linkage to uh, shutting down WikiLeaks uh, flow of money and that this same tactic is being used on Consortium News and Mint Press. Exactly. Julian Assange is the symbol of the beginning of the this move to shut down free speech that threatens the interests of very powerful people. It's information they don't want people to know or to spin the story in a way that uh, changes what they're really doing. And uh, Assange is in jail for doing it. He's suffering way more than any of us have, obviously. But it began, yeah, back in 2010, which is when they published the Iraq War Diaries and the Afghan War Diaries and Guantanamo Bay. They really major releases of WikiLeaks then when the Obama administration began to investigate and ultimately decided not to indict him. That was Trump, although Biden uh, saying that they couldn't indict him if he didn't steal the government information, but just received it. Here he is as president continuing with the indictment. But that at that point, PayPal, and it got worse than PayPal. It was Visa, I believe, and it may have been one other, Master Charge. They just would not work with, with WikiLeaks anymore. Now, did they just wake up one morning and decide to do that on their own? Was there pressure from the government? Who knows? Uh, we'll probably never know that, but they are doing the government's bidding, whether it was their own initiative or not. And uh, so that was clearly an attempt to sh- destroy and shut down WikiLeaks. If they got no funding, it couldn't exist anymore. And I think we're seeing that model being imposed on very small players like Consortium News. We you know, we get about 10,000 readers a day during the war. We've gone up to 40, 45,000. And we've had an enormous outpouring, Peter, I should say, of people donating to us and, and supporting us online because they saw what happened. They understand the principle at stake here. So ultimately, WikiLeaks went to court and won. So it was restored, the PayPal account. I don't know if it is now, but I think it is. Uh, and certainly Visa and MasterCard, you can donate by credit card uh, right now. So they won. So, um, I don't know whether, you know, uh, that we're going to have to go to the same extent. As I say, I think they didn't freeze our money anymore, so we wouldn't join that suit. Although it's a very troubling thing to not explain why 
something is done. Uh, and, and you can't, I mean, you got to a customer service rep. Yeah. But you were, you, you cannot reach somebody with an appeal or an argument or a demand for proof uh, who has any dis- decision making authority. So it's a totally opaque wall that you confront and they've got the power. And this, this is really insidious. And I, I want to direct people. I mentioned after we lost your connection, Joe, that you recently published John Kiriakou's piece that originated at Sheer Post. And uh, you and I know John. He's been uh, an incredible uh, whistleblower and a man of, of great integrity. Uh, and he's also a pretty good writer. And he wrote a piece about this Orwellian Homeland Security Department uh, Disinformation Governance Board. And when you link that to NewsGuard, which is a corporate Stephen Brill and friends formed a company that issues these, uh, you know, symbols of approval. And Fox News gets approval, but Consortium News doesn't. Well, not yet. And they haven't decided that. They're reviewing us now. Oh, I see. Okay. But, uh, I mean, we've, we've also seen how uh, NewsGuard has operated in a similar arbitrary in and opaque manner. So we're seeing a, a sharp uh, threat to freedom of information in the United States. And uh, it's really sad and difficult to watch. So many people who were vigilant about the excesses that occurred during the George W. Bush administration, who rode along during the Obama years and then bought into Russiagate, and now they are groomed. They are groomed mentally. Uh, to accept the propaganda that all crimes occurring in this war are Russian when there are clear indications that Ukraine has committed equivalent atrocities, uh, whether they amount to war crimes or not, is largely just a discussion point because we don't belong to the International Criminal Court. And so it's empty rhetoric when we hear Americans, uh, you know, uh, chirping about war crimes. But the, the other piece that I want to recommend to people, you published on April 29th, which was Natalie Baldwin's interview with Olga Baisha about Ukraine's president and a lot of history. That, for example, it was more than a year ago that Zelensky purged independent media in Ukraine. And so it is not this pure democracy that the U.S. corporate media makes it out to be. And you're not providing alternative facts. You are providing real information. Right, which they don't want people to uh, read, obviously, because that will undermine their own story, how they want people to perceive this. And this is a really uh, good example. Uh, Not only that one, but, you know, there are about three or four really important things you got to understand about Ukraine that you're not going to read in a corporate newspaper. Although you did in 2014, but it's gone now. One, there was a coup d'etat in 2014. There's no question about that. The U.S. involvement with Ukraine goes back to 1949 after the war when they made an agreement with Mykola Lebed, who was a, a right-hand man of um, Stepan Bandera, uh, in this Ukrainian fascist movement that actually killed thousands and tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of Jews and Poles and then fought the Germans because they wanted to 
up in independent Ukraine. And Germany, of course, was not interested in that. And this guy went to the U.S. in New York, and he worked with the CIA up until maybe as late as 1991 uh, to undermine the uh, do sabotage operations against the Soviet Union. Interesting that you're freezing up uh, right around the the most controversial uh, subject matter. Uh, but I I'm uh, of sound mind and I refuse to believe that's a uh, anything other than a coincidence. Joe, are you there? I am back. I am back. No, no, I don't know what's going on here. This is not a uh, nobody's trying to. Yeah, shut us down. I don't believe that there's something going on. Can I, crazy. can I ask you a question? Do you mind if I ask you? A, uh, well, of course. So why I'm here. Okay, so <laughs> I'm, you know, a little paranoid, and my show is not important. I don't have the uh, the gravitas that you have. Uh, but I was curious about PayPal. So Robert Parry passed away, correct? In 2018, yes, January. And, and the cons so Consortium had an account in his name with PayPal. Right. All the donations to PayPal were in his name. Um, no, the name of the account was Consortium, the Consortium for Independent Journalism Incorporated, which is the but they claimed the reason they were the publisher. I, I thought I heard you say the reason yeah, they gave was we because didn't we didn't change the name. When you go onto the account, it's the Consortium News account. But was it Think tied to Parker, his... But there was a name on it. Right. There's a name. It says, Welcome Robert, you know? Right. I never bothered to change that because it wasn't his personal account. It was the Who, Consortium News' account. But there, but there is, so a, now they're there is an email yeah. associated with a PayPal account that's immutable. You yes. And so I'm yes. going to assume it was associated with his email account that he was keeping alive. Even Not though a personal email. No, it was the consortium. It was consort new at AOL.com was the okay. actual what would that happen, he started. So there is an inconvenience of having to tell everybody who donates to consortium that what would happen if you try to reopen a new PayPal account. No, I, I read all the rules. You can't do that. Once they've suspended you, you, you they'll have you tried? Can't do it. They won't allow it. No, but, but I'm but, not sure I want anything to do with PayPal. Well, but, but hang on for one second. Be hang, honest with you. Hang on for one second, because I work with PayPal. They, they, I have donators. It would be a major inconvenience for me to die, and then have to, you know, re up all my donations on the same PayPal account. But is it fair to say that PayPal has shut Consortium News down without trying to open up another account on PayPal with the name Consortium News? If you haven't tried that, is that fair to say you were being silenced? Well, it's we're being trying. They're trying to defund us. This isn't about speech as much as funding. Okay, so, but but if you haven't based on if our you speech, haven't that's tried, what's troubling. Hang yeah. on for one second. If you haven't tried to open up yeah. another PayPal account yeah. in your name, in you know, Robert passed away. That account was taken. It belonged to a deceased person. That's what they told you, right? 
Yeah, so I did all the paperwork necessary to change it to my name, and they won't put it through because our account suspended. That's what I was told. But could you so open you up? Could in other words, they won't transfer all the donations to your account, correct? Well, um, we don't have a PayPal account. If we try to open one again with consortium in, in, uh, consortium uh, news, we will. It won't happen. I mean, that, they know? made that pretty clear. If you read their rules, I mean, I could try. I think I'll be wasting my time, frankly. But if this were um, if this were um, taken to court, if this were taken to court, yeah. the judge would say, "We shut PayPal claims it shut down your account." because the owner of that account was deceased. That's their story. No, no, it's not. No, they, they shut it down for a reason we don't know. <laughs> That's the short answer. We don't know. They won't say a word about why. I'm, uh, I think I'm doing more than assuming that it had to do with the information that we put out because it says in their rules, if you, a violation, uh, one of the restricted activities is to put provide false or misleading information, so misinformation. So I, that's the reason but it has I'm to not be trying that. to be I'm not trying to be difficult but you're a journalist yeah, yeah. you're a journalist you're an investigative mm. journalist well I have done it in the past investigative okay. reporting yeah Sunday Times okay. of London I think my question yeah, anyway. I think my questions yeah. are important sure because this is conjecture that you're being silenced because of your reporting or you're being defunded yeah. because of your reporting Can what other reason could there be? If it was something uncontroversial, non-controversial, they would say it. I but think. that's not Why journalism. Are they being about it? It's not journalism to say what other reason could there be. What would be what, the way journalism works is you open up another PayPal account under the name Consortium News in your name, not that of a deceased person's, and see if you can collect donations. Then you've established a case of either censorship or silencing. You're operating on David Feldman's type of paranoia. I, I understand no, why you think. I don't this. agree. I don't agree. It's paranoia. Well, no. But anyway. Well, hang on. If you don't open up another, how can you say you're being shut down by PayPal if you don't try to open up another PayPal account? That's unfair. Because no, no, because the, it says very clearly in the rules, you cannot reopen another account under that name, under the name of Consortium News it cannot be done. Once they suspend you or permanently limit you, whatever they call, that's it. But my account is under Feldo Productions Unlimited. Right. It's right. not under the David Feldman show. Okay. So, I mean, if, if I were shut down, I would immediately and they gave me a reason I would immediately try to reopen a PayPal account under a different name with my email, my identification to yeah. test whether or not they were targeting me. I, I don't think David, you've done. I don't I, think you've I done need, due diligence. I need, I need to sign. David, I need to sign off here. I just like to make one comment, and that is I think you're perseverating over a technicality, which is that PayPal had an administrator named Robert Perry listed in a stale uh, digital record of the decision maker at Consortium News. They didn't, I don't believe they made this move and it, it, you know, the pattern between Mint Press and Consortium News is pretty stark. 
And, uh, you know, Menar Adley did not have any issues like who was the administrator on her account. And so uh, I, I just think this is a, a okay. distraction. And the significant matter is that we don't know. And that PayPal has this incredible power over independent media. And I will speak up uh, for both of you because when I was actively podcasting, I used PayPal because it is compatible with most of the subscription software that you can find, and it is widely used. And I thought about uh, bailing from PayPal when they dinged Julian Assange, but I left it there because it was going to cost too much to switch to another platform, and I would lose too many overseas subscribers who might not be able to follow along. So to me, the central issue here is a, a consistent and pervasive effort to marginalize the independent news voices who are online uh, emanating from the United States at a time when we have a managed consensus that the administration's view of the war in Ukraine is the only valid one. And exactly. that is a very dangerous uh, uh, trend that is putting us on a path to fascism where the government colludes with the corporate media to present only approved information and to silence voices of dissent. Okay. So on that, I must sign exactly. off. I'm sorry, I've got, okay. I've got another Zoom date. Thank I don't you, usually have it, but Peter I have B. to Collins. tonight. Joe, right, thank you, have, you, Peter. Good to talk to you again. Joe, do you yeah, have 10 Joe, more minutes? Pleasure. Yeah, I can hang out. I okay. can hang out. Sure. Uh, Professor Marianne Cummings joins us. She wanted to ask a question, and I'm going to open mm. this up to... Professor Adnan Hussein. Professor Marianne Cummings. If I can, I'm sorry, I have very little voice. More, more this, this is more um, silencing. Yeah. Yes, I know. Oh, look, so, so pleased to meet you, Mr. Laurie. Right. I've been reading your stuff for years. <clears throat> okay, so, you know, the, this, this pattern, though, of just squelching, any dissenting voices. I found the case uh, of, of one of your contributors, Scott Ritter, and another one, Pepe Escobar, to be very disturbing. These people have had their Twitter accounts shut down, and there's no transparency. I think it's not just that this is happening. It's, it's kind of like the phone company shutting off your phone. It, yeah, they're a private company, but they're shutting off your phone. You, you can no longer, you know, you can no longer do business or just run your life like a regular person. And you can't get to anyone to tell you why. They just said you violated our terms of service. Yeah. Is Scott Ritter back and, on Twitter? Uh, Is Scott Ritter back on Twitter? No. No, he's permanently banned on Twitter. <clears throat> and... Uh, he did, they're not sure exactly, he's not sure exactly why, but he said it came after he gave a kind of alternative explanation for this Buka massacre, because he was just noting blatant inconsistencies in the, the news that was publicly disseminated. I mean, he didn't deny that uh, killing happened. He had just said, wait a minute, <laughs> you know. These bodies don't look like they've been lying around for two weeks. And there was a bunch of other inconsistencies. He was just pointing that out. And uh, he had, had earlier, there, there was, I think it was, before Buka, he had 
a couple of questions two weeks before and they suspended his account and then there was a torrent of people going why did you suspend his account <clears throat> they put him back up and then he's he does a further inquiry into Bucha using his experience as a forensic investigator into you know weapon scenes crimes war crime scenes etc and you know that he gets shut down for the same reason and they with no feedback at all and so it's not just one or two people getting shut down it's just like everybody on the left the real independent on the left always now have to be careful about what they say how they introduce their guests because it's like you could be shut down next so people are everybody's beginning to self-edit and you start having to use uh, euphemisms you have to start pulling back on your language and that just collectively feeds you know weakens any counter narrative to the major narrative i'm 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 uh, glad. I'm, I actually would like to see Consortium News off of PayPal. <laughs> I, I want to see all these sites off of any of these, off of any of these platforms that they <clears throat> that make you reliant on, you know, the, the powers that be. But, right. Yeah, you can still see. And I hope I, I hope to report Escobar on Consortium News. I assume that you're in contact with him. Yeah, sure. No, Pepe. Um, no, you're absolutely right. This is a very scary moment now in which um, we have to see whether they will tolerate dissent that has any kind of influence at all. It's a little spark of dissent. They seem to want to crush any little one because it could spread. And this is a, mo a moment where they could move forward with probably things they've wanted to do. And I want to say they, I mean the U.S. government, Department of Homeland Security, this private company, News Guard, which may be put out of business by uh, <laughs> by Department of Homeland Security doing it. Uh, in other words, the government's going to take over what was previously a, a function only of private companies because of the First Amendment. Uh, I think this is going to be challenged, this Department of Homeland Security thing, and probably be thrown out because uh, I've never voted Republican in my life, but they're the only ones, some of them, speaking up now. It's unbelievable. The Democrats, it's where the neocons reside. The neoconservatives were inside the Republican Party with George W. Bush, and they have migrated to the Democratic Party uh, during the Hillary Clinton campaign, and they've become worse than the bloody Demo uh, Republicans now. And uh, they are the ones that started the Russiagate nonsense that's still going on, that laid the groundwork for what we're seeing now, that... Whatever happens, yes, Russia is responsible, as if both sides aren't shooting in this war. There was, the, Russia made treaty proposals in December with NATO and with the U.S. to try to create a new security architecture in Europe. You don't hear about that. They didn't even talk to them about that. The Minsk Accords were gone for eight years. What are the Minsk Accords? After the American coup, the Russian speakers in Donbass, the eastern region bordering on Russia, resisted the coup because they voted for Viktor Yanukovych, who was overthrown and what did the government of poroshenko the success the coup first coup president do he said he started a war against those people and was killing them thousands of them for eight years and russia did nothing about it and they did not recognize those independence of those uh, uh 
those provinces as republics until two days before they invaded. So Russia entered this war. I think it was against the UN Charter, just by the letter of the war, it's illegal. Um, although the just war theory of Aquinas and, and Augustine, one could argue that maybe there was a there was a just war, but the world is not run by uh, Thomas Aquinas. It's the UN Security Council. It was illegal, but I think the US set a trap for Russia because without creating a what looked to be a new offensive against the Donbass. We saw all those maps with all the Russian troops for weeks. They're going to invade. They're all there. And you never saw inside Ukraine that there were 60,000 Ukrainian troops about to uh, have an offensive against this Donbass. It was like a chessboard with only black black pieces on it. Where were the Ukrainian soldiers on those maps? They left it off. One of the things they omit to change the story. So Russia they were was shelling, letting them... They were yeah yeah the shelling increased absolutely OSCE statistics show so either Russia was going to let them die or they were going to intervene and the Americans wanted them to intervene I'm absolutely certain because Joe Biden said it not just when Poland when he said the the aim is to overthrow Putin but when he was asked on February 24th at his press conference in the White House he was asked why what good are sanctions now when they didn't do anything to prevent the invasion and he said it wasn't about preventing the invasion it's to show the Russian people who he is and what he's done that's what this is all about is to raise up the Russian people against Putin to overthrow Putin. Then he blurted it out in Poland, but he meant it then as well. The economic war could not be launched without the invasion because you can't just throw all these kinds of incredible sanctions, including against the central bank of a country if there's no cause. The cause would be the invasion. You can't start a proxy war against Russia with all these unbelievable amounts of weapons and foreign fighters going in there. They'll keep this war going for a long time to bleed Russia. It's a trap the way Brzezinski admitted that the Mujahideen were armed by the United States to draw the Soviet Union into Afghanistan to give them their Vietnam that ultimately helped bring down the Soviet Union. He said so in a 1998 magazine article in France that it was a trap. He used the word trap. Saddam Hussein was trapped into going into Kuwait. We know this because of not only what uh, April Gillespie, the ambassador, said, you can do whatever the hell you want and move in. Uh, these are traps. America does this before, and they've done it here. Uh, with this war that you had to have Russia invade. It's the best thing Americans, because now they've started the information war, the economic war, and the proxy war to bring down and weaken the Soviet Union. And now the defense secretary said it. Our aim is to weaken Russia. They're not even hiding that anymore. This is what this is. And I think Russia made a mistake. I think it was a trap and they walked into it. Now, they may they may take the Donbass all the way down to Odessa to the border of Romania, but they're going to be able to hold that land. What the constant war that's going to be being fought from the Ukrainian side of an incredibly long border. It's a disaster. And we have just to hope one thing, last thing I'm saying that just doesn't lead to a nuclear conflict. Right. I mean, this is the scariest moment. Right. We it could amen. really happen. By the way, thank you for saying everything you just said. And I hope you come back. Uh, everything you said, I agree with. Uh, and we've in many ways have been saying this all along that what's going on the russian invasion of ukraine is horrible but it could have been stopped if joe biden oh, wanted yeah. to stop it Absolutely. professor professor adnan hussein 
Well, just to quickly to follow up, and I agree completely with you, Joe, and thanks so much for coming on. I know it's late over there, but I think also one of the other consequences that geostrategically has been very valuable out of this in terms of U.S. Uh, goals and strategy is reviving a failed uh, military alliance of NATO that yeah. had come under, you know, real, you know, kind of questioning. And now we have, you know, Sweden, Finland rushing to join uh, um, just to make even more uh, dynamic the situation and polarizing it. And uh, the only uh, roadblock to that seems to be Turkey, you know, raising questions because it wants to pursue PKK, you know, activists who have sought asylum in, in Europe and they want extradition and so on. So it'll be interesting to see how that's resolved. So are we going to have, you know, activists that were championed as, um, you know, fighters for freedom and democracy for the ethnic Kurds now suddenly being sacrificed so that they can, you know, have, uh, you know, two new members of, uh, of NATO. So I think that's, um, you know, another component of it is that without this, uh, you know, we might have had a chance to really rethink whether NATO was needed. And it's, in fact, Trump, you were pointing out that, you know, the Republicans are the ones who are raising the key questions here. I mean, Trump is the one for all the wrong reasons, but nonetheless arriving at the point that there's no rationale for this military alliance as a leftover from the Cold War. It doesn't serve any real purpose other than being, you know, a captive market for U.S. arms manufacturers and military you know, personnel and so on. Um, so I guess the question is, is one question that I would have for you is just similarly, they're the only ones who are questioning the 40 billion aid package and lethal military aid for, for Ukraine. Um, it's not coming from the Democrats. Um, but one question I have is about NewsGuard and other its involvement in this. You said something very interesting about how the government is sort of taking it over, Homeland Security. Uh, that's interesting because that's not a normal neoliberal. They like these sort of private, um, you know, um, contractors doing it. Why do you think that's happening? And what what was the role that a, uh, an outfit like NewsGuard played is, is this basically being like PayPal's decisions, like other uh, uh, tech companies are basically indexing their policy to like these private uh, rating services and so on? How did that all work? It's very murky whether there's any direct connections between them, but they do rate websites. And if they give it a red mark, that goes on public libraries across the United States and in here in Europe. And uh, if you go to uh, Twitter or Google, you'll see that red mark or green mark against that. If you've downloaded their, mm -hmm. their extension, your Chrome extension or not. So if you don't, not everybody's going to see this, but if if um, Yahoo, if Google, the same company, if if uh, uh, Twitter sees that, will that help? Without influence them to kick somebody off their service, perhaps I can't say for sure. It's not a good thing, but they set themselves up as the judges of um, of the quality of journalism. And then I just gave an example of how their own reporting on Ukraine is leaves out and it's uh, it's lying by omission it's purposely leaving out the right. key fact that which was the smoking gun and that 
uh, in the coup story. The neo-Nazis is another issue. They, it, it, you know, there's a red herring. Even the Atlantic Council had an article saying it was a red herring to say they only get 2% of the parliamentary vote. This is extra parliamentary activity. The Nazis, the neo-Nazis, Azov Battalion, going, coming from Western Ukraine. As I was saying, the U.S. worked with the Western Ukrainian uh, fascists when they went to the United States. I mean, throughout the yeah. Cold War. And then the, when the Cold War ended and Ukraine became independent, you know, the, the carpet baggers moved in. The American carpet baggers, Wall Street and, and, and Washington moved into Russia, acid stripped all the state industries, helped create the oligarchs, enriched themselves and impoverished the Russian people. Vladimir Putin came and stopped that. And he's loved in Russia for that. And that's why they got to get rid of him. They need a Yeltsin figure again to go back in there. But that never happened in Ukraine. Ukraine never had a Yeltsin, a, a, a Putin type figure. Maybe Yanukovych, when he was going to take the, Europe, the Russian deal rather than the EU deal, they saw that's the end of the gravy train. We got to get rid of this guy. And they, over, they helped overthrow him. I mean, this is, I don't know for sure, but this is a very plausible scenario why he was overthrown there. But certainly that kind of American and European carpet bagging exploitation of the former Soviet space uh, never stopped in Ukraine. And, and I hate to bring up this topic, but you have to put Hunter Biden in that thing, which we reported back in 2014 about him working for Burisma. This one we knew at the time we reported it. Joe Biden was set up as the czar of Ukraine by, by Obama. And suddenly, Two weeks, you know, a couple of months after the overthrow of the government and Biden going in there, his son gets a job on the board. John Kerry's family friend gets a job on the board. An American woman becomes the finance minister of a foreign country. She was a former State Department official. I mean, this was like a 19th century colonial over takeover of a country. Ukraine is virtually part of the United States. They're given $40 billion, and some of it is for pensions and Social Security, where Americans are have no health insurance, national health insurance, and scandal. And they're going to give that to help Ukrainians? I mean, I have nothing against Ukrainians, but I think that money that we're paying should go to Americans. Because that's a part of the United States, a de facto member of NATO. They were training there with, with the Ukrainian soldiers. They were certainly arming them. And um, they did exercises together. They, were, they essentially was already a NATO country on the border of Russia. Russia simply said, you can't keep breaking your promise and moving eastward. We want the troops out of the Eastern European and NATO countries. Not that they have to get out of NATO, but they and those missiles from Poland and Romania because they're threatening. Think of missiles in Mexico or in Canada and troops there. Uh, how would the United States react? And, and instead, they, they just ignored the treaty proposals. They ignored the Minsk Accords. They did, they did everything they could to keep the, have this invasion happen and Putin stepped into it, in my opinion. And it's an unbelievable disaster right now. And Americans are loving it. They're loving it. This is their chance to bring him down, to get back into Russia. They've got to get him out of there because they want the way it was in the in the great, wonderful 90s under Yeltsin. Right. Absolutely. 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 How do people support Consortium News? How can we send money? Well, you can go through PayPal. I can tell you that much. Well, let me talk you to you about that. Go I, to our donate button on the red but donate button on the top of consortiumnews.com. That, but you can use a credit card or send an old-fashioned check 
The mailing address is also when you hit on donate. And I just want to add, it did definitely Robert Perry's issue didn't even come up with them until I uh, asked them, why'd you shut us down? And say, oh, oh Robert, where's Robert Perry? So they didn't shut us down because his name was Stallone. And that is absolutely not the case. We don't know why, but we do know what their restricted activities are and what business we're in is information. So if you're selling guns, if you're selling drug paraphernalia on PayPal, they can shut you down. We're not selling drugs or, or, or drug paraphernalia. We're selling inf- We're not even selling information. We're offering information in exchange for donations. What else could it have been? The American, the ADL, the um, Anti-Defamation League started in 2021, was the last year or the year before, a partnership with PayPal to bring down stop groups that are hurting the community, that are creating violence, whatever, you know, this the and Southern the Poverty very, Law Centers. The Southern Poverty Law yeah. Center is also doing that. Yeah. Right. Working with uh, PayPal? They, they identify, uh, yeah. they, we don't trust the federal government to identify terrorist organizations. It's the Southern right. Poverty Law Center who's the authority on a terrorist organization. Morris D, the late Morris Dees. Uh, this is what Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley, tweeted today spending 40 billion he uh Rand paul is voting against the 40 billion dollars in aid and senator marshall a kansas republican is also voting uh against the 40 billion dollars this is a tweet from a united states senator josh hawley who you know i'm not a big i think he's dangerous i think he's a a crazy Christian who wants to bring a Christian law to America. Uh, but this is what he tweeted. Spending $40 billion on Ukraine aid, more than three times what all of Europe has spent combined, is not in America's interests. It neglects priorities at home, the, the border. Well, he's wrong about the border. It allows Europe to freeload, shortchange critical interests abroad, and comes with no meaningful oversight. That's not isolationism. That's nationalism. It's about prioritizing American security and American interests. Well, the use of the word nationalism, kind of scary. How long is that going to be allowed on Twitter? A United States senator tweeting that. I know they shut down a sitting president of the United States from Twitter. Okay. Joe Loria, please come back. I, uh, I you, Consortium News is great. And everything you said, I agree with. I agree with you that the invasion of Russia is obscene, that it's a, a disgrace what's going on in Ukraine to the Ukrainian people and the Russian soldiers. I agree with you 100% that Joe Biden wanted Putin to invade Russia for many reasons, including giving his friends at the military industrial complex the 40 billion dollars a year that they weren't getting in <laughs> afghanistan it's an identical number it's identical mm, mm. i mean it's right there, part of it mm-hmm. right out in the open we were giving 40 billion dollars to the military industrial complex for afghanistan each year within six months we found a new place a new reason to give the military industrial complex $40 billion. War does not end well. War never ends well. There's no such thing as a victory. 
And you have five million, more than five million refugees so far. Countless thousands upon thousands of lives lost. And this will go on and on because it's the big dig in Boston. It's a boondoggle. And the contractors love the big dig. They love a boondoggle that will just go on and on. We had a 20-year war in Afghanistan. We don't fight short wars anymore because the military-industrial complex, those are, those are companies that have to show growth. And so thank you, Joe Laurie. Anytime you can come back, once again, please show us how we can send you money. Yes, just uh, go to consortiumnews.com. There's a red donate button on the upper right side. We're in the middle of our spring fund drive right now. We've had enormous support and we appreciate it all. Click on donate and there you can find how to, at the bottom, fill out the form to make a credit card donation or the address is there to write a check. We're down to just credit cards and checks right now. PayPal is gone. Uh, so I, I thank you for that, uh, David, for having me uh, you know, explain I, I, how people can I, help support us. I, I'll do anything to support you. I grilled you on PayPal just because, it's all right. you know, I want, uh, I, there's a lot. You I'll know. make a deal. I'll try to start a new account. I'll, then I'll get back to you and let you know about that, that they, it wasn't possible. They shut it down right away. I'll let you know. What I, I would love that if you did that. that yeah, would be why great. not? I'll and, do it. You know, I, I went through, just so you know, be not, I'm, in, I'm not even close to anything you're doing. Not even close. It, uh, it's disrespectful to mention my show in the same name as Consortium News. Anecdotally, anecdotally, we had a guest from Mint Press on talking about getting shut down and my website shut down and I went into a tailspin of paranoia mm. and I mm. forgot to renew the domain name. It was so oh, maybe you just tried to use PayPal to pay for it. <laughs> so I, I'm just, you know, and I, I caught myself. I said, as Margaret Thatcher said to George Herbert Walker Bush, don't go wobbly on me. Let's focus. Don't see enemies that aren't there. You're not. I'm not saying this about you. And it turned out it was just I'm an idiot. You're not, but I'm just saying, let's at least try with a different account. And uh, not that you want to give business to PayPal, but just to see as an expert, as a- test. By the way, David, if I could make one last observation about the trap, uh, two days after the invasion on 26th of February, Hillary Clinton was on MSNBC saying that people in Washington are looking at the Afghan model, the one I referred to before, Brzezinski, funding the Mujahideen to draw the Soviets in. She said it. She said it. <laughs> Looking at the model, she's plugged into Washington's Democratic administration. She admitted this was a trap set for Russia. And unfortunately, uh, it's happened. And it's really scary for a lot do, of people. Thank you, you for having me on, David. One last question on the trap yeah. before, before you go. We can't imagine what the kind of thinking goes on inside the Situation Room the don't you think that joe biden and barack obama and the west exec lobbyists who are now running our foreign policy don't they think the only reason hillary lost 
is because of Russian interference and that in order to save democracy, we have to topple Putin. So we trap him in Ukraine and that way we save American democracy. Is that what they're thinking? No, I don't think they believe that uh, that Russia had anything to do with Hillary Clinton losing. She lost because she was a lousy candidate. She called them deplorable. She was she's a terrible campaigner. Nobody showed up at her rallies. Uh, Bernie Sanders was clearly the more popular candidate then and against Biden later, uh, just for some one other reason or the other, including WikiLeaks releases. And I have written a book uh, with O.R. Books in New York, and Julian Assange wrote the forward to, to the book. It's called How I Lost by Hillary Clinton, but it's an analysis of all the emails that were leaked by WikiLeaks that showed why they lost, because they were she was taking all this money from the banks. She was calling them poor people that she doesn't give a damn about deplorable. And uh, she they did. They worked to undermine Sanders campaign. I'm talking about the Democratic National Committee, which, you know, apparently they can do because they're a private organization. Right. I mean, but it was very corrupt. And five people including Debbie Wasserman Schultz, had to resign because of it. So it had to be true. So you're so conclude- they lost because Hillary's bad. They don't know. They don't think it's Russia. That's their story. That was their story. Your too many people bought it. You see? Your conclusion is the same identical conclusion that I proposed, I think, two weeks ago. And that is Wall Street and Bill Clinton looted Russia, created the oligarch class, Boris Yeltsin was a literally a useful idiot, a drunk who they could steamroll <laughs> and they miss the the glory days of looting because they won the Cold War to the victor goes the spoils. We are entitled to loot Russia. Exactly. The Soviet Union exactly. fell. And, and, the, exactly. and, and look at the resources that country has. In a, in a world of dwindling resources like fossil fuels, like incredible minerals that they've got, all kinds of mineral gold. This country is so rich in mineral resources. It's not as developed as, as the United States is, but that's why they want to go in there and exploit that. That is a big prize, right. Russia. Yeah. And they want their hands on it again. Absolutely and- true. And this is the way they're doing it. With using the, 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 the lives of Ukrainian civilians, they don't give a damn about them. They don't give a damn about the same way we didn't give a damn about the millions of Laotians we bombed and and the millions of Cambodians we killed and the millions of Vietnamese people we killed. Psychopaths. These are psychopaths uh, making these policies. Absolutely. And, And if Putin pulls out and the fighting stops, and I hope it does, this will be spun as Biden's greatest moment. He won. There'll be a parade for our weapons. There'll be a ticker tape parade for uh, the Raytheon CEOs and David Rubenstein, the chairman of the Carlyle Group. We didn't send any soldiers. We sent our weapons and they'll get a ticker tape parade for winning this war. And that'll be the new way. This is the new way we're going to be fighting wars, Joe. We're not going to. There's the political will to send our treasure, our men and women overseas, we don't have the political will. We do have the political will to to prop up the military industrial complex and and send our weapons. And we're we're winning proxy wars without and it's profitable after Joe Biden announced that he uh, was going to give 40 billion dollars to Ukraine. He literally flew down to Alabama 
to a Javelin a missile yes. manufacturer to prove to the American people, he said, that they have an economic stake in Ukraine winning the war. He said it out loud. <laughs> I'm going to the to visit the, the 500 uh, workers in that Javelin missile plant in Alabama to show the American people they have an economic stake in winning this war. It's right out. I've never seen anything like this, Joe. Yeah. I've never even even the Bush family had, had the decency to lie to us about why they were going to war. That now it's just right yeah. out in the open. We're in the business of making bombs. And these are publicly traded companies that must grow, that must show growth. Ergo, there must be a war. There must be NATO expansion. So so our weapons manufacturers can skim 2% off the top of the GDP of every new NATO member. It's a protect. NATO is a protection racket. Sure. 2%. The, sure it is. The military industrial complex gets 2% of every country's GDP. Yeah, and it's a projection of American aggressive power. This to help the American empire continue to uh, expand and, and, and uh, defend and their interests around the world. And this is NATO's not was was NATO was created for now, no. but it will continue. Uh, unfortunately, you know, if the war, the war could have stopped maybe a, a, a month or so ago when Russia put forward proposals that Ukraine would agree to recognize Crimea as part of Russia, the Donbass as independent states, and they would put in their constitution they were neutral, therefore they would not join NATO. And Zelensky, in one interview on ABC News, said, in five minutes, no, I'm not going to do it. And then five minutes later, he said, yeah, I think I'm going to talk. The guy's all over the place, but somebody's got to him, obviously. We know who it is now. Boris Johnson flew in from London to Kiev and said, you, you don't talk, you don't uh, deal with him, you don't negotiate. He was Zelensky wanted to have a meeting with Putin to discuss this, to cut their losses now and end this horrible war. And what does Russia get? What they already have, Crimea anyway. And Donbass, okay, they, it could have been independent or it could have been part in the midst of the But that's how this ends eventually. That's how it's going to end. And they don't join NATO anyway. They're not going to join NATO anyway. That's a right. perfect solution. If But now it's off the table. The war has changed completely now. The whole terms are different. But they don't want him to. They don't want Zelensky to make a deal. They want the war to go on to bleed Russia and bleed Ukrainian soldiers and civilians. Not Americans, as you pointed out. Hands off, Americans. That's not going to get a scratch. American soldier in this war up up to now, and then we're going to go to the weapons factory. When he went to that weapons factory, I remembered the first Gulf War and the second that Bush and his son both went. To, but the American U.S. was in a war, so they went. Remember the uh, the, pa the Patriot missiles, the Raytheon, I think it was. He went there, George H. W. Bush. But U.S. is not in this war, right? Have you They're done any reporting about how the Patriot? Have you done any reporting about how the Patriot missiles don't work? Well, that was that became known back then. I don't know how they work now, but I remember in the Gulf War, yeah. uh, they were they were terrible. Yeah. Well, well the I, I, all hype. Let's give Raytheon uh, the last word. This is the president of Raytheon. Uh, we'll give him the last word. We are there to defend democracy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Were you laughing at the notion? That, that, that's the chairman of that's the guy who's that he's 
show in some the back. He was reading those lines. He couldn't even remember. He couldn't even memorize those lines. Like he was reading it. We're here to, you know, <laughs> to defend uh, democracy. Yeah. Oh, He's the, the That's a good, good ending. The the arsenal of democracy. It. Thank you, Joe. Please come back once okay. again. Tell us how All to give best. you money. Please tell us how to give you money. Hit the red donate button. Read the read the website first, then then decide whether you want to give money. Don't okay. just go there and get money. Thank you, Joe. Please read come our back. website. Okay. Come back. Come back. Come back. Come oh, back. Please. Thank please, you. Please. Wow. I will. Consortium. All news. the best. Bye bye. Thank you. Consortium news. That's something. You know, uh, we have uh, Professor Adnan Hussein and Professor Marianne Cummings here. I think we have uh, Professor Mike Style coming up. The interview with the Ukrainian professor from the University of Toronto, who we had on the show uh, two weeks ago. I'm not going to butcher his name. Said a couple of things that pretty much summed up everything I believe. And it's pretty much everything Joe from Consortium News said. That he, the professor is from Ukraine. He's now living in Canada. He hates the idea that Putin has invaded Ukraine. The war is wrong because all war is wrong. Joe Biden had weeks, if not months, to get on the blower and talk to Putin and tamp down the the, the heat, to, to, to dial back the rhetoric. He could have called Zelensky and said, stop shelling the Donbass region, dial it back. Uh, in, in, before Putin invaded Ukraine, Zelensky and Ukrainian soldiers were shelling the Donbass region. They were escalating the war. Zelensky was. And there, there was the Minsk Accords. There were offers on the table to at least begin a framework, a process to negotiate peace. Biden wanted this war. Biden wanted this war. Now, the Ukrainian professor, Marianne, said two things that I've challenged you on, uh, but he agrees with you. He said it was a coup. He said it was a coup. I fought you on that. He said it was an American coup. They overthrew Yanukovych, that, that Hillary was behind that. Newland in the, the Obama administration overthrew the, Yanukovych. And right after that, uh, Crimea was seized by Putin. Uh, I've fought you on that. Uh, then I asked him about the Azov Battalion. I trivialized the neo-Nazis who uh, have some sort of sway, allegedly, in Ukraine. Uh, I have everything I've read from the, the the Kiev rabbi saying there's no problem with Nazis in Ukraine. Everything I read says there's no problem with Nazis. But the professor from Ukraine and Joe from uh, Consortium News both say there is a Nazi problem with uh, with uh, in Ukraine. I, I still fight that. I keep looking into this. I keep reading. Uh, I'm reading Israeli press and they're doing interviews with the Azov battalion who are telling the Israeli press that they're not Nazis. So 
to be continued. Uh, I have never felt my speech as chilled on this show. I've been doing this for 13 years. I have never felt my speech as chilled as it is when discussing Ukraine. Never, I've never seen anything like this before. Professor Hussein? Well, just as is Professor Ivan Kachanovsky yes. from the University of Ottawa, and he's published a couple of papers studying uh, trials and also involving interviews to try and piece together what happened on the Maidan, who right. was responsible for the massacre, where the bullets, you know, kind of in shooting came from. There's disputes, of course, always about this, but fundamentally, um, you know, it's clear that the threat of violence was instrumental in causing, you know, the then elected, um, you know, chief executive of the country to flee after there were negotiations to try and restore some sort of order and a political process. But that was not sufficient for these extreme far right groups that let's remember themselves, C-14, its leader has bragged about the fact that they may have been few in number, but they ran the uh, protests or they sort of co-opted and took, uh, seized the direction of the political, you know, political focus of these protests because they were willing to apply the violence, be the extreme, you know, and, and provocateurs. And also, let's just remember, I mean, the Nazi party never won initially an outright election. You know, they became part of a coalition government, but then they had the thugs on the streets, could raise the threat of violence and derail the political process so that the old guard conservatives handed over power to them in a in a moment of crisis right so when they say oh it's only five percent or two percent that's you know that doesn't um really capture the way in which ultranationalist far-right fascist politics works because they're not there to win an election they don't actually believe in elections right. they believe in the idea of a national will that is sort of mystically right. something that they are channeling and forging through conflict and so i think you know, the one thing that I've heard, and this would be very interesting to, to hear um, from uh, uh, Dr. Kachin, Kachinovsky. Like, we're going to get him back. Um, he was great. Oh, great. Well, yeah. one question that I one argument I've heard about what Joe Lauria was just mentioning as like the smoking gun that's left off of these news guard sites and other ways of doing verification. They, they don't include the intercepted or leaked recording of the phone call that Victoria Newland and the ambassador, the then U.S. ambassador, uh, had their conversation where they're kind of talking about the post, you know, kind of Maidan uh, government. What I've heard some people who are apologists and want to uh, for, you know, the government, uh, the Maidan government and um you know, people who want to say that there's no evidence uh, precisely of it being a coup are two things. One, they say, of course, the U.S. Uh, kind of ambassador and uh, kind of Department of State person are going to talk about who they, you know, would prefer. Naturally, they would have these conversations about who they would like to see. It doesn't mean that they did anything specifically and you can't show what it is exactly that they did to accomplish it just because, you know, they ended up t talking about various possibilities and that number two of course the person who ends up coming in what is it Por Por poroshenko 
um, is the leader of an opposition party. So naturally, who would be among the top candidates for it? Um, so this doesn't prove anything. I mean, I think that would be interesting to hear. Newland also arguments. Newland also said that she knew her phone was being tapped and she was pr- <laughs> and she was making a joke. But you know what? Right. You know what I've realized? Uh, well, I think maybe she does think that she's maybe she she does think that like they, they, this was she knew it was being tapped and she's, she was trying to give messages to like, what does the U.S. want? You know, in a plausibly deniable way It's like, well, we would really love it if this happened. OK, C-14 Nazi people, this is who you should be putting in, you know, and so I, you know, it doesn't necessarily. You know, what, you know what? But the, I, I simply it's a simple I'm a. A simpleton. And I've synthesized this conversation. And Professor Marianne, would you, oh, you have laryngitis. Would but here's here's how I see it. I've been saying all along that we were trying to return to the golden age of looting Russia under Boris Yeltsin. Wall Street created the oligarchs in Moscow. You, we took something like 80% of Russia's GDP is sitting in foreign bank accounts and tax shelters. That was London, Germany, Israel, and America looting the Russian economy. 80% of their economy is overseas because of partly because of London, partly because of Wall Street. And that was because Boris Yeltsin was a drunk who literally pissed his pants at meetings, literally falling down drunk. Ukraine also had its fair share of oligarchs who were propped up, who, who, who came out of 91, 92, their, their creations of Israel, London, Germany, Portugal, and of course, America. And a lot of people see Ukraine as the golden age of Russia in the 90s, that if we could get uh, Boris Yeltsin in Ukraine, we can really loot this country. And uh, it's... I mean, regardless, uh, you know, uh, whether or not people want to uh, characterize the events of 2014 and who's to blame and all of that, one thing that is a consequence of it is that more far right nationalist uh, kinds of uh, uh, perspectives on the politics of the country came into government. They did try and suppress, you know, Russian language, uh, you know, in these these areas. It led to concern and conflicts and created, uh, you know, violent conflict where these extreme nationalists and on both sides, there are Russian ultra nationalists as well involved in all of these things. But the United States has never, it seems, had an interest in encouraging that government for various reasons 
you know, to try and make or either abide by the Minsk Accord or negotiate some kind of genuine peace accord to an eight year running conflict that was exacerbated with Russian invasion in the Ukraine, but is not the beginning of the conflict. And so I think that's the real, you know, the real for us as Americans, whether and this is what I always come back to for us as American citizens, our responsibility is not necessarily to parse out, you know, who is responsible for what, whether you support far right Ukrainian nationalist ideas of whether they should be, you know, um, oriented toward the West or whether you credit that Russia should be able to have some kind of, you know, uh, geopolitical buffer zone of its own and areas. None of that is our kind of responsibility. We should, however, not be sending $40 billion to exacerbate the situation, to turn it into a greater conflict, to widen it, to increase the threat of nuclear war, to allow the corruption, who knows where these weapons are going to go. This is like a terrible, terrible set of policies by our government. We should be demanding our government try and solve this problem right rather than achieve its objectives geopolitically at the risk of widening this war of nuclear confrontation and of sacrificing the ukrainian people how cynical has this whole business been you know to hyperventilate about how terrible it is for the ukrainians but then do nothing to actually stop the situation exactly and end the war terrible amen we, we have to wrap it up, but you have to stick around for the quiz because we're going to find out just how smart you are. $40 billion for the Ukrainian people to continue the killing, $40 billion to continue the killing as opposed to finding a, a, a peaceful resolution to a war that should have never taken place. Joe Biden has $40 billion for for weapons but not for uh medicine and food although that's a little piece of the package but 40 mil 40 billion dollars but not 40 billion dollars for covid relief here in the united states not 40 billion dollars in debt relief to the millions of American students who got tricked into taking these horrible student loans. Not $40 billion for, for food, housing, low-income housing. So my question to Joe Biden is, why do you hate America? My question to Nancy Pelosi, who was over there with Zelensky, why do you hate America? My question for Chuck Schumer, who wants to send that $40 billion to Ukraine, but won't spend it here in the United States. Why do you hate America? To the, to the CEO of Boeing, to the CEO of Raytheon, to the CEO of McDonnell Douglas, the CEO of Lockheed Martin, take, why do you hate America? I'm not gonna tell you what to shove up your ass. Take your patriotism and shove it up your fucking ass. You're not, the only patriot is your missile, and it doesn't work. You don't love this country. You exploit it. You transfer our wealth into your grasping paws. You hate America because anybody who loved America would not sit back and allow $40 billion to be spent on weapons when we've got 
women and children living on the streets. Why do you hate America, Joe Biden? David Rubenstein from the Carlisle Group, the world's largest profiteer. Why do you hate America? Only somebody who hates America would be a war profiteer at the expense of the homeless and at the expense of the hundreds of thousands of Americans who die every year because they're underinsured. Take your patriotism and shove it up your ass because you hate America. Dan Frankenberger, it's time for our quiz. That was uh, for Professor Marianne because she has laryngitis. Fantastic. I'm sick of people so hating today, my country. Yeah. I'm sick of this the, these these people who hate America. We need to blacklist them. I want loyalty oaths from David Rubenstein, from the CEO of uh, Raytheon. I want loyalty oaths. I want to they, they want to claim patriotism. Prove it to me. They hate this country. I'll shove that effing patriotism right up your ass, you frauds. What, if, what have they ever done for America? What have these people ever done for America other than take from it? They wear their American flags. They hide behind the American flag and they steal all our money and they're killing us. They are killing us. They hate us. They hate America. They do nothing from America for America. They take from it. Unlike Dan Frankenberger. What's our quiz today, Dan? We're going to prove how stupid Marianne, Professor Marianne and Ad, Professor Adnan Hussein are. I hope it's a quiz that I can finally show how smart I am. What's the subject oh, matter? Pro professor. <laughs> <laughs> what was your line about anybody? What? Oh, it, it was, uh, oh, these, these people are all about history. It's like, oh, you're talking about stuff that already happened. Awesome. <laughs> anybody could talk about what happened, but can you talk yeah. about what's going to happen? Oh, right. Really brilliant. Released on. Can you talk louder, please? Because we shout and scream here. Released on May 16th, 1986, this movie was the highest grossing film of the year. The suit the lead actor wears in the film later went on to... What's the movie? I, I can't hear you. The suit the lead actor wears in the film later went on display at Planet Hollywood. The movie is Top Gun, and today's quiz is on Tom Cruise. You know, when that movie came out, Professor Hussein, Professor Marianne Cummings... I remember thinking, are you effing kidding me? Like, like, are you this jingoistic bull? You're going to buy into this pro-war jingoistic bullshit? And Lots of young guys did. They had recruiters in the lobby when I went and saw that movie. They had Air Force recruiters in the movie lobby. The Americana. I remember it was like the mid 80s and I thought, oh, this ship has sailed. Americans, we, Vietnam, we, we see through this. No, we don't. No, we don't. So, OK, so let's uh, question who's first. Um, uh, Marianne Cummings is going to be first. We have six questions tonight. And uh, putting money in the kitty. 
Professor Adnan Hussein looks so pissed off. You want to go? I know you have other things to do. Go. I'll, I'll play. When, I'll play Professor Marianne. You didn't put it, put it in the kitty, but there we go. When Tom was young, what job did he plan on having? Was it priest, teacher, actor, or particle physicist? <laughs> Professor Marianne. He's the size of a particle that a particle physicist would study. Tom Cruise is, but he, I don't think he would have been a particle physicist. I used to know a little sign language. I'll say priest. Professor Adnan. Uh, what was the other option besides actor and particle physicist? Was it priest? Priest, teacher, actor. Or particle physicist. Okay, I'll go teacher just to be different. Uh, I'm going to go with priest. Just because I think that's funny that he would go from being a priest to a mass murderer. <laughs> the uh, answer is priest. Uh, that's one point for me. Yep. I'm winning. I like this. Okay. Question number two, and this one, uh, Professor Hussein is first. What is Tom's real last name? Is it Cruz, Mapather, Capola, or Panty Dropper? They're all good candidates out there with <laughs> Mapather. Uh, David is next. What, what was? The, what are the questions? What, what are the choices? It is... Cruise, Mapather, Capilla, or Panty Dropper? I'm going to go with M Maplethorpe just because I like the imagery. Professor Marianne. I'll go with the theory. Capilla, you said. Capilla, yep. The uh, correct answer is Mapather. Now, in all fairness, I did see the answers before we started, but I am win No, I didn't see the. I'm winning. It, is it? It's not Maplethorpe, right? It's Maple. It's M A M A P O T H E R, and I don't know how to pronounce it. And you did not see the answers because I just did them an hour ago, okay. and I can barely see them. Thank you for. Um, Tom's real name is Thomas Cruz Mapather the Fourth. Hmm. Question number and three, David is first. The fourth, he's a fourth of a human being. Go ahead. <laughs> Baboom. Number three, where was Tom born? Oh, I know. Oh, who's up? You are first. David Feldman is first. It was a Greenwich, Connecticut, Albany, New York, Syracuse, New York, or Shortsville, New York? <laughs> well, I thought he lived in New Jersey. So what are the choices? Greenwich, Connecticut. Albany, where? Syrac Albany, Syracuse, New York, or Shortsville, New York. I I'm going to go with Greenwich, just because I I think I s I'm going to say Greenwich. Professor Cummings. Uh, it's hard not to pick Shortsville, but you know I, I think I got to go with the closest to Jersey. So wouldn't that be in Connecticut? Yeah. Yeah. Greenwich. With a name like uh, Mapather the Fourth, you expect Greenwich, right? 
On the other hand, um, why would you choose Syracuse unless that was the unfortunate truth? Uh, but I am going to go with Greenwich. The correct answer is Syracuse. You are all now operating Thetan threes. You've just been demoted. You start off this quiz as operating Thetan fives, and we're all down to operating Thetan threes. So nobody gets any points. That is correct. So I'm still winning. Uh, you're always winning. Professor Cummings, you are first on this one. Question number four. How far did Tom take his school education? He was a high school graduate. He was kicked out in seventh grade. He graduated from college with honors, or he never went to school at all. <laughs> I think um, he probably graduated with honors. You're saying college with honors? College. That's just because you saw risky business and you know he got to go to that prestigious university. Oh, that might have been in the back of my mind. That was a great movie, too. That, that then, was a documentary. <laughs> Who's, who has, who guesses next? Um, Professor Hussein. Uh, high school. Okay, well, David. I, I'm going to say high school. The correct answer is he was a high school graduate. Not, not too high school graduate. <laughs> we have two more questions. Two more. Uh, I'm winning Professor three to one. I'm an operating feet and three. Next question, please. Professor Hussein is next. Uh, what was Tom's character's name in legend? Was it Stefan, Jack, Vincent, or Fireplace Shovel Dick? <laughs> Be nice. These are this, nice people, Dan. This isn't a quiz about what it should have been, I guess. So <laughs> I'll have to uh, skip the fourth. What was so it was Jack, Vincent, and what was the first one? Oh, I can reread these definitely. Stefan, Jack, Vincent, or fireplace shovel dick. <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, this is uh, one part of the cruise over I haven't seen so I'm just <laughs> going to go with Vincent uh, David is next give me them one more time without the fourth one just what are the top three Stefan Jack Vincent or Shuffle Plays Fire Dick and what is legend it was a movie he was in I'm going to go with Professor Hussein. Vincent seems... No, Vincent sounds like like a Rain Man type of thing. What's the first one? Stefan. I'm going to go with Stefan. Professor Cummings. Oh, I, I happen to believe it or not, I think I watched this movie fairly recently. Man, I think his name was Jack. That should be a point off if you've actually yeah, watched the movie. Yeah, but... Do I get points for like being honest? Yes. The correct answer is Jack. It's Jack, and it's like 
He was some man of the forest or something. The correct answer is Jack. He got it right. What did I say? Uh, something wrong. I don't remember what I said. What did? Who got it right? Marianne. Oh, Professor yeah. Cummings. Okay. Finally, the particle physicist had a particle of a point. That's right. Son of a epsilon semi-moron, though. Okay, so how many more questions? One more question, and uh, you are first. Okay, and Professor Mike Steinell uh, is up next, and he came in heavy. The envelope is heavy, not light tonight. I always, I'm like Tony Soprano with him. Is the envelope heavy or light? He's got a song. You're only as What's good. Stanley. You're only as good as your last envelope. That's right. <laughs> yes, That's sir. like a, you're only as good as your last set, comedian. Yeah. What Stanley Kubrick film did Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman star in? That's too easy. Was it? Was it The Last Day, Eyes Wide Shut, Remember Me Always, or Eyes Glued Shut? Uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to make homophobic or jokes about Scientology, so I'm not going to go there. Not gonna, I I'm stay not, away. I'm not going to make short jokes. I'm just going to say Eyes Wide Shut. Um, Professor Mary Ann? Yeah, I, I saw that movie. It, it is Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, the question should be perhaps what story or work is it based on? And that would be Arthur Schnitzler's Traum novella. So. Ooh. I think uh, Adnan's the smartest kid in the room now. Yeah, but where Professor did Adnan Arthur Schnitzler volunteer to be the next quizmaster? Where did Arthur <laughs> Schnitzler get the idea from? Ah, hey, Plautus. Yeah, maybe, maybe uh, his psychoanalysis sessions with Sigmund Freud. <laughs> <laughs> did he really? Oh, here's a bonus question. Well, they were from like that Viennese uh, sort of fantasyical sort of uh, kind of milieu. Early 20th century. Fin de siècle. What? End of the century. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he wrote it like in the 20s, but I mean, he's from that kind of world. All right. Hey, Dan. Yes, sir. I feel really stupid. Did you finally win one? Hmm? You finally won one? Oh, I didn't even realize I won. But no, I just I just realized I'm an idiot. <laughs> I, I won four so I get four points. One, two, three, four. Professor Hussein has two points, and Professor Marianne has two po points. <laughs> I win. And I, 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 here here is Professor Hussein, Professor Marianne Cummings. The greatest compliment I can give you is I feel really good that I beat you guys. <laughs> I well, do. Don't you ever? Don't you ever get tired of winning? We saw. Just, there's so much winning. Did you see the Twilight Zone episode that Professor Bick screened with Larry Blyden? Yes. 
I missed it. Unfortunately. Oh, it was, oh, it was great. All right. Thank you so much, Professor Adnan Hussein. Listen to the Mudgeless Podcast and Guerrilla History. And uh, thank you, Professor. Any Who are your guests? Very quickly, let's plug. Well, we have part two of uh, Dr. Uh, Takia Harper-Shipman's discussion about development in West Africa. So we just recorded that. That should be coming out uh, very soon. And of course, do check out, it was relevant to today's discussion, um, the uh, intelligence briefing we just put out on the Bandung Conference of 1955. Okay, thank you. And Professor Marianne Cummings is Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois, and she still is campaigning for Nina Turner. Thank you, uh, Professor Marianne Cummings. Next up, we go after APEC on this show. Uh, My new enemy is APEC. They are damaging uh, this country. So they're in my crosshairs. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Have a good night. I'll see you Wednesday. uh, Mr. Steinel. Great job, by the way. You, well, you get the fireplace shovel dick once in a while. Yes. Please, not in front of Mike's, Professor Mike Steinel. <laughs> Professor Mike Watch Steinel joins there. us. I'm getting requests for turtle. Uh, people seem to like turtle for some reason. They like everything. It's, a, it's, got, a, it's got a nice groove. It's got a nice groove. Professor Mike Steinel has been away for a while because he's doing the finishing touches on Saving Charlie Parker, a multimedia extravaganza that includes (laughs) writing and music, right? Print book, audio book, and CD. And uh, I just got to figure out how to sell it. Jeez. I got to get, I got to get a, I don't have a store on my website. I have to have a store. I need well, a store. Well, you know, so maybe I, if I'll sell it on my website and keep all the profits. There you go. I how could I how could I uh, turn that down? Here's the deal. <laughs> I will call you. What's the deal? Well, how how's this for your ego? Because in the end, it's really okay. your ego. Really, I, it's I, just about ego. That's right. Right. I'll sell the book on my store, right, and keep all okay. the money, but call you and tell you. It's amazing. I am making a fortune off your <laughs> your your book. Wouldn't that make That's a you... hell of a deal, David Feldman. I think I, I think I could go for that. What would you rather yeah, have? I don't you... praise or money? I th- Yeah, I don't I, I think Yeah, I think I would take the praise. Me too. You know. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, a couple bones to, bones to pick. Before you How's do my that, audio? before you do that, yes, I think yes, sir. we could set up a business here because my ego is so fragile or fragile <laughs> that if I put out a comedy CD, which I've been thinking of doing, I would oh, yeah, okay. surrender all the profits to a company that would rip me off but convince me that I've been ripped off and that the the CD, they would present evidence that the CD, my comedy CD, 
was a bestseller and that 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 I so I know that I got ripped off but I was loved I would I would yeah go for that. we should that you know that's be, this is this is a really interesting actually I was thinking today um you always say I listen to Mike Steinell on Spotify I have not I haven't heard from Spotify or any streaming service about anything I'm not I don't have that much out there but you'd think you know somebody's you know I think we should have Ray Hare on again and talk mm -hmm. about there's the unionist is trying to figure out how musicians can get a better deal for for streaming you know it's really it's really the next frontier because I don't think people are going to buy you know I'm going to make I'm going to do this CD limited release um, and I'm just going to, I started my own company. I start, I tell me what you think of this. So I've been listening to audiobooks, and all the audiobooks they start with la 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 presents mm -hmm. East of Eden by John Steinbeck performed by, you know, so Rosanna's, I got this company, it's called Rosewood audio. And I did a, I did a, uh, DBA doing business as right. in Texas. So I have, you know, that and um, Rosanna's going to do the, the voiceover. Rosanna Eckert, my good buddy and right. member of my group. We love her. She's going to say, Rosanna. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> She's going to say, Rosewood Audio presents Saving Charlie Parker. So that sounds good, wow. doesn't it? Yeah. So I'm going to I'm just going to put out the CD and the audio book under Rosewood Audio and uh see what happens but i need i need somebody to help me with i've got a couple of people actually in the last week or so that i've reached out to and we're going to have some talks about uh when everything comes out i got to be ready with some way for people to buy it you know right without going to amazon without going right. to amazon so i got a couple bones to pick well, hang David on for one Feldman. second hang on for one second okay hang on before you write the bones it's called a db you call it a dba right Doing business says yes. I have an NDBA. Not, <laughs> not doing any business. Hang on, I think the Invisible Ninja posted a song of yours on YouTube, and I without permission from you. And oh, I that's fine. Did, oh, pick, he, did pick he do for some, love. Some pick for love. I'm gonna find. Did he that. do a little bit of uh, cartooning? Uh, yeah. Hang on. Let me see how much we made off you. Hang on. Oh God! <laughs> and uh, and you're not going to get it. I'm kidding. Hang on for one second. Let me just see. We're a pick for love. All right. So it has been monetized. Uh, analytics. Ooh. You're not getting it. I'll send you a screenshot of how much I made. I didn't know he had posted. 20 cents? Huh? Well, wait a second. How, Did you say how, 20 cents? Is he, Did you just say 20, 20 cents? cents? Is that about right? Yeah. We think very it. highly of ourselves, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, oh, man. You know what made me so happy uh, is Jose Arroyo. What? Did you see him showing all those New Yorker cartoons that got rejected? I love that segment. I had to. I played that for my wife. 
Uh, I love the one with the coyotes. Let's take it from Owl. Right, right, <laughs> right. Oh, that was that was a great segment. He's he's, you know, uh, you've had some really good guests. So I take some time off, and what do you do? You have like Corey Brett Schneider, Fred Stoller, and here's my bone to pick. You had Catherine before you Lou. pick the bone. You, when you anybody saying, anybody who does my show, I take yes. them to I take them to a cemetery. And I said, these graves are filled with indispensable guests. That's what Charles de Gaulle would say to his soldiers, to his generals. These graves are filled with indispensable military. I, I don't need any of you. <laughs> no, I'm joking. That, that is so cold-blooded. That's I know, so cold-blooded. I know. So you had Catherine Lou on, and then you go, by the way, Mike Steinell has written a song called uh, who's afraid of Catherine Lou? But I'm not going to play it. No, I. I and I'm without you there. It felt like a violation. Why? Be, it because it's such a great song, but it it I didn't want. I felt like I'd be cheating on you. It felt like adultery to play it. Well, what's what's new? I mean, you've never stopped you before. <laughs> well. <laughs> I didn't. We didn't don't talk count. about these things. That, that, that was just—I was drinking at the time. <laughs> but I just felt I can't play this great song. She'll think I had something. No, to you, do. you, you. No, you said we don't have time to play it because you needed. She, I, I think she's so delightful. But um, do I you was, hear I that? Was, I, was, I tuned you, in. Do you hear what's going on here? No. What's what is that? We're being visited by aliens or something this has been going on oh my on. goodness okay so you've got a bone to pick and listen yeah so so that was the first one and then then you had uh pam professor pamela who you won't she you tell her you tell people where she works but you don't and what she does but you won't say what her name is um which i think is interesting because <clears throat> I could just go to Brandon University. But anyway, and what did you talk about again? Penises. It's always the penis. She brings the penis stuff for you. I, I think that. I was replaced that first week that I was gone by the penis lady. You were so funny. You go like, uh, she's the, it was the, um, the tail to frog. Right. But the tail isn't a tail, David. What do you think <laughs> it is? And you go, it's the leg. Is it an arm? <laughs> Is it an arm? And then you go in this whole thing about the daddy frog and the mama frog. <laughs> it was like, I could just imagine how you gave your kids the talk, you know, <laughs> the daddy and the daddy frog then takes his tail. And <laughs> anyway, I, no, I, I, I kid, thought, my, my talk was. Sometimes a mommy and a daddy love each other so much that yeah. the daddy, <laughs> to make the mommy happy, leaves and never comes back. So I said to Professor Pamela, Hannah helped out with this. She is an expert on reproduction in the animal kingdom. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if, she, if Professor Pamela comes on and only talks about uh -huh. animal penises? But we don't we never we never say that. She just comes on and describes the penises of animals, but it's but I it's always very, play dumb. It's a cute. Like, it's a cute yeah. I know, 
It's a cute bit. Yeah. It's, well, it's a cute real. Bit. It's no, real. I, I, I'm, I really, you have had some, and, and Ivan Kachanovsky, Ivan Kachanovsky, yeah. the Ukrainian professor that uh, Adnan brought in. That was great. That was Actually, that fantastic. was Professor You've Greenberg. Some, it was Professor Greenberg who brought. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Professor yeah, that's Adnan right, that's Hussein's right. envelopes have I just, been a little light of late. <laughs> yeah, a, okay, you, you said I came in heavy. I feel like a I, pimp. I, I, I feel like a pimp here. <laughs> like take these beautiful. Well, I have these beautiful people, the, and all I can do is bully if, them into the submission. If the blue coat fits, <laughs> <laughs> if the if the uh, if the alligator boots fit, David. If the shoe fits. And you, you, you feel like what you are. Okay, so there's so, I tell you the truth, man, it's been, there's so many, you know, the, the Supreme Court, uh, Ukraine, um, what, a, a Buffalo, yeah. uh, just <clears throat> really de depressing. And I thought, I, and, and one of the reasons why I took some time off is I had to get this music ready. And what, the music I do for, the jazz I do, I have to kind of realize that I'm in a completely different head when, so to speak, when when I'm writing something for your show and when I'm writing something for, you know, the jazz projects. And uh, I just had to have like f focus on that. But um, so I, I was going to try to think of I wanted to write something funny to, for tonight and all. The last three days, I've been thinking about the Elon Musk Twitter debacle. That's so screwed up. But I didn't have a definitive, you know, I was going to do something like, uh, come on, Mr. Musk, you know, make up your mind. Are you in or are you out? You know, something like mm -hmm. that. But anyway, so I had, had nothing today. I had nothing today. And um, my wife, we had to go buy plants and we spent the afternoon going by plants we had we had trees taken out today it's been a very busy day of household stuff and we have uh, a house guest coming tomorrow but anyway you said you opened up your monologue we needed a serious conversation about a serious con about serious conversations yes. so i've written a song called talk is cheap and i'm going to do it live right here okay and it's all about cliches and aphorisms that you know, are overused and right. sometimes don't work. Right. So that's okay. sort of like something you want to hear. I love, I love your music. I love your music. Well, thank you, David. Do I want to hear it? Do I want to hear it? I, I think I got enough for a, an album, but I don't know what to call it. I, Feldman made me do it, or uh, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> of of uh, you know protest music just f funny things you know f you know um, we got some good stuff um, swine Every, bomb boogie we got uh, there are the the songs I play are not necessarily my favorite they're the ones that I've taken the time to make a video for uh, right right, and the, and, right but then what happens is. You know, after you hear some of these songs once or twice, you get addicted to them. Yeah. You and get the, then I just okay. want to hear them over and over. So I, I'm doing it. I do a disservice and injustice to all your other songs because I love hearing 
I have a very limited horizon when it comes to new experiences. <laughs> so I, I need to put more okay. music into the cycle. Well, that's okay. I'm, yeah, I'm not. I'm not suggesting you have to do that. But anyway. Uh, but but anyway. Um, but by the way, we're rolling up to an anniversary. May twenty sixth, twenty twenty. I went back. I thought, what was the first show I did? It was the first. I had done a couple of things on office hours, but then you said, "Come on the show on Monday and talk about Tutti Frutti," and we did the. Remember, we did the mm -hmm. uh, the, the the Tutti Frutti thing, and um, he had just died. And then we did. Then we did a couple about Dylan. And then I start. Then they started getting pretty regular. And I think the first song I did uh, was Scarborough Fair. And then very close after it was um, the ones we can't play, like uh, Feldman's in the basement, mixing up the mess, right. and Leon's in the crawl space. Uh, you know, I, th that's a couple of. They were just too close to the parodies of the Dylan right. things. And then the Howie Smith. Not Howie Smith. That's another friend of mine. Uh, Howie Klein's theme song, which is really, I think, I've I sent it to you today. I sent it to Hannah. You don't have to play it, uh, but I thought if I didn't have something new, I would. We could play that because you haven't played it in a while. But that's really one of the better themes because uh, it's kind of modern jazz. You know, it's kind of more. Right. And he more loved jazzy. it. He did. Yeah, we we fixed it because I couldn't find the fix though. I I, I think I sent lives in san diego where it okay. never rains it still says that many anyway. right hey you want to hear talk is cheap yeah I, i'm gonna play the how i don't have the howie klein one in front of me i'm gonna okay. start playing that again i need to get a new computer and i need to hard drive everything and get more <clears throat> organized and do a little uh, uh be a little more retrospective because I'm always moving forward and I don't look yeah. back and things and I forget about things like once something happens, I'm too busy on to the next failure. So that's good. Yeah, but you're it, it, you're, you're 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 falling. You're falling forward. That's good. You know, it's just keep falling. Right. <laughs> By the way, I love what you said the other night about there's a difference between proving something and saying something. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's that's the secret, I think, to artistry. Because if you're proving something, you're going to be a ball of nerves the whole time. You know, I think you have to get to the point where you just don't care about whether it's. I remember I, I saw a, a a performer composer who I really admired, who was older, who came into our school, and he was talking. He had he had late in his career gotten really successful in, in an artistic sense he was going all over europe and he was writing orchestra pieces he had branched out he had freed himself from bebop and uh, he was telling about <clears throat> he brought a piece to the berlin philharmonic and they were playing it and the whole time this this concert this old german concert master was just staring at him hating him you know and and he said i realized that uh I didn't even care. He, he he hated my music. And he said, I didn't even care at that point whether I, I don't even know if I liked my music. That's how free he'd gotten in in terms of composing. You know, he just he just kept putting it out there. It was, um, it was really good. His you name know, is Bob Brookmeyer, and, and he was a brilliant composer. You know, Beto, right, Beto O'Rourke is running for governor of yeah. Texas. 
I hope he wins. He's a fraud, but I hope he wins. I can't stand the guy. And he's our fraud, though. He's our fraud. Yeah, but he's not. He's a fraud. And he's being bankrolled by his Republican father-in-law. Keep talking. Keep talking. I'm going to turn my computer on. I realize I'm getting an echo from the other room. Okay. He's keep an example going. of somebody when they speak is proving something as opposed to saying something. Beto O'Rourke is proving something. Watch his speeches. He's proving something as opposed to saying something. Then watch Bernie. Bernie's saying something. That's the difference. But I hope Beto wins because Greg Abbott is a Greg Abbott. That's the pejorative for Greg Abbott. He's a Greg <sighs> Abbott. Oh, man. Greg Abbott. Hey, Abbott! Abbott! I liked uh, Abbott and Costello. I thought they were funny. All right, let me play this song for you. It's got, it's got six verses. This is called uh, Talk is Cheap. And if, if you like it, I'll maybe do like a, actually uh, uh, punch it up with some background, background vocals and stuff like that. But anyway, it's, it's just a blues. How's my volume? Pretty good, pretty good. A serious conversation about serious conversations. In the final analysis, the analysis will be final. With all due respect, there ain't no respect due to you. I got so many cliches, I don't know what to do. Talk is cheap. You can get it at a reduced price. Your brain can go to sleep as long as you talk nice. It is what it is until it isn't what it isn't. But it was what it was and it landed you in prison. Actions speak louder than words Unless you can yell real loud What will be will be What will bop will bop If you don't hop You can hop at the sock hop Talk is cheap You can get it at a discounted price Your brain can be asleep As long as you talk real nice If I know now what I knew then, I would probably have forgotten that somehow I screwed that up. It ain't over till it's over, but sometime it's over long before you realize it. 
What doesn't kill you makes you stronger unless you're kind of weak to begin with, then it probably will kill you. Nothing is what it seems unless it seems it is nothing. Talk is cheap, you can get it at a discount reduced price. Your brain can be asleep as long as you talk real nice. All right, he who hesitates is lost unless he's really lost and then he should hesitate. The early bird gets the worm unless the worm is a very large bird-eating worm. It is better to have loved and lost than to forget to pack your dental floss. Pride goeth before a fall, but what if you fall and feel kind of proud about it? Talk is cheap. You can get it at a discounted price. Your brain can be asleep as long as you talk real nice. An apple a day keeps a doctor away unless you're allergic to apples. Good things come to those who wait, but while you wait, you present all your friends who are getting better stuff than you're never going to get. A wolf in sheep's clothing is usually fun to pet. Don't count your chickens before they hatch unless you want an omelet. Talk is cheap, you can get it at a discounted price Your brain can be asleep as long as you talk real nice With great power comes great responsibility But with really great power, you can just do whatever you want to I'm talking to you, Mr. Bezos. Slow and steady rinse the waste unless someone fast sets the pace. Look before you leap, unless you're scared of heights, then you better use a blindfold. Always go with the flow, unless you're standing in the sewer. Talk is cheap, you can get it at a reduced price Your brain can be asleep as long as you talk real nice I'm sorry, I hit the wrong button. Oh, I love that. I'm sorry. That's so great. That, I apologize for hitting. That was brilliant and funny. I, okay. I could listen to that all night. You wrote I'll, that I'll, today. I'll punch it up. I'll send you an MP3. There's some pretty good lines in there. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of, a, I realize it's kind of Mitch Hedberg. Some of the humor is kind of Mitch Hedberg, right? Yeah, yeah. 
an apple a day keeps a dog. I loved him. I mean, it's not as good as Mitch Hedberg, but it's, it's the same style. An apple a day keeps a doctor away unless you're allergic to apples. Pride goeth um, before, what is it, before a fall? Pride goeth before a fall, but what if you fall and feel kind of proud about it? <laughs> I love that. That's a perfect joke. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's actually, that, that's a chiasm, I think. That's a chi- you know what a chiasm no. is? It's, it's, a, it's a figure of speech that is kind of like a palindrome. I'm trying to think of, you know, like it, um, okay, no one cares what you know until they know that you care. Oh, I see. It, 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 some, some of these are flipped. That's, that's one that's flipped, you know, because pride goeth before a fall, and then it's the next part of it is, well, what if you fall, and if you kind of, you just, right. the fall and the pride, they're, they're flipped. Not all of them are like that. But I really, I, th- I was trying to get your, your thing, and by the way, this is, this is not a denigration of anything you said today. I, I was, you said we needed a serious conversation about serious conversations. And I went like, that's the song. That's the song. But I, I couldn't find, uh, I couldn't find a lot of aphorisms that work. That aphorism works because it modifies itself. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so how long does it take uh, you to come up with those modified aphorisms? I started it at five. I was listening to the show. I started listening to the show at four o'clock my time. And it was really good. And, and then I said, I got to, I started writing lyrics. You know, I go to, I go to rhyming rhyme zone and I say, well, what rhymes with, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, like one, not all of them rhyme, you know? Right. Um, but, um, it was i was done with the words by dinner time wow we ate at six so you know and it's just a blues you know so then i put and then just it's just kind of putting that could be a half hour that could be a half hour song of like just well i don't know it's it's pretty long already (laughs) i could listen to that forever so great i need some what i wanted was background you know uh talk is cheap you know talk is cheap like pigs don't climb i need you know right by the way i I still still think um i think usa of distraction is the best sounding thing i've done you know i played that today in terms of yeah i saw that on the list i didn't i I was uh i think having supper or or doing stuff by the time that happened and i need the list of the performers on turtle because you do all the music on 99.9% of the music. Rosanna sometimes sings, but for the most part, you're playing all the instruments, but yeah, not I'm on doing Turtle. Everything. Should I just tell them? Can I just announce them right now? Yeah. The personnel on Turtle is I'm playing trumpet. My buddies are Chris McGuire on tenor saxophone. Actually, he's playing alto on that. Rosanna Ecker doesn't have a solo, but she sings the melody. Um, uh, Pat Coyle plays piano, and then he puts some B3 organ on it. Steve Barnes, my drummer, my good buddy and great drummer. And uh, Carl Hillman plays bass. He's got that, you know that. People record It's just great. <clears throat> There's a weird thing. When I, when I do something live, I kept leaning back. I think it starts a feedback because I should, what I should probably do is, is turn off 
my, no, I can't turn off my microphone, but maybe I should disconnect my monitoring headphones because I think I'm, the sound is coming back through and it starts to hiss. I've noticed that even it's there um, when I watch it on YouTube. So, but then it goes away. So I think the sound is coming from, because I have these earbuds and oh, yeah. that's why I'm hearing you. And then this is, is, this is going through that. But anyway, um, hey, I, I was glad that you, you were, you're kind of like calling people to task about their audio. That's good. Remember the, uh, my, my rating I came up with? Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, we've, we've asked everybody to, yeah. It, it it's eventually sometime in the next month i'll be running all the sound out of zoom in through a mixer and then back out uh but that requires uh some some equipment that uh do you remember how can you remember the days when you were just audio back that's when i started listening it was just uh, audio I and you, you know what my father said to me? He said, I'm this serious. He said, I, he said, after I had, nah, I shouldn't repeat it. It's, it's kind of, uh, I, you know Personal. what? I, it, it's uh, not worth, it's unfair to repeat that to, to certain people. But I can't remember a time when we didn't do the show this way. I was wondering, you know, it, um, I think the Zoom thing, started pretty much after um, the lockdown, didn't it? But it wasn't, you didn't do it on the, before the lockdown. There was no- No, there was no, a, it was an audio show. Totally audio, yeah. Totally and audio. You would, and you did it like, I would imagine like you, people phoned in on and Skype. you always used to say, um, hang on the line, stay on the line, please. Right. And what was that for? Uh, just uh, to tell a dirty, disgusting joke. <laughs> but what happened was the, the lockdown started. We, we immediately... Went to office hours. We had office hours because everybody needed somebody to hang out with. And I, as I remember it, it started in March. And then somewhere along the line, like in April or May, I'll have to ask Leslie, or May or June, I decided to just do the show live on Zoom to tape. And I was, I didn't think we could do, you know, from start to finish, do the show live. Uh, you know, six hours straight and no, yeah. no taping. And then... We did it somehow. Every Zoom is like a tank. People show up. They know they all. Everybody knew how to use Zoom, so it just changed the show and it just became live. Then in September of twenty twenty, we simulcast. We began simulcasting on YouTube. Right. Okay. And yeah. And and I I thought. YouTube, I was afraid of YouTube. I thought we'd get, I didn't realize what YouTube was going to be like. I, I was just convinced it was going to be nasty. But they were just. That they, were, they would take you off? No, no. The, the, the people would just troll me and say horrible 
things. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, the the comments. I just yeah. figured I'd get my ass kicked. Uh, well, David, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Unless you're kind of weak to begin <laughs> with, and then, it, then it probably will kill you. <laughs> I like I like that I like that line because it sets you up. Yeah, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Unless you're kind of weak, <laughs> and then you will you'll die. You will die. You know what? I, I, it would be funny every week. You should have an aphorism. <laughs> that would be. Uh, uh, yeah, I love these. I love these. It ain't over till it's over, but sometimes it's over long before you realize it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nothing is what it seems unless it seems it is nothing. That's a good one. That, see, now that's a, that's a chiasm. That's a direct chiasm because you have nothing and then seems and then you have seems and nothing. I'm going the wrong way. Hey, by the way, on your website, I went through to find an old shows that I'd done. <laughs> and then you go to the bottom after you look at a at a at a uh, your um, you know, you click on an episode and then you see all the time codes. And then at the bottom, you're. You go, okay, I don't know if you can imagine this, but the the button to click to go back goes to the right. Is that a, is that a, are, are you doing, is that because Hebrew, Hebrew? goes right to left? Uh, I figure nobody ever gets down that far. <laughs> <laughs> I would think like, you know, if you're going back, you're going this way. But uh, yours goes that way. You go, yours goes to the right to go back. I'll have to speak to Josh about that. No, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But it really confused me because I, I was clicking. I'm going like, no, I'm, I'm not going back. I'm getting it. They're getting, they're getting uh, later. They're getting later. Right. Hey, by the way, I filled up my gas tank today, fifty bucks. But I tell you what, I did a, like an inflation calculator. Gas in 1976, I remember paying a buck 50 for gas in 1976, 76, 77, right when I moved down here and go to, went to graduate school. If you put that into the inflation calculator, that gas, what dollar 50 gas in 76 should be about seven bucks now. So we're, our gas is still, compared to Europe and everything, is still historically cheap. Now, do you, you know, know in 1976, I was pumping gas at the Rustic Cabin Exxon on 9W. And it was called the Rustic Cabin Exxon because it used to be the Rustic Cabin on 9W. And do you know who got his start at the Rustic Cabin on 9W in Anglo? You've told me this before, but I forgot it. Frank Sinatra. 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 It was a wow. roadhouse. The guy who owned Rustic Cabin Exxon put up a plaque near the men's room. I'm being serious. From well, this, of course. Is it, does it still stand? Is it still there? From this acorn, a mighty oak grew. Frank Francis Albert Sinatra began his singing career here on this very spot. I am telling you, people from all over the world came to the Rustic Cabin Exxon in Englewood, New Jersey on 9W and would stand in front of the men's room and read a plaque on a wall <laughs> and then look yeah. around and all they saw was discarded carburetors, 
and oil <laughs> drums. We had people from Austria coming to see it. They would pay homage. It was, they made pilgrimages to the... Well, they must have had a little dance hall or something there originally. Yeah, yeah. It was a mob band. run. It was a mafia place. And they had a radio show. <clears throat> I think it was on oh, WNEW really? that Frank sang on. Here's the thing about Frank Sinatra. I didn't get why people were showing up to look at the plaque next to the men's room. Now, I would show up. I would go to the spot where Frank, Frank Sinatra started. I totally yeah. get There's nobody like Sinatra. Nobody. Nobody comes no. close. No, no, he's one of a kind. I mean, it's such a recognizable thing. Yeah. You know, it's kind of His like voice. Robin, Robin Williams with comedy. You would watch, yeah. and David one Letterman said, David Letter, after Robin died, David Letterman gave the greatest eulogy on his show about Robin Williams. Anybody who ever did comedy would watch Robin and they'd go, well, what's the point? Like I'm, I'm. This is what Letterman said. Yeah. And and then he said, "You got to watch this on YouTube." And then he said, "Luckily, he said we were all at the comedy store. Robin would go up, and we go, oh my God, I should just quit. There's no point in doing this anymore.'" Then he goes, "Luckily, Robin became incredibly famous, and he got Mork and Mindy, and he went away. So we were free." of him we didn't have to be reminded of how brilliant he was and how bad we were he said but the problem was robin was a very generous guy who took care of his friends so we all got parts on mork and mindy and we had to be reminded that why even do that i always think robin is like the sinatra of comedy like like everybody else watches him and went yeah why there's... do i even why do i even try there are phenomenons in every every discipline, you know, that can't be uh, can't be duplicated. By the way, my wife and I got married in Weehawken, uh, New Jersey. You know who else died in Weehawken besides you? We didn't die. We got married. Like I'm, I said, you know who else died in Weehawken? <laughs> who uh, who else? Alexander Hamilton was shot by. Oh, that's right. That's right. Aaron right Burr. right, right, right he, around Al the corner. Hamilton died. They took him back across the river, and he died a couple of days you, later. Do you know that drive is? Um, you come up the hill, King Drive, I think it is. Yeah. No, and then there's the cliffs. You know, oh, our good friend has a house right there, and just down the street was the house that actually um, Sinatra was born in. Where, he, but and then then later Hoboken, he was, right. it, which is right next door. But we, uh, yeah. We got married in uh, in the nineties. In there, why we talking? My wife, my um, wife, my wife, my <laughs> wife. We we were high school sweethearts uh -huh. and then married other people, mm. and and really didn't see each other for about twenty five years, and then we got unmarried from people, and uh, we, um, you know, started a relationship. And for a long time, she lived in New York. She's very uh, successful opera singer, sang all over the world, and was based out of New York. And for we tried to do um, we we had I had an apartment here, and she had an apartment there. She had a place in, place in Queens, big big place actually. And uh, only only in in New York do they pay you to move out. 
Mm-hmm. It was <laughs> she got a settlement to move out because they were, you know, the trying to sell the apartment, right? And they couldn't, you know, rent control, and they were churning the apartment. She, every year she would get some offer. We'll give you this to move up here to this one, you know. But she liked her apartment, she, and she didn't want to move. But anyway, so her good friend, she had, she, she just her best friend, um, her name is Ardith, and and she has a house in Weehawk, and she uh, was in the healthcare industry, and also in her, you know. Um, when she she was involved with opera hosting singers and um beverly had stayed with her and they met when she was in st louis and they just they're kind of sisters beverly has four four brothers or had four uh one passed away but um she's the only girl this is like the sister she never had and so she just hosted this wedding for us in weehawk and then uh and she, you know, right in the back, it, from her house, boom, you look right across 40 and right down 42nd Street. So that's the view, you know. And uh, it's so funny, our wedding pictures, we, we, we took them out there and, and that view's in the background, but it looks so fake. It looks like those things in Niagara Falls, you know, where they pull, mm-hmm. the, <laughs> pull the thing down. Right. You know, it looks too, too good to be true. Anyway, but anyway, that's, uh, the, she, she always said Sinatra, Sinatra, she pointed out the house. It was like four or five houses down on King Street. Everybody thought he grew up in Hoboken, which I think he did, but he was actually born um, in Weehawken. Well, when that, you, when that you come back is, to New York, you'll, you'll come over here for dinner because I have Dolly Sinatra's kitchen table. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> you do not. I think five that, What does people, that mean? What does that mean? I have that- Dolly Sinatra's kitchen table. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have to figure out. There are about five means. people right now who are thinking Feldman is the most disgusting human being <laughs> I've ever met in my life. But, okay. Uh, that'd be a good so- name for a band, Dolly Sinatra's kitchen table. I'll work on that. I'll work on that. Google Dolly Sinatra's kitchen table. Okay, I'll do that. I don't. It I'll may do not that. be legal to Google it in Texas, though. <laughs> oh God! Don't get me started on Texas. Oh man! Write a song called Dolly Sinatra's yeah. Kitchen Table. I'll take that under advisement, David. I think that I might get in trouble. <laughs> it might get me in trouble more she than was, I am. She was already. a great Dolly Sinatra. Was a great woman. I mean, like amazing. She was like a, a ward healer for the Democratic Party, like a big Roosevelt person. She really? Was, oh, she was like one of the great Democrats from New Jersey. You and she entertained get, you people get elected. on her kitchen table? Huh? I'm sorry? She entertained people on her kitchen table? No. <laughs> but she, I think she did some great work on her kitchen table. But you couldn't get elected dog catcher in Hoboken without checking in with Dolly Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, really, the older I get, the more I realize there's nothing, nothing compares to Frank Sinatra. And I have tremendous respect for Frank Sinatra Jr. I have friends who played, uh, he's a great guy. He passed away. He was a great guy, yeah. But he was an Uh, arranger and he he knew musical theory and he looked like Frank, he sounded like Frank, and living in that shadow 
to, to come out of that the way he did and to be a kind and decent person. When he was a good was, band leader. You know, he, yeah. he did he, and was real loyal to his father, you know. Yeah. And, I yeah. also have tremendous. I would love to get Gary Lewis on this show. Jerry this Lewis's diamond son. ring doesn't mean what it meant before. He's a great I, man. I hear that. I hear these things. He was Jerry Lewis's son. He not only survived Jerry Lewis, he survived Vietnam. He went off in the middle of Gary Lewis and the Playboys. He went off and served in Vietnam and came back. Was he and, drafted? Was he drafted? Yeah, I think. and he was ruined. Yeah. It, it, Vietnam ruined him. And yeah. it ruined Gary Lewis and the Playboys. And he's, I, I watch him on YouTube. He still does interviews. And I think, and he, I would love to just ask him, what was harder, surviving Vietnam or having Jerry Lewis as a father? <laughs> and I think having Jerry Lewis as a father was tougher than the shit. I do. Oh, yeah. There's a lot that's coming out in there. Yeah. 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 All right, but not Lindsey Graham. Hey, um, we'll wrap it up. Mike yeah. Steinel, yeah. Professor yeah. Mike Steinel. I love you. I just, I wish I were you. I do. Oh, I David, wish I could do. So nice I wish I could that. do what you do. Uh, <laughs> and that is <laughs> okay. Just, just leave it at that, Feldman. Just, okay. Just leave it. I'm going to sign off now. I'm going to go have a little glass of wine and go to bed. Okay. Uh, there's a riot. I think in my neighborhood oh that's not good no i hear this i hear the sirens that's not good free entertainment oh i gotta tell you this i got we, we, our little just... hometown in marion kansas we're headed up there next week i may i'll probably if i'm on the show monday i'll probably do it i will do it from the the lake house but gosh that that place is a crime infested little town there's Stuff, drug stuff. There's 65 year old uh, women who have it running a drug ring, and they get arrested. Uh, there's let's go. <laughs> there was a, a high speed chase during town. There was a murder. A guy uh, killed a lady, and his his father and his uncle helped him cover it up, and they're all arrested. And uh, what's the name of the town? Marion, Kansas. My and, kind uh, of town, Marion. I think it's more dangerous. I bet you, per capita, it's more, it's a much more dangerous place to live than your your neighborhood. I don't know. Something's going on outside, and I'm I'm, I'm looking at the local, um, you know, doing my zip code for the news. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, so well, far, I'm not saying. Stay anything. safe. Don't go outside until there's all until they do the all clear. Yeah. But anyway, I'll do, maybe I'll start doing the the news from Marion. The the that'd be great. The police blotter. You know, a guy a guy was to the police guy, blotter. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's 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 crazy. It's I don't know what's going on up there. It's crazy. A lot of COVID death too. So we're going to have to be very careful. All right, man. All right, thank you, All Mike Steinell. Thank you, Mike Steinell is a jazz trumpeter, composer, educator member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 to 2019, author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary. His latest is Running the Changes, and he's a novelist. Saving Charlie Parker will be coming out soon. You can listen to the 
book on tape of the lake house by going to youtube i, th I think it might be free and go buy song and dance the mike steinel quintet featuring rosanna eckert on origin records for more information go to mikesteinel.com he is the best he is the best and everybody knows it he's the best thank you for listening that's the show please come to office hours every friday night at 8 p.m join the community meet better people the way to attend a live taping of this show in our virtual studio audience is to go to my website and hit attend a live taping and you'll get an invitation you need zoom and you can participate in the chat room ask questions when i take calls and while you're over at my website please sign up for my newsletter it goes out every friday now we're i'm doing a better job sending out the newsletter <clears throat> and it's a great the way we're doing the newsletter now is it's a review of the past week so you if you haven't heard the show yet or you haven't heard all of the show the newsletter is a rundown of the show with timestamps which if you click on them will take you right to the part of the show on youtube that you want to listen to it's pretty cool it's it's the newsletter for example the thing that i just did with professor mike steinel will have a time code next to it so you can kind of watch or listen to the show the way you would Netflix, you just program the order of the episode any way you want. And that's one of the many reasons to sign up for the newsletter. There's a sign up form over davidfeldmanshow.com. I want to thank Greg Barak. His new book is Criminology on Trump. It debuts today, Tuesday. Uh, go to gregbarak.com. To, to purchase it or buy it wherever, uh, what's his name, sells books. The, the man whose name we cannot say. I want to thank Jason Miles. Oh, he wasn't here today. Pascal Robert, host, co-host of This Is Revolution podcast. Howie Klein, founder, treasurer of the Blue America Pack, author of Down With Tyranny. Check out Down With Tyranny. David Cobb, follow him on Twitter at David K. Cobb. Dr. Harriet Fraud, listen to Capitalism Hits Home and uh, go to harrietfraud.com to contact her. Professor Adnan Hussein, listen to the Mudgeless podcast and Guerrilla History. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Peter B. Collins, Go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of his radio shows, podcasts, and conversations. And of course, Joe Loria, editor-in-chief of Consortium News. Go to consortiumnews.com right now and donate. They've been shut down by PayPal. Go to consortiumnews.com. Professor Marianne Cummings, we hope your uh, voice comes back. Follow Professor Cummings on Twitter at Razor Girl. That's uh, girl is spelled G R R L. Razor Girl. Dan Frankenberger. 
Dan Frankenberger. Nothing gets done here without the great Dan Frankenberger. Mike Steinel, Professor Mike Steinel. Go to MikeSteinel.com. Hey, I forgot to mention all the people who put this show together. You've noticed that the show is so much better now. And that's because of Dan Frankenberger, Professor Jonathan Bick, Joe in Norway, the Invisible Ninja, Hannah Feldman, Grace Jackson, Sarah Bush. All right, let me mix it up again. All right. Uh, these are the people who put the show together. Dan Frankenberger, Hannah Feldman, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Joe in Norway, the Invisible Ninja, Professor Jonathan Bick, and Andy Brown. I forgot Andy Brown. And uh, we'll get to Rodrigo on Friday because I have to wrap it up. It's We're running late, and I have uh, some personal calls to make. Um, all right. Is that it? Did I leave anything out? Subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts and share it. Please. Uh, we're not promoted by any of the major podcast platforms because we don't run advertising. So if you're iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, whatever, they don't want, they'll, they'll distribute the show, but they would prefer you didn't listen to it because they don't make any money off it. So they're not going to promote the show. You're not going to find out about the show on any of the major podcasting platforms because we don't run advertising. They rather have you listen to podcasts that run advertising so they can make money. I need the listeners to please share the show through word of mouth. That's the only way we can grow the show is through word of mouth, copy and paste the link of this show and share it with like-minded people who you think would enjoy it. We have a YouTube channel that's growing, thanks to the Invisible Ninja. Did I leave the Invisible Ninja out? Maybe I did. And that's a great way to share segments of the show because of the timestamps. So please subscribe to the YouTube channel and hit uh, the like button, right? Okay. I answer all my emails now. Now that we have a crew, I'm able to do the things I like most. So I'm answering all the emails. So hit the contact button and I promise to get back to you. And I think I've sent all the thank you notes to people who donate. So if you've donated and you haven't gotten a thank you note from me, uh, something screwy. I, you should have gotten a thank you note from me. A lot of people sent some really uh, nice notes and, and money the last pledge episode, so thank you. All right, that's the show. Uh, I'm going to play Turtle. People requested Turtle. You got it. I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. I've, we're not going to play Turtle. Something happened. Uh, we're going to play USA of Distraction. Oh.
has risen to the top we've lost the power to think so we shop until we drop we're surveilled and monitored while they keep us all distracted so we never notice that our data has been extracted we're living every day we're living every night in the usa of distraction all right The Reagan agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, gone, gone. Slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, the media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night. 
The bulwark of democracy is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day, yeah. Well, we're living every night in the USA. A distraction. Well, we're living every day. We're living every night. In the USA, a distraction. Where we're living every day, where we're living every night. In the USA, a distraction. That's right. 